This is Audible. Recorded books and one-click digital present. Red Rising by Pierce Brown. Narrated by Tim Gerard Reynolds and directed by Abigail McHugh. I would have lived in peace, but my enemies brought me war. I watched twelve hundred of their strongest sons and daughters, listening to a pitiless golden man speak between great marble pillars, listening to the beast who brought the flame that gnaws at my heart. All men are not created equal, he declares. Tall, imperious, an eagle of a man. The weak have deceived you. They would say the meek should inherit the earth, that the strong should nurture the gentle. This is the noble lie of democracy, the cancer that poisoned mankind. His eyes pierce the gathered students. You and I are gold. We are the end of the evolutionary line. We tower above the flesh heap of man, shepherding the lesser colors. You have inherited this legacy. He pauses, studying faces in the assembly. But it is not free. Power must be claimed. Wealth won. Rule, dominion, empire, purchased with blood. You scarless children deserve nothing. You do not know pain. You do not know what your forefathers sacrificed to place you on these heights. But soon you will. Soon we will teach you why gold rules mankind. And I promise, of those among you, only those fit for power will survive. But I am no gold. I am a red. He thinks men like me weak. He thinks me dumb, feeble, subhuman. I was not raised in palaces. I did not ride horses through meadows and eat meals of hummingbird tongues. I was forged in the bowels of this hard world, sharpened by hate, strengthened by love. He is wrong. None of them will survive. Part One Slave There is a flower that grows on Mars. It is red and harsh and fit for our soil. It is called Hemanthus. It means blood blossom. Chapter One Helldiver The first thing you should know about me is I am my father's son, and when they came for him, I did as he asked. I did not cry. Not when the society televised the arrest. Not when the golds tried him. Not when the greys hanged him. Mother hit me for that. My brother, Kieran, was supposed to be the stoic one. He was the elder, I the younger. I was supposed to cry. Instead, 
Kieran bawled like a girl when little Eo tucked a Hemanthus into father's left work boot and ran back to her own father's side. My sister, Liana, murmured a lament beside me. I just watched and thought it a shame that he died dancing, but without his dancing shoes. On Mars, there is not much gravity, so you have to pull the feet to break the neck. They let the loved ones do it. I smell my own stink inside my fry suit. The suit is some kind of nanoplastic and is hot, as its name suggests. It insulates me toe to head. Nothing gets in, nothing gets out. Especially not the heat. Worst part is, you can't wipe the sweat from your eyes. Bloody damn stings, as it goes through the headband to puddle at the heels. Not to mention the stink when you piss. But you always do. Gotta take in a load of water through the drink tube. I guess you could be fit with a catheter. We choose the stink. The drillers of my clan chatter some gossip over the calm in my ear as I ride atop the claw drill. I'm alone in this deep tunnel, on a machine built like a titanic metal hand, one that grasps and gnaws at the ground. I control its rock-melting digits from the holster seat atop the drill, just where the elbow joint would be. There, my fingers fit into control gloves that manipulate the many tentacle-like drills some ninety metres below my perch. To be a hell diver, they say your fingers must flicker fast as tongues of fire. Mine flicker faster. Despite the voices in my ear, I am alone in the deep tunnel. My existence is vibration, the echo of my own breath, and heat so thick and noxious it feels like I'm swaddled in a heavy quilt of hot piss. A new river of sweat breaks through the scarlet sweatband tied around my forehead and slips into my eyes, burning them till they're as red as my rusty hair. I used to reach and try to wipe the sweat away, only to scratch futilely at the faceplate of my fry suit. I still want to, even after three years. The tickle and sting of the sweat is a raw misery. The tunnel walls around my holster seat are bathed a sulfurous yellow by a corona of lights. The reach of the light fades as I look up the thin vertical shaft I've carved today. Above, precious helium-3 glimmers like liquid silver, but I'm looking at the shadows looking for the pit vipers that curl through the darkness, seeking the warmth of my drill. They'll eat into your suit, too. Bite through the shell and then try to burrow into the warmest place they find, usually your belly, so they can lay their eggs. I've been bitten before. Still dream of the beast. Black, like a thick tendril of oil. They can get as wide as a thigh, and as long as three men, but it's the babies we fear. They don't know how to ration their poison. Like me, their ancestors came from Earth. Then Mars and the deep tunnels changed them. It is eerie in the deep tunnels. Lonely. Beyond the roar of the drill, I hear the voices of my friends, all older. But I cannot see them a half-click above me in the darkness. They drill high above, 
near the mouth of the tunnel that I've carved, descending with hooks and lines to dangle along the sides of the tunnel to get at the small veins of helium-3. They mine with metre-long drills, gobbling up the chaff. The work still requires mad dexterity of foot and hand, but I'm the earner in this crew. I am the hell-diver. It takes a certain kind, and I'm the youngest anyone can remember. I've been in the mines for three years. You start at thirteen. Old enough to screw, old enough to crew. At least that's what Uncle Nero said. Except I didn't get married till six months back, so I don't know why he said it. Eo dances through my thoughts as I peer into my control display and slip the claw drill's fingers around a fresh vein. Eo. Sometimes it's difficult to think of her as anything but what we used to call her as children. Little Eo. A tiny girl, hidden beneath a mane of red. Red like the rock around me. Not true red. Rust red. Red like our home. Like Mars. Eo is sixteen too. And she may be like me. From a clan of red earth diggers a clan of song and dance and soil. But she could be made from air, from the ether that binds the stars in a patchwork. Not that I've ever seen stars. No red from the mining colonies sees the stars. Little Leo. They wanted to marry her off when she turned fourteen, like all girls of the clans. But she took the short rations and waited for me to reach sixteen, wed age for men, before slipping that cord around her finger. She said she knew we'd marry, since we were children. I didn't. Hold, hold, hold! Uncle Nero snaps over the comm channel. Darrell, hold, boy! My fingers freeze. He's high above with the rest of them, watching my progress on his head unit. What's the burn? I ask annoyed. I don't like being interrupted. What's the burn? The little hell diver asks. Old Barlow chuckles. Gas pocket, that's what. Nero snaps. He's the head talk for our 200 plus crew. Hold. Call on a scan crew to check the particulars before you blow us all to hell. That gas pocket? It's a tiny one, I say. More like a gas pimple. I can manage it. A year on the drill, and he thinks he knows his head from his hole. Poor little pissant. Old Barlow adds dryly. Remember the words of our golden leader. Patience and obedience, young one. Patience is the better part of valour, and obedience the better part of humanity. Listen to your elders. I roll my eyes at the epigram. If the elders could do what I can, Maybe listening would have its merits. But they are slow in hand and mind. Sometimes I feel like they want me to be just the same. Especially my uncle. I'm on a tear, I say. If you think there's a gas pocket, I can just hop down and hand scan it. Easy. No dilly-dally. They'll preach caution. As if caution has ever helped them. We haven't won a laurel in ages. Want to make E.O. a widow? 
Barlow laughs, voice crackling with static. Okay, boy, me? She's a pretty little thing. Drill into that pocket and leave her to me. Old and fat I be, but my drill still digs a dent. A chorus of laughter comes from the two hundred drillers above. My knuckles turn white as I grip the controls. Listen to Uncle Narrow Darrow. Better to back off till we can get a reading, my brother Kieran adds. He's three years older. Makes him think he's a sage, that he knows more. He just knows caution. There'll be time. Time? Hell, it'll take hours, I snap. They're all against me in this. They're all wrong and slow and don't understand that the laurel is only a bold move away. More, they doubt me. You are being a coward, Narrow. Silence on the other end of the line. Calling a man a coward, not a good way to get his cooperation. Shouldn't have said it. I say, make the scan yourself. Lauren, my cousin and Narrow's son squawks. Don't, and Ghana is good as gold. They'll get the laurel for, oh, the hundredth time. The laurel. Twenty-four clans in the underground miling colony of Lycos. One laurel per quarter. It means more food than you can eat. It means more burners to smoke. Imported quilts from Earth. Amber swill with the society's quality markings. It means winning. Gamma clan has had it since anyone can remember, so it's always been about the quota for us lesser clans, just enough to scrape by. Eo says the laurel is the carrot the society dangles, always just far enough beyond our grasp. Just enough so we know how short we really are and how little we can do about it. We're supposed to be pioneers. Eo calls us slaves. I just think we never try hard enough. Never take the big risks because of the old men. Lauren, shut up about the laurel. Hit that gas and we'll miss all the bloody damn laurels to kingdom come, boy. Uncle Nerol growls. He's slurring. I can practically smell the drink through the com. He wants to call a censor team to cover his own ass. Or he's scared. The drunk was born pissing himself out of fear. Fear of what? Our overlords, the golds, their minions, the greys. Who knows? Few people. Who cares? Even fewer. Actually, just one man cared for my uncle, and he died when my uncle pulled his feet. My uncle is weak. He is cautious and immoderate in his drink, a pale shadow of my father. His blinks are long and hard, as though it pains him to open his eyes each time and see the world again. I don't trust him down here in the mines, or anywhere for that matter. But my mother would tell me to listen to him. She would remind me to respect my elders, even though I am wed, even though I am the hell-diver of my clan. She would say that my blisters have not yet become calluses. I will obey even though it is as maddening as the tickle of the sweat on my face. Fine, I murmur. I clench the drill fist and wait as my uncle calls it in from the safety of the chamber above the deep tunnel. This'll take hours. 
or do the math. Eight hours till whistle call. To beat Gamma, I've got to keep a rate of 156.5 kilos an hour. It'll take two and a half hours for the scan crew to get here and do their deal at best. So I've got to pump out 227.6 kilos per hour after that. Impossible. But if I keep going and squab the tedious scan, it's ours. I wonder if Uncle Nerl and Barlow know how close we are. Probably. Probably just don't think anything's ever worth the risk. Probably think divine intervention will squab our chances. Gamma has the laurel. That's the way things are and will ever be. We, of Lambda, just try to scrape by on our foodstuffs and meagre comforts. No rising, no falling. Nothing is worth the risk of changing the hierarchy. My father found that out at the end of a rope. Nothing is worth risking death. Against my chest, I feel the wedding band of hair and silk dangling from the cord around my neck and think of Eo's ribs. I'll see a few more of the slender things through her skin this month. She'll go asking the Gamma families for scraps behind my back. I'll act like I don't know. But we'll still be hungry. I eat too much because I'm sixteen and still growing tall. Eo lies and says she's never got much of an appetite. Some women sell themselves for food or luxuries to the tin pots. Greys, to be technic about it. The society's garrison troops of our little mining colony. She wouldn't sell her body to feed me. Would she? But then I think about it. I'd do anything to feed her. I look down over the edge of my drill. It's a long fall to the bottom of the hole I've dug. Nothing but molten rock and hissing drills. But before I know what's what, I'm out of my straps, scanner in hand, and jumping down the hundred metre drop toward the drill fingers. I kick back and forth between the vertical mineshaft's walls and the drill's long, vibrating body to slow my fall. I make sure I'm not near a pit viper nest when I throw out an arm to catch myself on a gear just above the drill fingers. The ten drills glow with heat. The air shimmers and distorts. I feel the heat on my face, feel it stabbing my eyes, feel it ache in my belly and balls. Those drills will melt your bones if you're not careful. And I'm not careful. Just nimble. I lower myself hand over hand, going feet first between the drill fingers so I can lower the scanner close enough to the gas pocket to get a reading. The heat is unbearable. This was a mistake. Voices shouted me through the comm. I almost brush one of the drills as I finally lower myself close enough to the gas pocket. The scanner flickers in my hand as it takes its reading. My suit is bubbling and I smell something sweet and sharp like burned syrup. To a helldiver, it is the smell of death. Chapter 2 The Township My suit can't handle the heat down here. The outer layer is nearly melted through. Soon the second layer will go. 
Then the scanner blinks silver, and I've got what I came for. I almost didn't notice. Dizzy and frightened, I pull myself away from the drills. Hand over hand, I tug my body up, going fast away from the dreadful heat. Then something catches. My foot is jammed just underneath one of the gears near a drill finger. I gasp down air in sudden panic. The dread rises in me. I see my boot heel melting. The first layer goes, the second bubbles. Then it will be my flesh. I force a long breath and choke down the screams that are rising in my throat. I remember the blade. I flip out my hinged sling blade from its black holster. It's a cruelly curved cutter, as long as my leg, meant for taking off and cauterizing limbs stuck in machinery, just like this. Most men panic when they get caught, and so the sling blade is a nasty half-moon weapon meant to be used by clumsy hands. Even filled with terror, my hands are not clumsy. I slice three times with the sling blade, cutting nanoplastic instead of flesh. On the third swing, I reach down and jerk free my leg. As I do, my knuckles brush the edge of a drill. Searing pain shoots through my hand. I smell crackling flesh, but I'm up and off, climbing away from the hellish heat, climbing back to my holster seat, and laughing all the while. I feel like crying. My uncle was right. I was wrong. But I'll be damned if I ever let him know it. Idiot, is his kindest comment. Manic, bloody damn manic, Lauren whoops. Minimal gas, I say. Drilling now, uncle. The hallbacks take my pull when the whistle call comes. I push myself out of my drill, leaving it in the deep tunnel for the night shift, and snag a weary hand on the line the others drop down the kilometre-long shaft to help me up. Despite the seeping burn on the back of my hand, I slide my body upward on the line till I'm out of the shaft. Kieran and Lauren walk with me to join the others at the nearest grav lift. Yellow lights dangle like spiders from the ceiling. My clan and Gamma's three hundred men already have their toes under the metal railing when we reach the rectangular grav lift. I avoid my uncle. He's mad enough to spit and catch a few dozen pats on the back for my stunt. The young ones, like me, think we've won the laurel. They know my raw helium three-pull for the month. It's better than Gamma's. The old turds just grumble and say we're fools. I hide my hand and duck my toes in. Gravity alters, and we shoot upward. A gamma scab with less than a week's worth of rust under his nails forgets to put his toes under the railing, so he hangs suspended as the lift shoots up six vertical kilometres. Ears pop. Got a floating gamma turd here, Barlow laughs to the lambdas. Petty as it may seem, it's always nice to see a gamma squab something. They get more food, more burners, more everything because of the laurel. We get to despise them. But then, we're supposed to, I think. Wonder if they'll despise us now. Enough's enough. I grip the rust-red nanoplastic of the kid's fry suit and jerk him down. Kid, that's a laugh.
He's hardly three years younger than I. He's deathly tired, but when he sees the blood red of my fry suit, he stiffens, avoids my eyes, and becomes the only one to see the burn on my hand. I wink at him, and I think he shits his suit. We all do it now and then. I remember when I met my first hell diver. I thought he was a god. He's dead now. Up top, in the staging depot, a big grey cavern of concrete and metal, we pop our tops and drink down the fresh, cold air of a world far removed from molten drills. Our collective stink and sweat soon make a bog of the area. Lights flicker in the distance, telling us to stay clear of the magnetic horizon tram tracks on the other side of the depot. We don't mingle with the gammas as we head for the horizon tram in a staggered line of rust-red suits, half with lambda L's, half with gamma canes painted in dark red on their backs, two scarlet head talks, two blood-red hell divers. A cadre of tin pots eye us as we trudge by over the worn concrete floor. Their grey duro armour is simple and tired, as unkempt as their hair. It would stop a simple blade, maybe an iron blade, and a pulse blade or razor would go through it like paper. But we've only seen those on the hollow can. The greys don't even bother to make a show of force. Their thumpers dangle at their sides. They know they won't have to use them. Obedience is the highest virtue. The grey captain, Ugly Dan, a greasy bastard, throws a pebble at me. Though his skin is darkened from exposure to the sun, his hair is grey like the rest of his colour. It hangs thin and weedy over his eyes. Two ice cubes rolled in ash. The sigils of his colour, a blocky grey symbol like the number four with several bars beside it, mark along each hand and wrist. Cruel and stark, like all the greys. I heard they pulled Ugly Dan off the front line back in Eurasia, wherever that is, after he got crippled, and they didn't want to buy him a new arm. He has an old replacement model now. He's insecure about it, so I make sure he sees me give the arm a glance. So you had an exciting day, darling? His voice is as stale and heavy as the air inside my fry suit. Brave hero now, are you, Darrow? I always thought you'd be a brave hero. You're the hero, I say, nodding to his arm. And you think you're smart, don't you? Just a red. He winks at me. Say hello to your little birdie for me. A ripe thing for pigging. Licks his teeth. Even for a rasta. Never seen a bird. Except on the HC. Ain't that a thing, he chuckles. Why, where are you going? He asks as I turn. A bow to your betters won't go awry, don't you think? He snickers to his fellows. Careless of his mockery, I turn and bow deeply. My uncle sees this and turns from it, disgusted. We leave the greys behind. I don't mind bowing, but I'll probably cut Ugly Dan's throat if I ever get the chance. Kind of like saying, I take a zip out to Venus in a torch ship 
if it ever suited my fancy. Hey, Dago! Dago! Lauren calls to Gamma's hell diver. The man's a legend. All the other divers just a flash in the pan. I might be better than him. Watch your poor. Dago, a pale strip of old leather with a smirk for a face, lights a long burner and puffs out a cloud. Don't know. He draws. Come on. Don't care. Raw count never matters, Lambda. Like bloody hell it doesn't. What did he pull on the week? Lauren calls as we load into the tram. Everyone's lighting burners and popping out the swill, but they're all listening intently. 9,821 kilos, Agama boasts. At this, I lean back and smile. I hear cheers from the younger lambdas. The old hands don't react. I'm busy wondering what EO will do with sugar this month. We've never earned sugar before. Only ever won it at cards. And fruit. I hear the laurel gets you fruit. She'll probably give it all away to hungry children just to prove to the society she doesn't need their prizes. Me? I'd eat the fruit and play politics on a full stomach. But she's got the passion for ideas, while I've got no extra passion for anything but her. Still won't win. Dago draws as the tram starts away. Darrow's a young pup, but he's smart enough to know that. Ain't you, Darrow? Young or not, I beat your craggy ass. You sure about that? Deadly sure. I wink and blow him a kiss. Laurel's ours. Send your sisters to my township for sugar this time. My friends laugh and slap their fry suit lids on their thighs. Dago watches me. After a moment, he drags his burner deep. It glows bright and burns fast. This is you, he says to me. In half a minute, the burner is a husk. After disembarking the Horizon tram, I funnel into the flush with the rest of the crews. The place is cold, musty, and smells exactly like what it is, a cramped metal shed where thousands of men strip off fry suits after hours of pissing and sweating to take air showers. I peel off my suit, put on one of our hair caps, and walk naked to stand in the nearest transparent tube. There are dozens of them lined up in the flush. Here, there is no dancing, no boastful flips. The only camaraderie is exhaustion and the soft slapping of hands on thighs, creating a rhythm with the whoosh and shoot of the showers. The door to my tube hisses closed behind me, muffling the sounds of music. A familiar hum comes from the motor, followed by a great rush of atmosphere and a sucking resonance as air filled with antibacterial molecules screams from the top of the machine and shoots over my skin to whisk away dead skin and filth down the drain at the bottom of the tube. It hurts. After, I part with Lauren and Kieran as they go to the common to drink and dance in the taverns before the Laurel Tide dance officially starts. The tin pots will be handing out the allowances of foodstuffs and announcing the Laurel at midnight. They will be dancing before and after for us of the day shift.
the legends say that the god Mars was the parent of tears, foe to dance and loot. As to the former, I agree. But we of the colony of Lycos, one of the first colonies under Mars's surface, are a people of dance and song and family. We spit on that legend and make our own birthright. It is the one resistance we can manage against the society that rules us, gives us a bit of spine. They don't care that we dance or that we sing, so long as we obediently dig, so long as we prepare the planet for the rest of them. Yet to remind us of our place, they make one song and one dance, punishable by death. My father made that dance his last. I've seen it only once, and I've heard the song only once as well. I didn't understand when I was little. One about distant veils, mist, lovers lost, and a reaper meant to guide us to our unseen home. I was small and curious when the woman sang it, as her son was hanged for stealing foodstuffs. He would have been a tall boy, but he could never get enough food to put meat on his bones. His mother died next. The people of Lycos did the fading dirge for them, a tragic thumping of fists against chests, fading slowly, slowly, till the fists, like her heart, beat no more, and all dispersed. The sound haunted me that night. I cried alone in our small kitchen, wondering why I cried then when I had not for my father. As I lay on the cold floor, I heard a soft scratching at my family's door. When I opened the door, I found a small hemanthus bud nestled in the red dirt, not a soul to be seen, only Eo's tiny footprints in the dirt. That is the second time she brought flowers after death. Since song and dance are in our blood, I suppose it's not surprising that it was in both that I first realised I loved Eo. Not little Eo, not as she was, but Eo as she is. She says she loved me before they hanged my father, but it was in a smoky tavern when her rusty hair swirled and her feet moved with the zither and her hips to the drums that my heart forgot a couple of beats. It was not her flips or cartwheels, none of the boastful foolery that so marks the dance of the young. Hers was a graceful, proud movement. Without me, she would not eat. Without her, I would not live. She may tease me for saying so, but she is the spirit of our people. Life's dealt us a hard hand, we're to sacrifice for the good of men and women we don't know. We're to dig, to ready Mars for others. That makes some of us nasty-minded folks. But Eo's kindness, her laughter, her fierce will, is the best that can come from a home such as ours. I look for her in my family's offshoot township, just a half mile's worth of tunnel road away from the common. The township is one of two dozen townships surrounding the common, it is a hive-like cluster of homes carved into the rock walls of the old mines. Stone and earth 
or our ceilings, our floors, our home. The clan is a giant family. Eo grew up not a stone's throw from my house. Her brothers are like my own. Her father like the one I lost. A mess of electrical wires tangled together along the cavern's ceiling like a jungle of black and red vines. Lights hang down from the jungle, swaying gently as air from the common central oxygen system circulates. At the centre of the township dangles a massive hollow can. It's a square box with images on each side. Pixels are blacked out and the image is faded and fuzzy, but never has the thing faltered, never has it turned off. It bathes our cluster of homes in its own pale light. Videos from the society. My family's home is carved into the rock a hundred metres from the bottom floor of the township. A steep path leads from it to the ground, though pulleys and ropes can also bear one to the township's greatest heights. Only the old or infirm use those, and we have few of either. Our house has few rooms. Eo and I only recently were able to take a room for ourselves. Kieran and his family have two rooms, and my mother and sister share the other. All lambdas in Lycos live in our township. Omega and Upsilon neighbour us just a minute's worth of wide tunnel over to either side. We're all connected, except for Gamma. They live in the common, above the taverns, repair booths, silk shops and trade bazaars. The tin pots live in a fortress above that, nearer the barren surface of our harsh world. That's where the ports lie that bring the foodstuffs from Earth to us marooned pioneers. The hollow can above me shows images of mankind's struggles, which are then followed by soaring music as the society's triumphs flash past. The society's sigil, a golden pyramid with three parallel bars attached to the pyramid's three faces, a circle surrounding all, burns into the screen. The voice of Octavia Aulun, the society's aged sovereign, narrates the struggle man faces in colonising the planets and moons of the system. Since the dawn of man, our saga as a species has been one of tribal warfare. It has been one of trial, one of sacrifice, one of daring to defy nature's natural limits. Now, through duty and obedience, we are united, but our struggle is no different. Sons and daughters of all colours, we are asked to sacrifice yet again. Here, in our finest hour, we cast our best seeds to the stars. Where first shall we flourish? Venus, Mercury, Mars, the moons of Neptune, Jupiter? Her voice grows solemn as her ageless face with its regal cast peers down from the HC. Her hands shimmer with the symbol of gold emblazoned upon their backs, a dot in the centre of a winged circle. Gold wings mark the sides of her forearms. Only one imperfection mars her golden face. A long crescent scar running along her right cheekbone. Her beauty is like that of a cruel bird of prey. 
You brave red pioneers of Mars, strongest of the human breed, sacrifice for progress, sacrifice to pave the way for the future. Your lives, your blood, are a down payment for the immortality of the human race as we move beyond Earth and Moon. You go where we could not. You suffer so that others do not. I salute you. I love you. The helium-3 that you mine is the lifeblood of the terraforming process. Soon the red planet will have breathable air, livable soil. And soon, when Mars is habitable, when you brave pioneers have made ready the red planet for us softer colors, we will join you and you will be held in highest esteem beneath the sky your toil created. Your sweat and blood fuels the terraforming. Brave pioneers, always remember that obedience is the highest virtue. Above all, obedience, respect, sacrifice, hierarchy. I find the kitchen room of the home empty, but I hear Eo in the bedroom. Stop right where you are, she commands through the door. Do not, under any condition, look in this room. Okay. I stop. She comes out a minute later, flustered and blushing. Her hair is covered in dust and webs. I rake my hands through the tangle. She's straight from the webbery, where they harvest the biosilk. You didn't go on the flush, I say, smiling. Didn't have time. Had to skirt out of the webbery to pick something up. What did you pick up? She smiles sweetly. You didn't marry me because I tell you everything, remember? And do not go into that room. I make a lunge for the door. She blocks me and pulls my sweatband down over my eyes. Her forehead pushes against my chest. I laugh, move the band, and grip her shoulders to push her back enough to look into her eyes. Or what? I ask with a raised eyebrow. She just smiles at me and cocks her head. I back away from the metal door. I dive into molten mine shafts without a blink, but there are some warnings you can book off and others you can't. She stands on her tiptoes and pecks me good on the nose. Good boy, I knew you'd be easy to train, she says. Then her nose wrinkles because she smells my burn. She doesn't coddle me, doesn't berate me, doesn't even speak except to say, I love you, with just the hint of worry in her voice. She picks the melted pieces of my fry suit out of the wound, which stretches from my knuckles to my wrist, and pulls tight at web wrap with antibiotic and nerve nucleic. Where'd you get that? I ask. If I don't lecture you, you don't quiz me on what's what. I kiss her on the nose and play with the thin band of woven hair around her ring finger. My hair, wound with bits of silk, makes her wedding band. I have a surprise for you tonight, she tells me. And I have one for you, I say, thinking of the laurel. I put my sweatband on her head like a crown. She wrinkles her nose at its wetness. Oh, well, I actually have two for you, Darrow. Pity you didn't think ahead. You might have gotten me a cube of sugar, or a satin sheet, or... 
Maybe even coffee to go with the first gift? Coffee? I laugh. What sort of colour did you think you married? She sighs. No benefits to a diver. None at all. Crazy. Stubborn. Rash. Dexterous, I say, with a mischievous smile as I slide my hand up the side of her skirt. Reckon that has its advantages. She smiles and swats my hand away like it's a spider. Now put these gloves on, unless you want jabber from the women. Your mother's already gone on ahead. Chapter 3 The Laurel We walk, hand in hand with the others from our township, through the tunnel roads to the common. Loon drones on above us on the HC, high above, as the gold brows, aureus to be technic, ought to be. They show the horrors of a terrorist bomb killing a red mining crew and an orange technician group. The sons of Ares are blamed. Their strange glyph of Ares, a cruel helmet with spiked sunbursts exploding from the crown, burns across the screen. Blood drips from the spikes. Children are shown mangled. The sons of Ares are called tribal murderers, called bringers of chaos. They are condemned. The society's grey police and soldiers move rubble. Two soldiers of the obsidian colour, colossal men and women nearly twice my size, are shown, along with nimble yellow doctors carrying several victims from the blast. There are no sons of Ares and Lycos. Their futile war does not touch us. Yet again, a reward is offered for information on Ares, the terrorist king. We have heard the broadcast a thousand times, and still it feels like fiction. The sons think we are mistreated, so they blow things up. It is a pointless tantrum. Any damage they do delays the progress of making Mars ready for the other colours. It hurts humanity. In the tunnel road, where boys compete to touch the ceiling, the people of the townships flow in merriment toward the Laureltide dance. We sing the Laureltide song as we go, a swooping melody of a man finding his bride in a field of gold. There's laughter as the young boys try running along the walls or doing rows of flips only to fall on their faces or be bested by a girl. Lights are strung along the lengthy corridor. In the distance, drunk Uncle Nerol, old now at thirty-five, places zither for the children who dance about our legs. Even he cannot scowl forever. He wears the instrument suspended on shoulder straps so that it rests at his hips, with its plastic soundboard and its many taut metal strings facing up toward the ceiling. The right thumb strums the strings, except when the index finger drops down, or when the thumb picks single strings, all while the left hand picks out the bass line string by string. It is maddeningly difficult to make the zither sound anything but mournful. Uncle Nero's fingers are equal to the task, though mine only make tragic music. He used to play to me, teaching me to move to the dances my father never had the chance to teach me. He even taught me the forbidden dance, the one they'll kill you for. We'd do it in the old mines, 
He would hit my ankles with a switch until I pirouetted seamlessly through the swooping movements, a length of metal in my hand, like a sword. And when I got it right, he would kiss my brow and tell me I was my father's son. It was his lessons that taught me to move, that let me best the other kids as we played games of tag and ghosts in the old tunnels. The gulls dance in pairs, obsidians in threes, greys in dozens, he told me. We dance alone, because only alone do hell divers drill. Only alone can a boy become a man. I miss those days, days when I was young enough that I didn't judge him for the stink of swill on his breath. I was eleven then. Only five years ago. Yet it feels like a lifetime. I get pats on the back from those of Lambda, and even Varlow the baker tilts me his brow and tosses Eo a fist of bread. They've heard about the laurel, no doubt. Eo tucks the bread into our skirts for later and gives me a curious look. You're grinning like a fool, she says to me, pinching my side. What did you do? I shrug and try to wipe the grin from my face. It is impossible. Well, you're very proud of something, she says suspiciously. Kieran's son and daughter, my niece and nephew, patter by. Three and three, the twins are just fast enough to outrace both Kieran's wife and my mother. My mother's smile is one of a woman who has seen what life has to offer and is, at best, bemused. It seems you've burned yourself, my heart, she says when she sees my gloved hands. Her voice is slow, ironic. A blister, Eo says for me. Nasty one. Mother shrugs. His father came home with worse. I put my arm around her shoulders. They are thinner than they used to be when she taught me, as all women teach their sons, the songs of our people. Was that a hint of worry I heard, mother? I ask. Worry? Me? Silly child. Mother sighs with a slow smile. I kiss her on the cheek. Half the clans are already drunk when we arrive on the common. In addition to a dancing people, we're a drunken people. The tin pots let us alone in that. Hang a man for no real reason, and you might get some grumblings from the township, but force sobriety upon us, and you'll be picking up the pieces for a bloody damn month. Eos of the mind that the fungus Grendel, which we distill, isn't native to Mars, and was instead planted here to enslave us to the swill. She brings this up whenever my mother makes a new batch, and my mother usually replies by taking a swig and saying, Rather a drink be my master than a man. These chains taste sweet. They'll taste even sweeter with the syrups we'll get from the laurel boxes. They have flavours for alcohol, like berry and something called cinnamon. Perhaps I'll even get a new zither made of wood instead of metal. Sometimes they give those out. Mine is an old, frayed thing. I've played it too long. But it was my father's. The music swells ahead of us in the common, bawdy tunes of improvised percussion and wailing zithers. We're joined by Omegas and Upsilons, 
jostling about merrily toward the taverns. All the tavern doors have been thrown open, so their smoke and sound billow into the commons plaza. Tables ring the plaza, and a space is left clear surrounding the central gallows, so that there is room to dance. Gamma homes fill the next several levels, followed by supply depots, a sheer wall, and then, high above, in the ceiling, a sunken metal dome with nanoglass viewports. We call that place The Pot. It is the fortress where our keepers live and sleep. Beyond that is the uninhabitable surface of our planet, a barren wasteland that I've only seen on the HC. The helium-3 we mine is supposed to change that. The dancers and jugglers and singers of the Laurel Tide have already begun. Eo catches sight of Lauren and Kieran and gives them a holler. They're at a long, packed table near the soggy drop, the tavern where the oldest of our clan, old Ripper, holds court and tells tales to drunken folks. He's passed out on the table tonight. It's a shame. I would have liked for him to see me finally get us the laurel. At our feasts, where there's hardly food enough for each soul to hold a bit in their gob, the drink and dance take centre. Lauren pours me a mug of swill before I even sit down. He's always trying to get others to drink so he can put ridiculous ribbons in their hair. He clears the way for Eo to sit beside his own wife, Dio, her sister, twin in looks, if not birth. Lauren has a love for Eo, like her brother Liam would. But I know he was once taken with her as he ever was with Dio. In fact, he bent a knee to my wife when she turned fourteen. But then again, half the lads joined him in that. No sweating it. She made her choice right and clear. Kieran's children swarm him. His wife kisses his lips. Mine kisses his brow and tousles his red hair. After a day in the Webbery, harvesting spider-worm silk, I don't know how the wives manage to look so lovely. I was born handsome, face angular and slim, but the minds have done their part to change me. I'm tall, still growing. Hair still like old blood, irises still as rust-red as Octavia Loon's are golden. My skin is tight and pale, but I'm pocked with scars, burns, cuts. Won't be long till I look hard as Dago or tired as Uncle Nerrell. But the women, they're beyond us, beyond me. Lovely and spry despite the webbery, despite the children they bear. They wear layered skirts down past their knees and blouses of half a dozen reds. Never anything else, always red. They're the heart of the clans. And how much more beautiful they will look, wrapped in the imported bows and ribbons and laces contained in the laurel boxes. I touch the sigils on my hands, a bone-like texture. It's a crude red circle with an arrow and cross-hatching, it feels right. Eos doesn't. Her hair and eyes may be ours, but she could be one of the gold brows we see on the hollow can. She deserves it. Then I see her smack Lauren hard on the head as he throws back a mug of mass will. God, if he's placing about the pieces, placed her well. I smile. But as I look behind her, my smile fades.
above the leaping dancers, amid the hundred swirling skirts and thumping boots and clapping hands, sways a single skeleton upon the cold, tall gallows. Others do not notice it. To me, it is a shadow, a reminder of my father's fate. Though we are diggers, we are not permitted to bury our dead. It is another of the society's laws. My father swayed for two months till they cut his skeleton down and ground his bones to dust. I was six, but I tried to pull him down the first day. My uncle stopped me. I hated him because he kept me from my father's body. Later, I came to hate him again because I discovered he was weak. My father died for something, while Uncle Nerol lived and drank and squandered his life. He's a mad one. You'll see some day. Mad and brilliant and noble. Nerol's the best of my brothers, my father once said. Now he's just the last. I never thought my father would do the devil's dance what the old folk called death by hanging. He was a man of words and peace, but his notion was freedom, laws of our own. His dreams were his weapons. His legacy is the dancer's rebellion. It died with him on the scaffold. Nine men at once doing the devil's dance, kicking and flailing, till only he was left. It wasn't much of a rebellion. They thought peaceful protest would convince the society to increase the food rations, so they performed the reaping dance in front of the grav lifts and removed bits of machinery from the drills so they wouldn't work. The gambit failed. Only winning the laurel can get you more food. It's on eleven when my uncle sits down with his zither. He eyes me something nasty, drunk as a fool on Yuletide. We don't share words, though he has a kind one for Eo and she for him. Everyone loves Eo. It's when Eo's mother comes over and kisses me on the back of my head and says very loudly, We heard the news, you golden boy. The laurel. You are your father, son. That my uncle stirs. What's the matter, uncle? I ask. Have gas. His nostrils flare wide. You little shit-eater. He launches himself across the table, and soon we're a muddle of fists and elbows on the ground. He's big, but I flip him down and pound his nose with my bad hand till Eo's father and Kieran pull me off. Uncle Nerol spits at me. It's more blood and swill than anything else. Then we're drinking again, at opposite ends of the table. My mother rolls her eyes. He's just bitter he didn't do a bloody damn thing to get the laurel. Shown up is all, Lauren says of his father. Bloody damn coward wouldn't know how to win the laurel if it landed in his lap, I say, scowling. Eo's father pats me on the head and sees his daughter fixing my burned hand under the table. I slip my gloves back on. He winks at me. Eo's figured out the fuss about the laurel by the time the tin pots arrive, but she's not excited as I'd hoped she'd be. She twists her skirts in her hands and smiles at me, 
but her smiles are more like grimaces. I don't understand why she's so apprehensive. None of the other clans are. Many come to pay their respects. All of the Helldivers do. Except Dago. He's sitting at a group of shiny gamma tables, the only ones with more food than Swill, smoking down a burner. Can't wait for the sod to be eating regular rations, Lauren chuckles. Dago's never tasted peasant fare before. Yet somehow he's thinner than a woman, Kieran adds. I laugh along with Lauren and push a meagre piece of bread to Eo. Cheer up, I tell her. This is a night for celebrating. I'm not hungry, she replies. Not even if the bread has cinnamon on it. Soon it will. She gives me that half-smile, as if she knows something I do not. At twelve, a coterie of tin pots descend in grab boots from the pot. Their armour is shoddy and stained. Most are boys or old men retired from Earth's wars. But that's not what matters. They carry their thumpers and scorchers in buckled holsters. I've never seen either weapon used. There's no need. They've got the air, the food, the port. We haven't a scorcher to shoot. Not that Eo wouldn't like to steal one. The muscle in her jaw flexes as she watches the tin pots float in their grav boots, now joined by mine magistrate Timony Supaginus, the minute copper-haired man of the pennies. Copper, to be technic. Notice, notice, grabby rosters, ugly Dan calls. Silence falls over the festivities as they float above us. Magistrate Paginus's grav boots are substandard things, so he wobbles in the air like a geriatric. More tin pots descend on a grav lift as Paginus splays open his small, manicured hands. Fellow pioneers, how wonderful it is to see your celebrations. I must confess, he titters, I have a fondness for the rustic nature of your happiness. Simple drink, simple fare, simple dance. Oh, what fine souls you have to be so entertained. Why, I wish I were so entertained. I cannot even find pleasure off planet in a pink brothel after a meal of fine ham and pineapple tart these days. How sad for me. How your souls are spoiled. If only I could be like you. But my colour is my colour, and I am cursed as a copper to live a tedious life of data, bureaucracy, and management. He clucks his tongue, and his copper curls bounce as his grav boots shift. But to the matter. All quotas have been met, save by Moo and Kai. As such, they will receive no beefs, milks, spices, hygienics, comforts, or dental aid this month. Oats and substantials only. You understand that the ships from Earth orbit can only bring so many supplies to the colonies— Valuable resources. We must give them to those who perform. Perhaps next quarter, Moo and Kai, you will dally less. Moo and Kai lost a dozen men in a gas explosion like the one Uncle Nerol feared. They did not dally. They died. He prattles on a while before coming to the real matter. He produces the laurel and holds it in the air, pinched between his fingers. It's painted in fake gold, 
but the small branch sparkles nonetheless. Lauren nudges me. Uncle Nerol scowls. I lean back, conscious of the eyes. The young take their cues from me. The children adore all helldivers, but the older eyes watch me too, just as Eo always says. I'm their pride, their golden son. Now I'll show them how a real man acts. I won't jump up and down in victory. I'll just smile and nod. And it becomes my distinct honour to, on behalf of the Arch-Governor of Mars, Nero Augustus, to award the laurel of productivity and monthly excellence and triumphant fortitude and obedience, sacrifice and... Gamma gets the laurel. And we don't. Chapter 4 The Gift As the laurel-wreathed boxes come down to Gamma, I think about how clever it really is. They won't let us win the laurel. They don't care that the math doesn't work. They don't care that the young scream in protest and the old moan their same tired wisdoms. This is just a demonstration of their power. It is their power. They decide the winner. A game of merit, won by birth. It keeps the hierarchy in place. It keeps us striving, but never conspiring. Yet, despite the disappointment, some part of us doesn't blame the society. We blame Gamma, who receives the gift. A man's only got so much hate, I suppose. And when he sees his children's ribs through their shirts while his neighbours line their bellies with meat stews and sugared tarts. It's hard for him to hate anyone but them. You think they'd share? They don't. My uncle shrugs at me, and others are red and mad. Lauren looks like he might attack the tin pots or the gammas. But Eo doesn't let me boil in it. She doesn't let my knuckles turn white as I clench my fists in fury, she knows the temper I have inside me better than my own mother, and she knows how to drain the rage before it rises. My mother smiles softly as she watches Eo take me by the arm. How she loves my wife. Dance with me, Eo whispers. She shouts for the zithers to get going and the drums to get rolling. No doubt she's pissing fire. She hates the society more than I do, but this is why I love my wife. Soon the fast zither music swells, and the old men slap their hands on tables. The layered skirts fly, feet tap and shuffle, and I grasp my wife as the clans flow in dance throughout the square to join us. We sweat and we laugh and try to forget the anger. We grew together and are now grown. In her eyes, I see my heart. In her breath, I hear my soul. She is my land. She is my kin. My love. She pulls me away with laughter. We wend our way through the crowd to be alone. Yet she does not stop when we are free. She guides me along metal walkways and low, dark ceilings to old tunnels to the webbery where the women toil. It is between shifts. 
Where are we going, exactly? I ask. If you remember, I have gifts for you. And if you apologise for your own gift going flat, I'll smack you in the gob. Seeing a bloody red Hemanthus bulb peeking out from the wall, I snatch it up and hand it to her. My gift, I say. I did intend to surprise you. She giggles. Well then, this inner half is mine. This outer half is yours. No, don't pull at it. I'm keeping your half. I smell the hemanthus in her hand. It stinks like rust and mother's meagre stews. Inside the webbery, thigh-thick spider worms of brown and black fur with long skeletal legs knit silk around us. They crawl along the girders, thin legs disproportionate to their corpulent abdomens. Eo leads me to the webbery's highest level. The old metal girders are laced with silk. I shiver in looking at the creatures above and below. Pit vipers, I understand. Spider worms, I do not. The society's carvers made the creatures. Laughing, Eo guides me to a wall and pulls back a thick curtain of webbing, revealing a rusted metal duct. Ventilation, she says. Mortar on the walls gave way to reveal it about a week ago. An old tube, too. Eo, they'll lash us if they find us. We're not allowed. I'm not going to let them ruin this gift, too. She kisses me on the nose. Come on, Helldiver. There's not even a molten drill in this tunnel. I follow her through a long series of turns in the small shaft till we exit out a grate into a world of inhuman sounds. A buzz murmurs in the darkness. She takes my hand. It's the only familiar thing. What is that? I ask of the sound. Animals, she says, and leads me into the strange night. Something soft is beneath my feet. I nervously let her pull me forward. Grass, trees, darrow trees. We're in a forest. The scent of flowers. Then lights in the darkness. Flickering animals with green abdomens flutter through the black. Great bugs with iridescent wings rise from the shadows. They pulse with colour and life. My breath catches, and Eo laughs as a butterfly passes so close I can touch it. They're in our songs, all these things, but we've only ever seen them on the HC. Their colours are unlike any I could believe. My eyes have seen nothing but soil, the flare of the drills, reds, and the grey of concrete and metal. The HC has been my window through which I've seen colour, but this is a different spectacle. The colours of the floating animals scald my eyes. I shiver and laugh and reach out and touch the creatures floating before me in the darkness. A child again, I cup them and look up at the room's clear ceiling. It is a transparent bubble that peers at the sky. Sky. Once it was just a word. I cannot see Mars's face, but I can see its view.
stars glow soft and graceful in the slick, black sky, like the lights that dangle above our township. Eo looks as though she could join them. Her face is aglow as she watches me, laughing as I fall to my knees and suck in the scent of the grass. It is a strange smell, sweet and nostalgic, though I have no memories of grass. As the animals buzz near the brush, in the trees, I pull her down. I kiss her with my eyes open for the first time. The trees and their leaves sway gently from the air that comes through the vents. And I drink the sounds, the smells, the sight as my wife and I make love in a bed of grass beneath the roof of stars. That is Andromeda Galaxy, she tells me later as we lie on our backs. The animals make chirping noises in the darkness. The sky above me is a frightening thing. If I stare too intently, I forget gravity's pull and feel as though I'm going to fall into it. Shivers trickle down my spine. I am a creature of nooks and tunnels and shafts. The mine is my home, and part of me wants to run to safety, run from this alien room of living things and vast spaces. Eo rolls to look at me and traces the steam scars that run like rivers down my chest. Farther down, she'd find scars from the pit viper along my belly. Mum used to tell me stories of Andromeda. She'd draw with inks given to her by that tin pot, Bridge. He always liked her, you know. As we lie together, she takes a deep breath, and I know she has planned something, saved something to talk about in this moment. This place is leverage. You won the laurel. We all know, she says to me. You needn't coddle me. I'm not angry any longer. It doesn't matter, I say. After seeing this, none of that matters. What are you talking about? She asks sharply. It matters more than ever. You won the laurel, but they didn't let you keep it. It doesn't matter. This place, this place exists, but they don't let us come here, Darrow. The greys must use it for themselves. They don't share. Why should they? I ask, confused. Because we made it. Because it's ours. Is it? The thought is foreign. All I possess is my family and myself. Everything else is the societies. We didn't spend the money to send the pioneers here. Without them, we'd be on the dying earth, like the rest of humanity. Darrow? Are you so red that you don't see what they've done to us? Watch your tone, I say tightly. Her jaw flexes. I'm sorry. It's just... We are in chains, Darrow. We are not colonists. Well, sure we are, but it's more on the spot to call us slaves. We beg for food, beg for laurels like dogs begging for scraps from the master's table. You may be a slave, I snap, but I am not. I don't beg. I earn. I am a hell diver. I was born to sacrifice, to make Mars ready for man. There's a nobility to obedience, she throws up her hands. A talking puppet, are you? 
spitting out their bloody damn lines. Your father had the right of it. He might not have been perfect, but he had the right of it. She grabs a clump of grass and tears it out of the ground. It seems like some sort of sacrilege. We have a claim over this land, Darrow. Our sweat and blood watered this soil, yet it belongs to the golds, to the society. How long has it been this way? A hundred? A hundred and fifty years of pioneers mining and dying? Our blood and their orders. We prepared this land for colours that have never shed sweat for us, colours that sit in comfort on their thrones on distant earth, colours that have never been to Mars. Is that something to live for? I'll say it again. Your father had the right of it. I shake my head at her. Eo, my father died before he was even twenty-five because he had the right of it. Your father was weak, she mutters. What the bloody damn is that supposed to mean? Blood rises into my face. It means he had too much restraint. It means your father had the right dream but died because he would not fight to make it real. She says sharply. He had a family to protect. He was still weaker than you. Careful, I hiss. Careful? This from Darrow, the mad hell diver of Lycos. She laughs patronisingly. Your father was born careful, obedient. But were you? I didn't think so when I married you. The others say you are like a machine because they think you know no fear. They're blind. They don't see how fear binds you. She traces the Hemanthus blossom along my collarbone in a sudden show of tenderness. She is a creature of moods. The flower is the same colour as the wedding band on her finger. I roll on an elbow to face her. Spit it out. What do you want? Do you know why I love you, Helldiver? She asks. Because of my sense of humour. She laughs dryly. Because you thought you could win the laurel. Kieran told me how you burned yourself today. I sigh. The rat. Always jabbering. Thought that's what younger brothers were supposed to do, not elder. Kieran was frightened, Darrow. Not for you, like you might be thinking. He was frightened of you. Because he can't do what you did. Boy wouldn't even think it. She always talks circles around me. I hate the abstracts she lives for. So, you love me because you believe that I think there are things worth the risk? I puzzle out. Or because I'm ambitious? Because you've a brain, she teases. She makes me ask it again. What do you want me to do, Eo? Act. I want you to use your gifts for your father's dream. You see how people watch you, take their cues from you. I want you to think owning this land, our land, is worth the risk. How much a risk? Your life. My life. I scoff. You're that eager to be rid of me. Speak and they will listen, 
she urges. It is that bloody simple. All ears yearn for a voice to lead them through darkness. Grand, so I'll hang with a troop. I am my father's son. You won't hang. I laugh too harshly. So certain a wife I have. I'll hang. You're not meant to be a martyr. Sighing, she lies back in disappointment. You wouldn't see the point to it. Oh? Well then tell me, Eo, what is the point to dying? I'm only a martyr's son, so tell me what that man accomplished by robbing me of a father. Tell me what good comes of all that bloody damn sadness. Tell me why it's better I learned to dance from my uncle than my father. I go on. Did his death put food on your table? Did it make any of our lives any better? Dying for a cause doesn't do a bloody damn thing. It just robbed us of his laughter. I feel the tears burning my eyes. It just stole away a father and a husband. So what if life isn't fair? If we have family, that is all that should matter. She licks her lips and takes her time in replying. Death isn't empty like you say it is. Emptiness is life without freedom, Darrow. Emptiness is living chained by fear, fear of loss, of death. I say we break those chains. Break the chains of fear and you break the chains that bind us to the goals, to the society. Could you imagine it? Mars could be ours. It could belong to the colonists who slaved here, died here. Her face is easier to see as night fades through the clear roof. It is alive, on fire. If you led the others to freedom, the things you could do, Darrow, the things you could make happen. She pauses, and I see her eyes are glistening. It chills me. You have been given so, so much, but you set your sights so low. You repeat the same damn points, I say bitterly. You think a dream is worth dying for. I say it isn't. You say it's better to die on your feet. I say it's better to live on our knees. You're not even living, she snaps. We are machine men with machine minds, machine lives, and machine hearts, I ask. That's what I am? Taro. What do you live for? I ask her suddenly. Is it for me? Is it for family and love? Or is it for some dream? It's not just some dream, Darrow. I live for the dream that my children will be born free, that they will be what they like, that they will own the lands their father gave them. I live for you, I say sadly. She kisses my cheek. Then you must live for more. There's a long terrible silence that stretches between us. She does not understand how her words wrench my heart, how she can twist me so easily. Because she does not love me like I love her. Her mind is too high, mine too low. Am I not enough for her? You said you had another gift for me. 
I say, changing the subject. She shakes her head. Some other time. The sun rises. Watch it with me once at least. We lie in silence and watch the light slip into the sky as though it were a tide made from fire. It is unlike anything I could have dreamed of. I can't stop the tears that well in the corners of my eyes as the world beyond turns to light and the greens and browns and yellows of the trees in the room are revealed. It is beauty. It is a dream. I am silent as we return to the grimness of the grey ducts. The tears linger in my eyes, and as the majesty of what I saw fades, I wonder what Eo wants of me. Does she want me to take my sling blade and start a rebellion? I would die. My family would die. She would die. And nothing would make me risk her. She knows that. I am puzzling out what her other gift may be when we exit the ducts for the Webbery. I roll first from the duct and extend a hand back to her when I hear a voice. It is accented, oily, from earth. Reds in our gardens, it oozes. Ain't that a thing? Chapter 5 the first song. Ugly Dan stands with three tin pots, their thumpers perch crackling in their hands. Two of the men lean on the metal rails of the Webbery's girders. Behind them, the women of Moo and Upsilon wrap silk from the worms around long silver poles. They shake their heads insistently at me, as if telling me not to be foolish. We've gone beyond the permitted zones. This will mean a flogging. But if I resist, it'll mean death. They will kill Eo, and they will kill me. Darrow, Eo murmurs. I set myself between Eo and the tin pots, but I don't fight. I won't let us die for a simple glimpse of the stars. I put my hands out to let them know I will surrender. Hell divers. Ugly Dan chuckles to the others. The toughest ant is yet but an ant. He swings his thumper into my stomach. It's like being bitten by a viper and kicked by a boot. I fall gasping, hands on the metal grate. Electricity slithers through my veins. I taste the bile rising in my throat. Take a swing, hell diver. Dan coos. He drops one of the thumpers in front of me. Please, take a swing. Won't be any consequences. Just some fun between the boys. Take a piggin swing. To us, Darrow! Eo shouts. I'm not a fool. I thrust my hands up in surrender, and Dan sighs in disappointment as he clacks the magnetic manacles around my wrists. What would Eo have had me do? She curses at them as they lock her arms together and drag us away through the webbery to the cells. This will mean the lash. But it will be just the lash because I did not pick up the thumper. Because 
I did not listen to Ea. It's three days in a cell in the pot before I see Eo again. Bridge, one of the old, kinder tin pots, takes us out together. He lets us touch. I wonder if she'll spit at me, curse me for my impotence. But she only grips my fingers and brings her lips to mine. Darrow. Her lips brush my ear. The breath is warm, the lips cracked and trembling. She's frail as she hugs me, a little girl, all wire wrapped in pale skin. Her knees wobble and she shudders against me. The warmth I saw in her face as we watched the sunrise has fled and left her like a faded memory. But I hardly see anything but her eyes and her hair. I wrap my arms around her and hear the muttering of the crowded common. The faces of our kin and clan stare at us as we stand at the edge of the gallows where they will flog us. I feel like a child under their stairs, under the yellowish lights. It's like a dream when Eo tells me she loves me. Her hand lingers on mine, but there's something strange to her eyes. They should only whip her, yet her words are final. Her eyes sad, but not afraid. I see her making a goodbye. A nightmare is coming into my heart. I can feel it like a nail dragged across the bones of my spine as she murmurs an epigram in my ear. Break the chains, my love. And then I am jerked away from her by my hair. Tears stream down her face. They are for me, though I do not yet understand why. I cannot think. The world is swimming. I am drowning. Rough hands shove me to my knees, then jerk me up. I've never heard the common so quiet. The shuffling of my captors' feet echoes as they move me around. The tin pots fit me into my helldiver fry suit. Its acrid smell makes me think I'm safe. I am in control. I am not. I'm dragged away from her into the very centre of the common and tossed at the edge of the gallows. The metal stairs are rusted and stained. I grip them with my hands and look to the top of the gallows. Twenty-four of the head talks each have a cord of leather. They wait for me atop the platform. Oh, the horror of such occasions as this, my friends! Magistrate Paginus cries. His copper grav boots hum above me as he floats through the air. Oh, how the ties that bind us are stretched when one decides to break the laws which protect us all. Even the youngest, even the best, are subject to law, to order. Without these, we would be animals. Without obedience, without discipline, there would be no colonies. And those few colonies there are would be torn asunder by disorder. Man would be confined to earth, man would wallow forevermore on that planet until the end of days. But order, discipline, law, these are the things which empower our race. Cursed is the creature who breaks with these compacts. The speech is more eloquent than usual. 
Paginus is trying to impress his intelligence upon someone. I look up from the stairs and see a sight I did not ever think to see with my own two eyes. It stings to look at him, to drink in the radiance of his hair, of his sigils. I see a gold. In this drab place, he is what I imagine angels would be like. Cloaked in gold and black, wrapped in the sun, a lion roaring upon his breast. His face is older, severe, and pure with power. His hair shines, combed back against his head. Neither a smile nor a frown mark his thin lips, and the only line I see is that of a scar which runs along his right cheekbone. I've learned from the H.C. that such a scar is borne only by the finest of the golds. The peerless scarred, they call them. Men and women of the ruling colour who have graduated from the Institute, where they learn the secrets that will permit mankind to one day colonise all the planets of the solar system. He does not speak to us. He speaks to another gold, one tall and thin, so thin I thought it a woman at first. Without a scar, the man's face is coated with strange paste to bring out the colour of his cheeks and cover the lines on his face. His lips shine, and his hair glistens in a way his master's does not. He is a grotesque thing to look upon. He thinks so of us. He sniffs the air, contemptuous. The older gold speaks to him softly, and not to us. And why should he speak to us? We are not worthy of a gold's words. I scarcely want to look at him. I feel like I dirty his gold and black finery with my red eyes. Shame creeps upon me. And then I realise why. His is a face I know. It is a face every man and woman of the colonies would know. Besides Octavia Aulun, this is the most famous face on Mars. That of Nero Augustus. The arch-governor of Mars has come to see me flogged, and he has brought a retinue. Two crows, obsidians to be technic, float quietly behind him. Their skull helmets suit their colour. I was born to mine the earth. They were born to kill men. More than two feet taller than I, eight fingers on each massive hand, they breed them for war, and watching them is like watching the cold-blooded pit vipers who infest our minds. Reptiles both. There are a dozen others in his retinue, including another, slighter gold who seems his apprentice. He's even more beautiful than the arch-governor, and he appears to dislike the thin, womanish gold. And there is a H.C. camera crew of greens. Tiny creatures, compared with the crows. Their hair is dark, not green like their eyes and the sigils on their hands. Frenetic excitement shimmers in those eyes. It's not often they have hell-divers to make into an example, so they make a spectacle of me. I wonder how many other mining colonies are watching. All of them, if the arch-governor is here. They make a show of stripping away the fry suit they only just dressed me in. 
I see myself on the HC displayed above, see my wedding band dangling from the cord around my neck. I look younger than I feel. Thinner. They jerk me up the stairs and bend me over a metal box beside the noose where my father hung. I shiver as they lay me across the cold steel and tighten my hands in restraints. I smell the synth leather of the lashes, hear one of the head talks cough. Forevermore, let justice be done, Paginus says. Then the lashes come. Forty-eight in all. They aren't soft, not even my uncle's. They can't be. The lashes bite and wail into my flesh, making a strange keening noise as they arch through the air. Music of terror. I can barely see by the end of it. I pass out twice, and each time I wake, I wonder if you can see my spine on the HC. It's a show. All a show of their power. They let the tin pot, ugly Dan, act sympathetic, as though he pities me. He whispers encouragement in my ear loud enough for the cameras, and when the last lash slashes my back, he steps in as if to stop another from coming down. Subconsciously, I think he saves me. I'm thankful. I want to kiss him. He is salvation. But I know I've had my forty-eight. Then they are dragging me to the side. They leave my blood. I'm sure I screamed, sure I shamed myself. I hear them bring out my wife. Even the young, even the beautiful, cannot escape justice. It is for all the colours that we preserve order, justice. Without, we would find anarchy. Without obedience, chaos. Man would perish upon the irradiated sands of earth. He would drink from the blasted seas. There must be unity. Forevermore, let justice be done. Mine Magistrate Paginus's words ring hollow. No one is offended that I'm bloody and beaten. But when Eo is dragged atop the gallows, there are cries, there are curses. Even now she is beautiful, even drained of the light I saw in her three days ago. Even as she sees me and lets the tears come down her face, she is an angel. All this for a little adventure. All this for a night under the stars with the man she loves. Yet she is calm. If there is fear, it is in me because I feel a strangeness in the air. Her skin prickles as they lay her across the cold box. She flinches. I wish my blood had warmed it better for her. When they whip Eo, I try not to watch, but it hurts more to abandon her. Her eyes find mine. They shine like rubies twitch every time the lash falls. Soon this will be over, my love. Soon we will go back to life. Just last the lash and we get everything back. 
but can she even take so many lashes? End it, I say to the tin pot beside me. End it, I beg of him. I'll do anything. I'll obey. I'll take our lashes. Just end it, you bloody damn bastards. End it. The arch-governor looks down at me, but his face is golden, poreless, and without care. I am nothing but the bloodiest of ants. My sacrifice will impress him. He'll feel compassion if I abase myself, if I throw myself into the fire for love. He'll feel pity. This is how the stories go. Your Excellency, give me her punishment, I plead. Please. I beg because in my wife's eyes I see something that terrifies me. I see fight in her as they streak her back bloody. I see anger building inside her. There is a reason she is not afraid. No, 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 I plead to her. No, Eo, please, no. Gag that wretched thing. He prickles the arch-governor's ears. The genus orders. Bridge forces a knot of stone into my mouth. I gag and cry. As the thirteenth lash falls, as I mumble for her not to do it, Eo stares into my eyes one last moment, and then she begins her song. It is a quiet sound, a mournful sound, like the song the deep minds whisper as wind moves in the abandoned shafts. It is the song of death and lament, the song that is forbidden. The song I have only heard once before. For this they will kill her. Her voice is soft and true, never as beautiful as she. It echoes across the common, rising up like a siren's unearthly call. The lashes pause. The head talks shiver. Even the tin pots sadly shake their heads when they place the words. Few men truly like seeing beauty burn. Vegenus glances embarrassedly over at Arch-Governor Augustus, who descends on golden grav boots to watch more closely. His shining hair glistens against his noble brow. High cheekbones catch the light. Those golden eyes examine my wife as though a worm had suddenly sprouted a butterfly's wings. His scar curls as he speaks with a voice dripping power. Let her sing, he says to Paginus, not bothering to hide his fascination. But, my lord, no animal but man throws themselves willingly into the flames, copper. Relish the sight. You'll not see it again. To his camera crew, continue recording. We will edit out the parts we find intolerable. How futile his words make her sacrifice seem. But never has Eo been more beautiful to me than in that moment. In the face of cold power, she is fire. This is the girl who danced through the smoky tav with a mane of red. This is the girl 
who wove me a wedding band of her own hair. This is the girl who chooses to die for a song of death. My love, my love, remember the cries when winter died for spring skies. They roared and roared, but we grabbed our seed and sowed a song against their greed. And down in the vale, hear the reaper swing, the reaper swing, the reaper swing. Down in the vale, hear the reaper sing. A tale of winter done. My son, my son, remember the chains When gold ruled with iron reins. We roared and roared and twisted and screamed For hours of veil of better dreams. As her voice finally swells, and the song runs out of words, I know I have lost her. She becomes something more important, and she was right. I do not understand. A quaint tune. But is that all you have? The arch-governor asks her when she is through. He looks at her, but he speaks loudly, to the crowd, to those who will watch in the other colonies. His entourage chuckles at Eo's weapon. A song. What is a song but notes unto the air, useless as a match in a storm against his power? He shames us. Do any of you wish to join her in song? I implore you, bold reds of... He looks to his assistant, who mouths the name. Lycos. Join her now, if you wish. I can barely breathe past the stone. It chips my molars. Tears stream down my face. No voices rise from the crowd. I see my mother trembling with anger. Kieran clutches his wife close. Nerald stares at the ground. Lauren weeps. They're all here, all quiet, all afraid. Alas, Your Excellency, we find the girl alone in her zealotry, Pegenus declares. Eo has eyes only for me. Tis clear her opinion is an outlier's, an outcast's. Mayhaps we should proceed. Yes. The arch-governor says idly, I have an appointment with Arcos. Hang the rusty bitch lest she continue to howl. Chapter 6 The Martyr For Eo, I do not react. I am anger. I 
I'm hatred. Everything. But I hold her gaze, even as they take her away and fit the noose around her neck. I look up at Bridge, and he quietly takes the gag from my mouth. My teeth will never be the same. Tears build in the tin pot's eyes. I leave him and stumble numbly to the bottom of the scaffold so Eo can see me as she dies. This is her choice. I will be with her to the end. My hands shake. Sobs come from the crowd behind me. The last words, to whom will you speak them before justice is done? Vaginus asks her. He drips sympathy for the camera. I ready for her to say my name, but she does not. Her eyes never leave mine, but she calls her sister out. Dio! The word trembles in the air. She is frightened now. I do not react as Dio climbs the scaffold stairs. I do not understand, but I will not be jealous. This is not about me. I love her, and her choice is made. I do not understand, but I will not let her die knowing anything but my love. Ugly Dan has to help Dio climb the gallows. She's stumbling and senseless as she leans close to her sister. Whatever is said, I do not hear. But Dio lets loose a moan that will haunt me forever. She looks at me as she weeps. What did my wife tell her? Women are crying. Men wipe their eyes. They have to stun Dio to pull her away, but she clings to Io's feet, weeping. There is a nod from the arch-governor, though he doesn't even care enough to watch as, like my father, Io is hanged. Live for more, she mouths to me. She reaches into a pocket and pulls out the hemanthus I gave her. It is smashed and flat. Then loudly she screams to all those gathered, Break the chains! The trapdoor beneath her feet opens. She falls, and for one moment her hair hangs suspended about her head, a flourish of red. Then her feet scramble at air, and she falls. Her slim throat gags, eyes open so wide. If only I could save her from this. If only I could protect her. But the world is cold and hard to me. It does not bend as I wish it to bend. I am weak. I watch my wife die and my hemanthus fall from her hand. The camera records it all. I rush forward to kiss her ankle. I cradle her legs. I will not let her suffer. On Mars, there is not much gravity, so you have to pull the feet to break the neck. They let the loved ones do it. Soon, there is no sound, not even the creaking of the rope. My wife is too light. She was only just a girl. Then the thumping of the fading dirge begins. Fists on chests, thousands, fast like a racing heartbeat. Slower, a beat a second, 
a beat every five, every ten. Then never again, and the mournful mass fades away like dust held in the palm as the old tunnels wail with deep winds. And the golds, they fly away. Eo's father, Lauren, and Kieran sit by my door through the night. They say they are there to keep me company, but they are there to guard me, to ensure I do not die. I want to die. Mother dresses my wound with silk my sister Leana stole from the webbery. Keep the nerve nucleic dry, or you will scar. What are scars? How little they matter. Eo will not see them, so why should I care? She will not run her hand along my back. She will never kiss my wounds. She is gone. I lie in our bed on my back so I can feel the pain and forget my wife. But I cannot forget. She hangs, even now. In the morning, I will pass her on the way to the mines. Soon she will stink and soon she will rot. My beautiful wife shone too bright to live long. I still feel her neck cracking against my hands. They tremble now in the night. There is a hidden tunnel I carved in my bedroom long ago in the rock so I could sneak out as a child. I use it now. I leave out the secret path climbing stealthily down from my home so my kin never see me slip away in the low light. It is quiet in the township. Quiet except for the H.C., which makes my wife die to a soundtrack. They intended to show the futility of disobedience, and they succeed in that. But there is something else in the video. They show my flogging, and Eos, and they play her song throughout. And as she dies, they play it again, which seems to give the video the wrong effect. Even if she were not my wife, I see a martyr. A young girl's pretty song, silenced by the rope of cruel men. Then the HC flashes black for several moments. It has never gone to black before. And Octavia Aulun comes back on with the same old message. It almost seems as though someone has hacked into the broadcast because my wife flickers onto the giant screen again. Break the chains, she cries. And she's gone, and the screen is black. It crackles. The image comes back. She cries it again. Black once more. Standard programming goes up. Then it cuts to her screaming one last time, and then there's me pulling her legs. Then static. The streets are quiet as I make my way to the common. The night shift will be returning soon. Then I hear a noise, and a man steps into the street in front of me. My uncle's face leers at me from the shadows. A single bulb hangs over his head, illuminating the flask in his hand and his tattered red shirt. You are your father's son, little bastard. Stupid and vain. My hands clench. 
Come to stop me, uncle. He grunts. Couldn't stop your father from killing his bloody self. And he was a better bloody man than you. More restraint in him. I step forward. I don't need your permission. Nay, ya little squabber, ya don't. He runs a hand through his hair. Don't do what you're gonna do, though. It'll break your mother. You might think she didn't know you'd slip out. She did. Told me so. Said you were going to go die like my brother, like your girl. If mother knew, she would have stopped me. Nah. She lets us men make our own mistakes. But this ain't what your girl would have wanted. I point a finger at my uncle. You don't know a thing. Not a thing about what she wanted. Eo said I wouldn't understand being a martyr. I will show her I do. Right, oh, he says with a shrug. I'll walk with you then, since your head is full of rocks. He chuckles. We lambdas do love the noose. He tosses me his flask, and I fall into tentative step beside him. I tried to talk your father out of his little protest, you know. Told him words and dance mean as much as dust. Tried squaring up with him. I squabbed that one up. He laid me down cold. He throws a slow right. Comes a time in life when you know a man has his mind set and it's an insult to gainsay. I drink from his flask and hand it back. The swill tastes strange and thicker than usual. Strange. He makes me finish the flask. Yours set? He asks, tapping his head. Course it is. I forget. I taught you how to dance. Stubborn as a pit viper. Wasn't that how you put it? I say quietly, allowing a little smile. I walk in silence for a moment with my uncle. He puts a hand on my shoulder. A sob wants to come out of my chest. I swallow it. She left me, I whisper. Just left me. Must have had a reason. Not a dumb girl, that one. The tears come as I enter the common. My uncle takes me in a one-armed hug and kisses the crown of my head. It's all he can offer. He's not a man made for affection. His face is pale and ghostly. Thirty-five and so old, so tired. A scar twists his upper lip. Grey streaks his thick hair. Tell them allow for me in the veil. He says into my ear, his beard coarse against my neck. Give my brothers a toast and my wife a kiss. Especially Dancer. Dancer? You'll know him. And if you see your gramp and gran, tell them we still dance for them. They won't be long alone. He walks away, then pauses, and without turning says, Break the chains. Here? Here. He leaves me there in the common, with my swaying wife. I know the cameras watch me from the can as I walk up the gallows.
It is metal, so the stairs don't creak. She hangs like a doll. Her face is pale as chalk, and her hair shifts slightly as the ventilators rasp above. When the rope has been cut with the sling blade, I stole from the mines. I grab its frayed end and lower her down gently. I take my wife in my arms and together wend our way from the square to the Webbery. A night shift is working their final hours. The women watch in silence as I carry Eo to the ventilation duct. There I see Liana, my sister. Tall and quiet like my mother, she watches me with hard eyes, but she does nothing. None of the women do. They will not gossip about where my wife is buried. They will not speak, not even for the chocolate given to spies. Only five souls have been buried in three generations. Someone always hangs for it. This is the ultimate act of love. Eos silent requiem. Women begin to cry. And as I pass, they reach to touch Eo's face, to touch mine and help me open the ventilation duct. I drag my wife through the tight metal space, taking her to where we made love beneath the stars, where she told me her plans and I did not listen. I hold her lifeless body and hope her soul sees me in a place where we were happy. I dig a hole near the base of a tree. My hands, covered with the dirt of our land, are red like her hair as I take her hand and kiss her wedding band. I place the outer bulb of the Hymanthus atop her heart and take the inner and put it near my own. Then I kiss her lips and bury her. But I sob before I can finish. I uncover her face and kiss her again and hold my body to hers till I see a red sun rising through the artificial bubble roof. The colours of the place scald my eyes and I cannot stop my tears. When I pull away, I see my headband poking from her pocket. She made it for me to take my sweat. I give it my tears now and take it with me. Kieran strikes me in the face when he sees me back in the township. Lauren cannot speak, while Eo's father slumps against a wall. They think they failed me. I hear Eo's mother's cries. My mother says nothing as she makes me a meal. I don't feel well. It's hard to breathe. Liana comes in late and helps her, kissing me on the head as I eat, lingering long enough to smell my hair. I must use one hand as I move the food from plate to mouth. My mother holds my other hand between her calloused palms. She watches it instead of me, as though remembering when it was small and soft, and wondering how it became so hard. I finish the meal, just as ugly Dan comes. My mother does not leave the table as I'm pulled away. Her eyes stay fixed on where my hand lay. I think she believes if she does not look up, this will not happen. She can only bear so much. They will hang me before a full assembly at nine in the morning. I'm dizzy for some reason. My heart feels funny, slow, 
I hear the arch-governor's words to my wife echo. Is that all your strength? My people sing. We dance. We love. That is our strength. But we also dig. And then we die. Seldom do we get to choose why. That choice is power. That choice has been our only weapon, but it is not enough. They give me my last words. I call Dio up. Her eyes are bloodshot and swollen. She's a fragile thing, so unlike her sister. What were Eo's last words? I ask her, though my mouth moves slowly, oddly. She glances back to my mother, who finally followed, but now shakes her head. There is something they are not telling me. Something they don't want me to know. A secret, held back, even though I am about to die. She said she loved you. I don't believe her. But I smile and kiss her forehead. She can't handle more questions. And I'm dizzy. Hard to speak. I'll tell her you say hello. I do not sing. I am made for other things. My death is senseless. It is love. But Ea was right. I don't understand this. This is not my victory. This is selfish. She told me to live for more. She wanted me to fight. But here I am, dying despite what she wanted, giving up because of the pain. I panic, as suicides do, when they realise their folly. Too late. I feel the door beneath me open. My body falls. Rope flays my neck, my spine creaks. Needles lance my lumbar. Kieran stumbles forward. Uncle Nero shoves him away. With a wink, he touches my feet and pulls. I hope they do not bury me. Part Two Reborn There is a festival where we wear the faces of demons to ward evil spirits from our dead in the veil. The faces sparkle with fool's gold. Chapter Seven Lazarus I do not see Eo in death. My kin believe we see our loved ones when we pass on. They wait for us in a green veil, where wood fire smoke and the scent of stews thicken the air. There is an old man with dew on his cap, who makes safe the veil, and he stands with our kin, waiting for us along a stone road, beside which sheep graze. They say the mist there is fresh, and the flowers sweet, and those who are buried pass along the stone road faster. But I do not see my love. I do not see the veil. I see nothing but phantom lights in the darkness. 
I feel pressure, and I know, as would any miner, that I am buried beneath the earth. I lose a soundless scream. Dirt enters my mouth. Panic fills me. I cannot breathe, cannot move. The earth hugs me till finally I claw my way free, feel air, gasp oxygen, pant and spit dirt. It is minutes before I look up from my knees. I crouch in an abandoned mine, an old tunnel, long deserted, but still connected to the ventilation system. It smells of dirt. A single flare burns beside my grave, splaying weird shadows over the walls. It singes my sight, like the sun did as it rose over Eo's grave. I'm not dead. The realization takes longer in coming than one might have thought. But there's a bloody wound around my neck where the rope cut the skin. There's dirt in the lashes on my back. Still, I'm not dead. Uncle Nero didn't pull my feet hard enough, but surely the tin pots would have checked, unless they were lazy. Not a stretch to think that, but something else is at play. I was too woozy when I walked to the gallows. I feel something in my veins even now, a lethargy, as though I've been drugged. Nero did this. He drugged me. He buried me. But why? And how would he escape being caught when he pulled my body down? When a low rumbling comes from the darkness beyond the flare, I know I will have answers. A tumbler, like a metal beetle on six wheels, crawls over the crest of a long tunnel. Its front grille hisses steam as it comes to a stop in front of me. Eighteen lights singe my vision. Shapes exit the sides of the vehicle, cutting across the glare of the headlights to grab me. I'm too stunned to resist. Their hands are calloused like miners, and their faces are covered with Oktobernacht demon masks. Yet they move me gently, guiding instead of forcing me into the tumbler's hatch. Inside the tumbler, the globe light is red and bloody. I sit in a worn metal bucket seat across from the two figures that fetched me from my grave. A female's mask is pale white and gold, horned like a cacodemon. Her eyes glitter darkly out from the eye holes. The other figure is a timid man. He's willowy and quiet, seemingly frightened of me. His snarling bat-face mask can't conceal his shy glances or the way in which he hides his hands, a trait of the frightened, as Uncle Nerol always claimed when he taught me to dance. You're sons of Ares, aren't you? I guess. The weakling flinches, while the woman's eyes are mocking. And you're Lazarus, she says. I find her voice cold, lazy. It plays with the ears as a cat plays with a caught mouse. I am Darrow. Oh, we know who you are. Don't tell him anything, Harmony, the weakling gibbers. Dancer didn't tell us to discuss anything with him till we get home. Thank you, Ralph. Harmony sighs at the weakling and shakes her head. After realising his error, the weakling shifts uncomfortably in his bucket seat, 
but I've stopped paying him any mind. Here, the woman is king. Unlike the weaklings, her mask is like that of an old crone, one of the witches of Earth's fallen cities, who made soup from the marrow of children's bones. You're a mess. Harmony reaches to touch my neck. I grab her hand and squeeze. Her bones are brittle as hollow plastic in a hell diver's hand. The weakling reaches for his thumper, but Harmony motions him to calm down. Why am I not dead? I ask. After the hanging, my voice is like gravel dragged over metal. Because Ares has a mission for you, little hell diver. She winces as I squeeze her hand. Ares. My mind flashes to images of bomb blasts, disembodied limbs, chaos. Ares. I know what sort of mission he'll want. I'm too numb to even know what I'll say when he asks. My mind is on Eo, not this life. I am a shell. Why could I not have stayed in the ground? May I have my hand back now? Harmony asks. If you take off your mask. Otherwise, I'm keeping it. She laughs and strips away her mask. Her face is day and night. The right side, a ragged and distended mess of skin running and folding together in smooth scar rivers. A steam burn. A familiar sight, but not on women. Rare for a woman to be on a drill team. Yet it is the unburned side of her face that startles. She is beautiful. More beautiful even than Eo. Skin soft, pale as milk. Bones prominent and delicate. Yet she looks so cold, so angry and cruel. Her bottom teeth are uneven and her nails poorly maintained. She has knives in her boots. I can tell by the way she flinched down when I grabbed her hand. The weakling, Ralph, is unremarkably ugly. Dark face like a hatchet, teeth all ajar and grimy. He stares out the tumbler's window hatch as we drive through abandoned tunnels till we reach lit, paved tunnel roads meant for fast moving. I do not know these Reds, and though they have the red sigil emblazoned on their hands, I do not trust them. They are not of Lambda or Lycos. Might as well be Silvers. Eventually, I glimpse other utility vehicles and tumblers out the hatch. I don't know where we are, yet... That bothers me less than the swelling sadness in my chest. The farther we ride, and the more time I'm given to my thoughts, the worse the pain becomes. I finger my wedding band. Eo is still dead. She's not waiting for me at the end of this ride. Why did I survive when she did not? Why did I pull her feet so hard? Could she have lived too? My guts feel like a black hole. A terrible weight compresses my chest, and I ache to just jump from the tumbler into the path of a utility vehicle. Death is easy when you've already tried to find it. But I don't jump. I sit with Harmony and Ralph.
Ea wanted more for me. I clenched the scarlet headband in my fist. The tunnel road widens slightly when we come to a checkpoint manned by dirty tin pots and worn-down gear. The electric gate isn't even charged. They let the tumbler ahead of us through after scanning a panel on its side. Then it's our turn, and I'm shifting uncomfortably in my seat along with Ralph. Harmony chuckles disdainfully as the grey-haired tin pot scans the side of the tumbler and waves us through the gate. We have a passcode. No brains in slaves. Mine tin pots are idiots. It's the grey elite or the obsidian monsters you watch out for. But they don't waste their time down here. I'm trying to convince myself that this all is not some gold trick, that Harmony and Ralph are not enemies. When we pull off the main tunnel road into a cul-de-sac of utility warehouses not much larger than the common. Harsh sulfur lights hang down from utility fixtures. Half the bulbs are burned out. One flickers on and off above a garage near a warehouse marked with a queer symbol done in strange paint. We stare into the garage. The door closes and Harmony motions for me to get out of the tumbler. Home, sweet home, she says. Now, time to meet Dancer. Chapter 8 Dancer Dancer looks through me. He's near enough my height, which is rare. But he's thick and terribly old, maybe in his forties. White swirls from his temples. A dozen twin scars mark his neck. I've seen their sort before. Pit viper bites. The arm on the left side of his body hangs limp, Nerve damage. But his eyes arrest me. They are brighter than most, swirling with patterns of true red, not rust red. He has a fatherly smile. You must be wondering who we are, Dancer says gently. He's big, but his voice is easy. Eight reds are with him, all men except for Harmony, and they watch him with adoring eyes. All miners, I think each with the scarred, strong hands of our kind. They move with the grace of our people. No doubt some were jumpers and boasters, as we call those who run along the walls and perform the flips at dances. Any hell divers? He's not wondering. Harmony takes time with the words, rolling them along her tongue. She squeezes Dancer's hand as she passes around him to look at me. Bloody damn runt pegged it an hour ago. Ah. Dancer smiled softly at her. Of course he did. Otherwise Ares wouldn't have asked us to risk extracting him here. Do you know where here is, Darrow? It doesn't matter, I murmur. I look around at the walls, the men, the swaying lights. Everything is so cold, so dirty. What matters is... I fail to finish my own sentence. A thought of Eo severs my voice. What matters is that you want something from me. 
Yes, that matters, says Dancer. His hand touches my shoulder. Well, that can wait. I'm surprised you're standing. The wounds on your back are sullied. You'll need anti-back and skin rest to stop the scarring. Scars don't matter, I say. I stare at the two blood drops that trickle from my shirt tail to the floor. My wounds reopened when I climbed from the grave. Eo is dead, yes? Yes, she is. We couldn't save her, Darrow. Why not? I ask. We just couldn't. Why not? I repeat. I glare up at him, glare at his followers, and hiss the words one by one. You saved me. You could have saved her. She is the one you would have wanted, the bloody damn martyr. She cared about all this. Or does Ares only need sons, not daughters? Martyrs are a dime a dozen. Harmony yawns. I slip forward like a serpent and grab her around the throat. Waves of anger ripple through my face till it goes numb and I feel tears welling behind my eyes. Scorchers whine as they're primed around me. One jams into the back of my neck. I feel its cold muzzle. Let her go, someone shouts. Do it, boy. I spit at them, shake Harmony once and toss her aside. She crouches on the floor, hacking, and then a knife glimmers in her hand as she rises. Dancer stumbles between us. Stop it, both of you. Darrow, please. Your girl was a dreamer, boy. Harmony spits at me from Dancer's other side. As worthless as a flame over water. Harmony, shut your bloody damn gob. Dancer barks. Put those damn things away. The scorchers go quiet. A tense silence follows, and he leans in close to speak with me. His voice lowers. My breath is fast. Darrow, we're friends. We're friends. Now, I can't answer for Ares, why he couldn't help us save your girl. I am just one of his hands. I can't wash away the pain. I can't bring your wife back to you. But, Darrow, look at me. Look at me, Helldiver. I do. Right into those blood-red eyes. I can't do many things, but I can bring you justice. Dancer goes to Harmony and whispers something, likely telling her that we're to be friends. We won't be. But I promise not to choke her, and she promises not to stab me. She is quiet as she guides me from the others through cramped metal hallways to a small door opened by twisting a knob. Our feet echo over rusting walkways. The room is small and littered with tables and medical supplies. She has me strip and sit on one of the cold tables so she can clean my wounds. Her hands are not gentle as they scrub dirt from my lacerated back. I try not to scream. You're a fool, she says as she scrapes rock out of a deep wound. 
I wheeze in pain and try to say something, but she jams her finger into my back, cutting me short. Dreamers like your wife are limited, little hell diver. She makes sure I don't speak. Understand that. The only power they have is in death. The harder they die, the louder their voice, the deeper the echoes. But your wife served her purpose. Her purpose? It sounds so cold, so distant and sad. As though my girl of smiles and laughter was meant for nothing but death. Harmony's words carve into me, and I stare at the metal grating before turning to look into her angry eyes. Then what is your purpose? I ask. She holds up her hands, caked with dirt and blood. The same as yours, little hell diver. To make the dream come true. After Harmony scours my back of dirt and gives me a dose of antibac, she takes me to a room next to humming generators. The squat quarters are lined with cots and a liquid flush. She leaves me to it. The shower is a terrifying thing. Though it's gentler than the air of the flush, half the time I feel like I'm drowning, the other half I find a mixture of ecstasy and agony. I turn the heat nozzle till steam rises thick and pain lances my back. Clean. I dress in the strange garments they've set out for me. It's not a jumpsuit or homespun weave like I'm used to wearing. The material is sleek, elegant, like something someone of a different colour would wear. Dancer comes into the room when I'm half-dressed. His left foot drags behind him, almost as useless as his left arm. Yet still, he's an impressive man, thicker than Barlow, handsomer than me despite his age and the bite scars on his neck. He carries a tin bowl and sits on one of the cots which creaks against his weight. We saved your life, Darrow. So, your life is ours. Do you not agree? My uncle saved my life, I say. The drunk? Dancer snorts. The best thing he ever did was tell us about you. And he should have done that when you were a boy, but he kept you a secret. He's worked for us since before your father's death as an informer, you know. Is he hanged now? Now that he pulled you down? I should hope not. We gave him a jammer to shut off their ancient cameras. He did the work of a ghost. Uncle Nero. Head talk, but drunk as a fool. I always thought him weak. He still is. No strong man would drink like him or be so bitter. But he never earned the disdain I gave him. Yet, why did he not save Eo? You act like my uncle bloody damn owed you, I say. He owes his people. People! I laugh at the term. There is family. There is clan. There may even be township and mine, but people, people, and you act as though you're my representative, as though you have a right to my life. But you're just a fool, all you sons of Ares. My voice is withering in its condescension, 
Fools who can do nothing but blow things up, like children kicking pit vipers' nests in rage. That's what I want to do. I want to kick, to lash out. That's why I insult him. That's why I spit on the suns, even though I have no real cause to hate them. Dancer's handsome face curls into a tired smile, and it's only then that I realise how feeble his dead arm really is, thinner than his muscular right arm, bent like a flower's root. But despite the withered limb, there's a twisted menace to Dancer, a less obvious sort than that in harmony. It comes out when I laugh at him, when I scorn him and his dreams. Our informants exist to feed us information and to help us find the outliers so we can extract the best of red from the mines. So you can use us. Dancer smiles tightly and picks up the bowl from the cart. We will play a game to see if you are one of these outliers, Darrow. If you win, I will take you to see something few low reds have seen. Low reds. I've never heard the term before. And if I lose? Then you are not an outlier, and the goals win yet again. I flinch at the notion. He holds out a bowl and explains the rules. There are two cards in the bowl. One bears the reaper's scythe. The other bears a lamb. Pick the scythe and you lose. Pick the lamb, and you win. Except I notice his voice fluctuate when he says this last bit. This is a test, which means there is no element of luck to it. It must then be measuring my intelligence, which means there is a kink. The only way the game could test my intelligence is if the cards are both sides. That's the singular variable that could be altered. Simple. I stare into Dancer's handsome eyes. It is a rigged game. I'm used to these, and usually I follow the rules. Just not this time. I'll play. I reach into the bowl and pull free a card, taking care that only I can see its face. It's a scythe. Dancer's eyes never leave mine. I win, I say. He reaches for the card to see its face, but I shove it into my mouth before he can take hold of it. He never sees what I drew. Dancer watches me chew on the paper. I swallow and pull the remaining card from the bowl and toss it at him. A scythe. The lamb card simply looked too good not to eat, I say. Perfectly understandable. The red in his eyes twinkles, and he sets the bowl aside. Warmth of character returns to him, as if he'd never been a menace. Do you know why we call ourselves Sons of Ares, Darrow? To the Romans, Mars was the god of war, a god of military glory, defense of the hearth and home, honorable and all. But Mars is a fraud. He is a romanticised version of the Greek god Ares. Dancer lights a burner and hands a second one to me. 
The generators buzz freshly, and the burner fills me with a similar haze as its smoke curls through my lungs. Ares was a bastard, an evil patron of rage, violence, bloodlust, and massacre, he says. So by naming yourselves after him, you're pointing to the truth of things within the society. Cute. Something like that. The Gauls would prefer for us to forget history, and most of us have. Or were never taught it. But I know how gold rose to power hundreds of years ago. They call it the Conquering. They butchered any who contested them, massacred cities, continents. Not many years ago, they reduced an entire world to ash. Rhea. The Ash Lord nuked it to oblivion. It was with Ares' wrath that they acted. And now... We are the sons of that wrath. Are you Ares? I ask, voice hushed. Worlds. They've destroyed worlds. But Rhea is so much farther out from Earth than Mars. It's one of Saturn's moons, I think. Why would they nuke a world all the way out there? No, I'm not Ares. He answers. But you belong to him. I belong to no one but Harmony and my people. I'm like you, Daryl. Born to a clan of earth diggers, miners from the colony Tyros. Only I know more of the world. He frowns at my impatient expression. You think me a terrorist? I am not. No? I ask. He leans back and takes a drag on his burner. Imagine there was a table covered with fleas, he explains. The fleas would jump and jump to heights unknown. Then a man came along and upturned a glass jar over the fleas. The fleas jumped and hit the top of the jar and could go no farther. Then the man removed the jar and yet the fleas did not jump higher than they had grown accustomed, because they believed there to still be a glass ceiling. He breathes out smoke. I see his eyes glow through it, like the ember tip of his burner. We are the fleas who jump high. Now, let me show you just how high. Dancer takes me down a rickety corridor, to a cylindrical metal lift. It's a rusty thing, heavy, and it squeals as we rise steadily upward. You should know that your wife didn't die in vain, Darrow. The Greens who helped us hijacked the broadcast. We hacked in and played the true version over every HC on our planet. The planet, the clans of the hundred thousand mining colonies and those in the cities, have heard your wife's song. You tell tall tales, I grumble. There aren't half that many colonies. He ignores me. They heard her song, and they call her Persephone already. I flinch and look over at him. No, that is not her name. She is not their symbol. She doesn't belong to these brigands with trumped-up names. 
Her name is Eo, I sneer, and she belongs to Lycos. She belongs to her people now, Darrow, and they remember the old tales of a goddess stolen from her family by the god of death. Yet even when she was stolen, death could not forever keep her. She was the maiden, the goddess of spring, destined to return after each winter. Beauty incarnate can touch life, even from the grave. That's how they think of your wife. She's not coming back, I say, to end the conversation. It is futile debating with this man. He just rolls on. Our lift comes to a halt, and we exit into a small tunnel. Following it, we come to another lift of sleeker metal, better maintained. Two suns guarded with scorches. Soon we're going upward again. She will not come back, but her beauty, her voice, will echo until the end of time. She believed in something beyond herself, and her death gave her voice power it didn't have in life. She was pure, like your father. We, you and I, he touches my chest with the back of his index finger, are dirty. We are made for blood, rough hands, dirty hearts. We are lesser creatures in the grand scheme of things, but without us men of war, no one except those of Lycos would hear Eo's song. Without our rough hands, the dreams of the pure hearts would never be built. Cut to the point, I interrupt. You want me for something. You tried to die before, Dancer says. Do you want to do so again? I want... What do I want? I want to kill Augustus, I say, remembering the cold golden face as it commanded my wife's death. It was so distant, so uncaring. He will not live while Eo lies dead. I think of Magistrate Paginus and Ugly Dan. I will kill them too. Vengeance, then, he sighs. You said you could give it to me. I said I would give you justice. Vengeance is an empty thing, Darrow. It will fill me. Help me kill the Arch-Governor. Darrow, you set your sights too low. The lift picks up speed. My ears pop. Up and up and up. How far does this lift rise? The Arch-Governor is merely one of the most important goals on Mars. Dancer hands me a pair of tinted glasses. I put them on tentatively as my heart tugs in my chest. We're going to the surface. You must widen your gaze. The lift stops. The doors open. And I am blind. Behind the glasses, my pupils constrict to adjust to the light. When, at last, I'm able to open my eyes, I expect to see a massive glowing bulb or a flare, some source to the light. But I see nothing. The light is ambient from some distant, impossible source. 
Some human instinct in me knows this power, knows this primal origin of life. The sun. Daylight. My hands tremble, and I step with Dancer from the elevator. He does not speak. I doubt I would hear him, even if he did. We stand in a room of strange makings, unlike any I've imagined. There is a substance underfoot, hard but neither metal nor rock. Wood. I know it from the HC pictures of Earth. A carpet of a thousand hues spreads over it, soft under my feet. The walls around are of red wood, carved with trees and deer. Soft music plays in the distance. I follow the tune deeper into the room, toward the light. I find a bank of glass, a large wall that lets the sun in to shine across the length of a squat black instrument with white keys, which plays itself in a tall room with three walls and a long bank of glass windows. Everything is so smooth. Beyond the instrument, beyond the glass, lies something I don't understand. I stumble toward the window, toward the light, and fall to my knees, pressing my hands against the barrier. I moan one long note. Now you understand, Dancer says. We are deceived. Beyond the glass, sprawls a city. Chapter 9 The Lie The city is one of spires, parks, rivers, gardens, and fountains. It is a city of dreams, a city of blue water and green life on a red planet that is supposed to be as barren as the cruelest desert. This is not the Mars they show us on the HC. This is not a place unfit for man. It is a place of lies, wealth, and immense abundance. I gasp at the grotesquerie. Men and women fly. They shimmer gold and silver. Those are the only colours I see in the sky. Their grav boots carry them about like gods, the technology so much more graceful than the clumsy grav boots our keepers wear in the mines. A young man soars past my window, his skin burnished, his hair fluttering loosely behind him as he carries two bottles of wine toward a nearby garden spire. He's drunk, and his wobbling through the air reminds me of a time I saw Drillboy's air system break down in his fry suit. He gasped for oxygen as he died, twitching and dancing. This gold laughs like a fool and does a mirthful spin. Four girls, not at all older than me, fly after him in a merry hunt, giddy and giggling. Their tight dresses seem to be made of liquid and drip around their young curves. They look my age, in a way, but seem so bloody foolish. I do not understand. Beyond them, ships flit through the air along beacon-lit avenues. Small ships, rip-wings, as Dancer calls them, 
escort the most intricate of air yachts. On the ground I see men and women moving through wide avenues. There are automobiles, colour-coded lamps along the lower levels, yellow, blue, orange, green, pink, a hundred shades of a dozen colours to form a hierarchy so complex, so alien, I scarcely think it a human concept. The buildings through which the paths wind are huge, some of glass, some of stone. But many remind me of those I've seen on the H.C., those buildings of the Romans, made this time for gods instead of man. Beyond the city, which stretches nearly as far as I can see, Mars's red and barren surface is scarred with the green of grass and struggling woods. The sky above is blue, stained with stars. The terraforming is complete. This is the future. It should not be this way for generations. My life is a lie. So many times has Octavia Aulun told us of Lycos that we are the pioneers of Mars, that we are the brave souls who sacrifice for the race, that soon our toils for humanity will be over. Soon the softer colours will join us, once Mars is habitable. But they have already joined us. Earth has come to Mars, and we, pioneers, were left below, slaving toiling, suffering to create and maintain the foundation of this, this empire. We are, as Eo always said, the society's slaves. Dancer sits in a chair behind me and waits till I can speak. He says a word and the windows darken. I can still see the city, but the sun no longer blinds my eyes. Behind us, the squat instrument called a piano whispers a dreary melody. They told us we were man's only hope, I say quietly, that earth was overcrowded, that all the pain, all the sacrifice was for mankind. Sacrifice is good, Obedience, the highest virtue. The laughing gold has reached the nearby spire. He surrenders to the girls and their kisses. Soon they will drink their wine and have their amusement. Dancer tells me how it is. Earth ain't overcrowded, Daryl. Seven hundred years back, they expanded to their moon, Luna. Because it is so difficult to launch spacecraft through Earth's gravity and atmosphere, Luna became Earth's port through which it colonised the moons and planets of the solar system. Seven hundred years? I gasp, feeling suddenly very stupid. On Luna, efficiency and order became the chief concern. In space, every set of lungs must have a purpose, so... The first colours were gradually instituted, and the reds were sent to Mars to gather the fuel for mankind. The mining colonies were established there, since Mars has the highest concentration of helium-3, 
which is used to terraform the other worlds and moons. At least that wasn't a lie. Are they terraformed? The other moons and worlds? The small moons, yes. Most of the planets. Obviously not the gas giants. He sits in a chair. It was in the early stages of the colonization, when the wealthy of Luna began to realize Earth was nothing more than a drain on their profits. Even as Luna colonized the solar system, they were taxed and owned by corporations and countries on Earth. But those same entities could not enforce their ownership. So, Luna rebelled, the goals in their society against the countries of Earth. Earth fought back, and Earth lost. That was the conquering. Economics turned Luna into the power and port of the solar system. And the society began to change into what it is today. An empire built on red backs. I watch the colours move about below. They are small, hard to distinguish from our height. And my eyes are not used to seeing so far or seeing so much light. Reds were sent to Mars 500 years ago. The other colours came to Mars about 300 years back while our ancestors still toiled beneath the surface. They lived in the para-terraformed cities, cities with bubbles of atmosphere over them, while the rest of the world terraformed slowly. Now, the bubbles are coming down, and the world is fit for any man. High reds live as maintenance workers, sanitation, grain harvesters, assembly workers. Low reds are those of us born beneath the surface, the truest slaves. In the cities, the reds who dance disappear. Those who voice their thoughts vanish. Those who bow their heads and accept the rule of the society and their place in society, as all colours do, live on with relative freedom. He exhales a cloud of smoke. I feel outside my body, as though I'm watching the colonisation of worlds, the transformation of the human species through eyes that are not my own. The gravity of history drew my people into slavery. We are the bottom of the society, the dirt. Eo always preached something of the like, though she never knew the truth. If she had known this, how much more passionately would she have spoken? This existence is worse than she ever could have imagined. It is not hard to understand the conviction with which the sons of Ares fight. Five hundred years. I shake my head. This is our bloody damn planet. Through sweat and toil it was made so, he agrees. Then what will it take to take it back? Blood. Dancer smiles at me like a township alley cat. There's a beast behind this man's fatherly smiles. He was right. It comes to violence. She was the voice, like my father. So what am I to be? 
the avenging hand. I cannot grasp that someone so pure, so full of love, would want me to play this part. But she did. I think of my father's last dance. I think of my mum, Leanna, Kieran, Lauren, Eo's parents, Uncle Nerol, Barlow, everyone I love. I know how hard they will live and how quickly they will die. And I now know why. I look down at my hands. They are what Dancer called them. Cut, scarred, burned things. When Eo kissed them, they grew gentle for love. Now that she is gone, they grow hard for hate. I clench them into fists till my knuckles are white as ice caps. What is my mission? Chapter 10 The Carver I grew up with a quick-smiling girl of fifteen, so in love with her young husband that when he was burned in the mines and his wound festered, she sold her body to a gamma in return for antibiotics. She was stronger than her husband. When he grew well and discovered what had been done on his behalf, he killed the gamma with a sling blade snuck from the mines. Easy to guess what happened after that. Her name was Lana, and she was Uncle Nero's daughter. She lives no longer. I think of her as I watch the HC in what Harmony called the penthouse, as Dancer makes preparations. I flip through the many channels with the twitch of my finger. Even that Gamma had a family. He dug like me. He was born like me, went through the flush like me, and he never saw the sun, either. He was just given a little packet of medicine by the society. And look at the effect. How clever of them. How much hate they create between people who should be kin. But if the clans knew what luxury exists on the surface, if they knew how much had been stolen from them, they would feel the hatred I feel. They would unite. My clan is a hot-tempered breed. What would a rebellion of theirs look like? Probably like Dago's burner. Burning hot, but fast till all was ash. I asked Dancer why the sons streamed my wife's death to the mines. Why not instead show the low reds the wealth of the surface? That would sow anger. Because a rebellion now would be crushed in days. Dancer explained. We must take a different path. An empire cannot be destroyed from without till it is destroyed from within. Remember that. We're empire breakers, not terrorists. When Dancer told me what I am to do, I laughed. I do not know if I can do it. I am a speck. A thousand cities span the face of Mars. Metal behemoths sail between the planets in fleets carrying weapons that can crack the mantle of a moon. On distant Luna, buildings rise seven miles high. There the sovereign consul, 
Octavia O'Loon, rules with her imperators and praetors. The Ash Lord who made the world of Rhea cinders is her minion. She controls the twelve Olympic knights, legions of peerless scarred, and obsidians as innumerable as the stars. And those obsidians are only the elite. The grey soldiers prowl the cities, ensuring order, ensuring obedience to the hierarchy. The whites arbitrate their justice and push their philosophy. Pinks pleasure and serve in high-colour homes. Silvers count and manipulate currency and logistics. Yellows study the medicines and sciences. Greens develop technology. Blues navigate the stars. Coppers run the bureaucracy. Every colour has a purpose. Every colour props up the golds. The HC shows me colours I did not know existed. It shows me fashion, ludicrous and seductive. There are biomodifications and flesh implants, women with skin so smooth and polished, breasts so round, hair so glossed that they appear a different species from Eo and all the women I've ever known. The men are freakishly muscular and tall, their arms and chests bulge with artificial strength, and they flaunt their muscle like girls showing off new toys. I am a lambda helldiver of Lycos. But what is that compared with all this? Harmony is here. Time to go. Dancer says from the door. I want to fight, I tell him, as we ride the gravlift down with Harmony. They've doctored my sigils so that they are brighter to match the high reds. I wear the loose garb of a high red and carry a pack of street scrubbing equipment. There's dye in my hair and contacts in my eyes, also I look a brighter shade of red. Less dirty. I don't want this mission. Worse, I can't do it. Who could? You said you would do anything that needed to be done, Dancer says. But this... The mission he has given me is madness. Yet, that's not why I'm frightened. My fear is that I will become something Ea would not recognize. I'll become a demon from our Octobernoct stories. Give me a scorcher or a bomb. Let someone else do this. We brought you out for this, Harmony sighs, and only this. It has been Ares' greatest goal since the sons were born. How many others have you brought out? How many others have tried what you're asking me to try? Harmony looks over at Dancer. He says nothing, so she answers impatiently on his behalf. Ninety-seven have failed the carving. That we know of. Bloody damn. I curse. And what happened to them? They died, she says blandly. Or they asked for death. Maybe Nerol should have let me hang. I try to laugh. Darrow, come here. Come. He grabs my shoulder 
and pulls me in. Others may have failed, but you'll be different, Darrow. I feel it in my bones. My legs go shaky when I first look up at the night sky and the buildings stretching around me. I slip into vertigo. I feel like I'm falling, like the world is off its axis. Everything is too open. So much so that it seems as though the city should tumble into the sky. I look at my feet, look at the street, and try to imagine that I'm in the tunnel roads from the townships to the common. The streets of Yorkton, the city, are a strange place at night. Luminescent balls of light line the sidewalks and streets. HC videos run like liquid streams along parts of the avenue in this high-tech sector of the city, so most walk upon the moving pathways or ride in public transportation with their heads crooked down like cane handles. Garish lights make the night almost as bright as day. I see even more colours. This sector of the city is clean. Teams of red sanitation workers scour the streets. Its roads and walking paths stretch in perfect order. There's a faint ribbon of red where we are to walk, a narrow ribbon in a broad street. Our path does not move like the others. A copper woman walks along her wider path. Her favourite programmes play wherever she walks, unless she strides beside a gold, in which case all the HCs go quiet. But most golds do not walk. They are permitted grav boots and coaches, as are any of the coppers, obsidians, greys and silvers with the proper licence, though the licensed boots are horribly shoddy things. An advertisement for a blister cream appears on the ground in front of me. A woman of strangely slender proportions slinks out of a red lace robe. Suitably naked, she then applies the cream to a place in her body where no woman has ever before gotten a blister. I blush and look away in disgust because I've only ever seen one woman naked. You'll want to forget your modesty, Harmony advises. It'll mark you worse than your colour. It is disgusting, I say. It's advertising, darling. Harmony purrs condescendingly. She shares a chuckle with Dancer. An elderly gold soars overhead, older than any human I've ever seen. We lower our heads as she passes. Reds up here have to get paid. Dancer explains when we are alone. Not much, but they're given money and enough treats to make them dependent. What money they have, they spend on goods they're made to think they need. Same with all the drones, Harmony hisses. So, they're not slaves, I say. Oh, they're slaves, Harmony says. Enslaved by their suckling on the teats of those bastards. Dancer struggles to keep up, so I slow down as he speaks. Harmony makes an irritated noise. Golds structure everything to make their own lives easier. They have shows produced to entertain and placate the masses. They give monies and handouts to make generations dependent on the seventh day of each new Earth month 
They create goods to grant us a semblance of liberty. If violence is the gold sport, manipulation is their art form. We pass into a low-colour district, where there are no designated walking paths. The storefronts are lined with electronic green ribbons. Some stores peddle a month of alternate reality in an hour's time for a week's wages. Two small men with quick green eyes and bald heads studded with metal spikes and tattooed with shifting digital codes suggest for me a trip to some place called Osgiliath. Other stores offer banking services or biomodifications or simple personal hygiene products. They shout things I don't understand, speaking in numbers and acronyms. I have never seen such commotion. Brothels lined with pink ribbon make me blush, as do the women and men in the windows. Each has a flashing price tag playfully hanging from a thread. It's a moving number that suits demand. A lusty girl calls to me as Dancer explains the idea of money. In Lycos, we traded only in goods and swill and burners and services. Some blocks of the city are reserved for the use of high colours. Access to these districts depends on badges of warrant. I cannot simply walk or ride into a gold or copper district, but a copper can always slum in a red district, frequenting a bar or brothel. Never the other way around. Even in the wild free-for-all that is the bazaar, a riotous place of commerce and noise and air heavy with scents of bodies and food and automobile exhaust. We walk deep into the bazaar. I feel safer in the back alleys here than I did in the open avenues of the high-tech sectors. I do not yet like vast spaces, and seeing the stars above frightened me. The bazaar is darker, though lights still shine and people still bustle. The buildings seem to pinch together. A hundred balconies form ribs in the alleyway's heights. Walkways crisscross above, and all around us lights blink from devices. It is more humid here, dirty, and I see fewer tin pots patrolling. Dancer says there are places in the bazaar where even an obsidian should not go. In the densest places of man, humanity most easily breaks down, he says. It is strange being in a crowd where no one knows your face or cares for your purpose. In Lycos, I would have been jostled by men I'd grown up with, run across girls I'd chased and wrestled with as a child. Here, other colours slam into me and offer not even a faint apology. This is a city, and I do not like it. I feel alone. This is us, Dancer says, gesturing me into a dark doorway where an electronic flying dragon shimmers on the surface of the stone. A massive brown with a mod job for a nose stops us. We wait for the metal nose to snort and sniff. He's bigger than Dancer. Die in his hair, he growls at me, taking a whiff of my hair. A roster this one be, 
A scorcher peeks out from his belt. He's got a shiv behind his wrist. I can tell by the way his hand moves. Another thug joins him on the stoop. He's got jewellery processors on his eyeballs, little red rubies that flicker when light catches them just right. I stare at the jewellery and the brown eyes. What's what with this one? He wanna go? The thug spits. Keep eyeing me and I'll take your liver to sell at market. Thinks I'm challenging him. I'm actually just curious about the rubies, but when he threatens me I smile at him and give a little wink like I would in the mines. A knife flips into his hand. Rules are different up here. Boy, keep playing. Dare you. Keep playing. Mickey is expecting us. Dancer tells the man. I watch Ma Job's friend as he tries to stare me down like I'm some sort of child. Ma Job smirks and leers at Dancer's leg and arm. Don't know a Mickey, cripple. He looks to his friend. You know a Mickey? No, ain't got no Mickey here. What a relief. Dancer sets a hand on the scorcher under his jacket. Since you don't know Mickey, you won't have to explain to Mickey why my generous friend couldn't reach him. He moves to his jacket so they can see a glyph etched on the butt of his gun. The helmet of Ares. When he sees the glyph, Mod Job gulps and says, Squab! Then they fall over each other to open the door. g g gotta take your shooters! Three others move toward us, scorchers half up. Harmony opens her vest and shows them a bomb strapped to her stomach. She rolls a blinking detonator over her nimble red fingers. Nah, we're good. Modjob swallows. Nods. You're good. The interior of the building is dark. It is a darkness thick with smoke and throbbing lights, much like my mine. Music pulses. Glass cylinders stand as pillars amongst chairs and tables where men drink and smoke. Inside the glass, women dance. Some writhe in water, their strange webbed toes and sleek thighs moving to the music. Others gyrate to the thudding melody in environs of golden smoke or silver paint. More thugs guide us to a back table that seems made of iridescent water. A slim man reclines there with several creatures of the strangest sort. I thought them monsters at first, but the closer I look, the more confused I become. They are humans, but they've been made differently. Carved differently. A pretty young girl, no older than Eo, sits looking at me with emerald eyes. The wings of a white eagle sprout from the flesh of her back. She's like something torn from a fever dream, except she should have been left there. Others like her lounge in the smoke and strange lights. Mickey, the carver, is a scalpel of a man with a crooked smile and black hair that hangs like a puddle of oil down one side of his head. A tattoo of an amethyst mask wreathed in smoke winds around his left hand. 
It is the sigil of a violet, the creatives. So it was always shifting. Other violet symbols stain his wrists. He's playing with a little electronic puzzle cube that has changing faces. His fingers are fast, thinner and longer than they should be, and there are twelve of them. Fascinating. I've never seen an artist before, not even on the HC. They're as rare as whites. Ah, dancer, he sighs, without looking up from his cube. I could hear you from the drag in your step. He squints at the cube in his hands. And harmony? I could smell you from the door, my darling. Terrible bomb, by the by. Next time you need real sneaky craftsmanship, look Mickey up. Yes? Mick, Dancer says, and seats himself at the table of dream things. I can tell Harmony is growing a bit dizzy from the smoke. I'm used to breathing worse stuff. Now, Harmony, my love, Mickey purrs. Have you given up on this cripple yet? Come to join my family, perhaps? Yes? Get yourself a pair of wings? Claws on your hands? A tail? Horns? You'd look fierce in horns, especially wrapped in my silken bedsheets. Carve yourself a soul and you might get a shot, Harmony sneers. Ah, if it takes being a red to have a soul... On this I shall pass. Down to business. So abrupt, my darling. Conversation should be considered an art form, or like a grand dinner, each course in its own time. His fingers fly over the cube. He's matching them based on their electronic frequency, but he's a bit too slow to match them before they change. He still hasn't looked up. We have a proposition for you, Mickey, Dancer says impatiently. He glances down at the cube. Mickey's smile is long and crooked. He does not look up. Dancer repeats himself. Strays to the main course then, eh, cripple? Well, propose away. Dancer swatched the cube out of Mickey's hands. The table goes silent. The thugs bristle behind us, and the music continues to pound. My heart is steady, and I eye the scorcher on the thigh of the nearest thug. Slowly, Mickey looks up and cuts the tension with a crooked smile. What's what, my friend? Dancer nods to Harmony, and she slips a small box over to Mickey. A present? Yeah, shouldn't have. Mickey examines the box. Cheap stuff. Such a tasteless colour red. Then he slides the box open and gasps in horror. He recoils from the table, slamming the box shut. You stupid, sodden bastards! What is this? You know what they are. Mickey leans forward and his voice becomes one lone hiss. You brought them here? How did you get them? Are you insane? Mickey glances around at his followers, who peer down at the box, wondering what has so unbalanced their master. Insane? We're bloody damn manic. Dancer smiles. 
and we need them attached. Soon. Attached? Mickey starts laughing. To him. Dancer points at me. Leave! Mickey screams at his entourage. Leave, you simpering, sycophantic miscreants! I'm talking to you, you freaks! Get out! When his entourage has scurried away, he opens the box and dumps the contents onto the table. Two golden wings, the sigils of a gold, clatter onto the table. Dancer sits. We want you to make our boy here into a gold. Chapter 11 Mad You're mad! Thank you. Harmony smiles. I assume you misspoke. Pray repeat yourself, Mickey says to Dancer. Ares will pay you more money than you've ever seen if you can successfully attach those to my young friend here. Impossible, Mickey declares. He looks over to me, measuring me for the first time. He's unimpressed, despite my height. I don't blame him. Once, I thought myself a handsome man of the clans. Strong, muscular. Up here, I'm pale and wiry, young and scarred. He spits onto the table. Impossible. Harmony shrugs. It's been done before. By whom, I ask? He turns his head. No, they cannot bait me. Someone talented, Harmony taunts. Impossible. Mickey leans even farther forward. His thin face has not a single pore. There's DNA matching him with the wings, cerebral extraction. Did you know they have subdermal markings in their skulls? Of course you didn't. Data chips attached to their frontal cortexes to substantiate their caste. Then there's synapse linkage, molecular bonding, tracking devices, the quality control board. Then there's the trauma and the associative reasoning. Say we make his body perfect. There's still one problem. We cannot make him smarter. One cannot make a mouse a lion. He can think like a lion, Dancer says plainly. Oh, he can think like a lion, Mickey snickers. And Ares wants it done. Dancer's voice is cold. Ares, Ares, Ares. It doesn't matter what Ares wants, you baboon. Never mind the science. His physical and mental dexterity is probably daft as a damn bowl cleaner's, and his tangibles won't match. He's not their species, he's a roster. I'm a hell diver of Lycos, I say. Mickey raises his eyebrows. Oh, a hell diver, clear the halls, a hell diver, you say. He mocks me, but he squints suddenly as if he's seen me before. My whipping was televised. Many know my face. Bugger me blind, he mutters. You recognize my face? I confirm. He pulls up the viral video and watches it, looking back and forth between it and me. Aren't you 
dead with that girlfriend of yours. Wife, I snap. Mickey's jaw muscles flicker under his skin as he ignores me. You're making a saviour, he accuses, looking over at Dancer. Dancer, you bastard. You're making a messiah for your gory damn cause. I never looked at it that way. My skin prickles uneasily. Yes, is Dancer's answer. If I make him a gold, what will you do with him? He will apply to the Institute. He will be accepted. There he will excel well enough to reach the ranks of the peerless Scard. As a Scard, he can train to be a Praetor, a Legate, a Politico, a Quester. Anything. He will advance to a prime position. The primer, the better. From there, he will be in a position to do as Ares requires for the cause. Mother of God, Mickey murmurs. He stares at Harmony, then at Dancer. You want him to be a bona fide peerless scarred, not a bronzy. A bronze is a faded gold, of the same class, but looked down on for inferior appearance, lineage, and capabilities. Not a bronze, Dancer confirms. Or a pixie. We don't want him to go to nightclubs and eat caviar like the rest of those worthless golds. We want him to command fleets. Fleets! You lot are mad. Mad! Mickey's violet eyes settle on mine after a long moment. My boy, they are murdering you. You are not a gold. You cannot do what a gold can do. They are killers born to dominate us. Have you ever met one of the Oriot? Sure, they may look all pretty and peaceful now, but do you know what happened in the conquering? They are monsters. He shakes his head and laughs wickedly. The Institute is not a school. It's a culling ground where the goals go to hack at one another till the strongest in mind and body is found. You will die. Mickey's cube lies at the opposite end of the table. I walk over to it without saying a word. I don't know how it works, but I know the puzzles of the earth. My boy, what are you doing? Mickey sighs in pity. That is not a toy. Have you ever been in a mine? I ask him. Ever used your fingers to dig through a fault line at a 12-degree angle while doing the math to accommodate 80% rotation power and 55% thrust so you don't set off a gas pocket reaction while sitting in your own piss and sweat and worrying about pit vipers that want to bury you into your gut to lay their eggs? This is... His voice fades as he sees how the claw drill taught my fingers to move, how the grace with which my uncle taught me to dance is converted into my hands. I hum as I work. It takes a moment, maybe a minute or three, but I learn the puzzle and then solve it easily according to frequency. There seems another level to it, mathematical riddles. I don't know the math, 
but I know the pattern. I solve it, and four more puzzles. Then it changes once more in my hands, becoming a circle. Mickey's eyes widen. I toss the device back to him. He stares at my hands while working his own twelve fingers. Impossible, he murmurs. Evolution, Harmony replies. Dancer smiles. We will need to discuss price. Chapter 12 The Carving My life becomes agony. My sigils are attached to the metacarpus in each hand. Mickey removes the old red sigils and cultivates new skin and bone over the wounds. Then he sets to installing a stolen subdermal data chip into my frontal lobe. I am told the trauma killed me, and they had to restart my heart. I've died twice, then. They say I was in a coma for two weeks, but to me it was nothing but a dream. I was in the veil with Eo. She kissed me on the forehead, and then I woke and felt the stitches and the pain. I lie in bed as Mickey tests me. He has me move marbles from one container into other containers coded by colours. I do this for what seems a lifetime. We are forming synapses, my darling. He tests me with word puzzles and tries to make me read, but I don't know how to read. You will have to learn that for the Institute, he giggles. My dreams are cruel things to wake from. In them, Eo comforts me, but when I wake, she is nothing but a fleeting memory. I am hollow as I lie in Mickey's makeshift medical cell. An ion germ killer buzzes next to my bed. Everything is white, yet I can hear the thumping of music from his club. His girls change my diapers and empty my piss bags. A girl who never speaks bathes me three times a day. Her arms are willowy, her face soft and sad, as when I first saw her sitting with Mickey at his liquid table. The wings that curl outward from her back are bound with a crimson ribbon. She never meets my eyes. Mickey continues to make me develop synapse connections as he repairs the scar tissue from my neural surgery. He's all laughs and smiles and lingering touches on my forehead as he calls me his darling. I feel like one of his girls, one of the angels he sculpted for his own pleasure. But we must not be satisfied only with the brain, he says. There is much work to be done on this ruster body of yours if we want to make you into an iron gold. And that is, the golden ancestors, they call them the iron golds. They were hard men. They stood lean and fierce upon their battle cruisers as they laid waste to the armies and republic fleets of earth. What creatures they were! 
his eyes go distant. It took generations of eugenics and biological tampering to make them. Forced Darwinism. He's quiet for a moment, and it seems an anger builds in him. They say carvers will never duplicate the beauty of the golden man. The Board of Quality Control taunts us. Personally, I do not want to make you a man. Men are so very frail. Men break. Men die. No. I've always wished to make a god. He smiles mischievously as he does some sketches on a digital pad. He spins it around and shows me the killer I will become. So, why not carve you to be the god of war? Mickey replaces the skin of my back and the skin of my hands where Eo applied bandages to my burns. This, he says, is not to be my real skin. It is only a homogeneous base layer. Your skeleton is weak because Mars's gravity is 0.3 of Earth's, my delicate little bird. Also, you have a diet deficient in calcium. Gold standard bone density is five times stronger than naturally occurring bone density on Earth, so we will have to make your skeleton six times stronger. You must be of iron if you want to last the Institute. This'll be fun. For me, not you. Mickey carves me again. The agony is beyond language or comprehension. Someone has to dot God's eyes. The next day, he reinforces the bones of my arms. Then he does my ribs, my spine, my shoulders, my feet, my pelvis and my face. He also alters the tensile qualities of my tendons and muscle tissue. Mercifully, he does not let me wake from this last surgery for several weeks. When I do wake, I see his girls around me applying new cultures of flesh and kneading my muscles with their thumbs. Slowly, my skin begins to heal. I am a patchwork of flesh quilt. They begin feeding me synthesized protein, creatine, and growth hormone to promote muscle growth and tendon regeneration. My body trembles in the nights and itches as I sweat through new, smaller pores. I cannot use pain medication strong enough to numb the agony because the altered nerves must learn to function with the new tissue and my altered brain. Mickey sits beside me on my worst nights, telling me stories. It's only then that I like him. Only then that I think he is not some monster cooked up by this perverted society. My profession is to create, little bird, he says one night as we sit together in the darkness. Light from the machines bathes his face in queer shadows. When I was young, I lived in a place they called The Grove. It was what you might think of 
as a circus culture. We had spectacles every night, celebrations of colour and sound and dance. Sounds terrible, I mutter sarcastically. Just like the mines. He smiles softly, and his eyes find that distant place. I suppose it may seem a plush life to you. Yet there was a madness to the grove. They made us take pills. Pills that could make us fly between the planets on wings of dust to visit the fairy kings of Jupiter and the deep mermaids of Europa. My mind always separate from body. No peace to it. No end to the madness. He clapped his hands then. And now I carve the things I saw in my fever dreams, just as they always wished. I dreamed of you, I think. In the end, I suppose they'll wish I hadn't dreamed at all. Was it a good dream? I ask. What? The one with me. No. No, it was a nightmare. One of a man from hell, lover of fire. He's silent for a spell. Why is it so horrible? I ask him. Life. All this. Why do they need to make us do this? Why do they treat us like we're their slaves? Power. Power isn't real. It's just a word. Mickey ponders silently. Then he shrugs his thin shoulders. Mankind was always enslaved, they'll say. Freedom enslaves us to lust, to greed. Take freedom away, and they give me a life of dreaming. They gave you a life of sacrifice, family, community. And society is stable. There's no famine, no genocide, no great wars. And when the goals fight, they obey rules. They are noble about it when the great houses bicker. Noble? They lied to me, said I was a pioneer. And would you have been happier if you knew you were a slave? Mickey asks. No, none of the billion low reds beneath Mars would be happy if they knew what the high reds knew, that they are slaves. So is it not better to lie? It is better to not make slaves. When I am ready, he inserts a force generator into my sleeping tube to simulate increased gravity on my frame. I've never known pain like this. My body aches. My bones and skin and muscles scream against the pressure and the change till I'm on medication that turns the scream into a dull, forever moan. I sleep for days. I dream of home and family. Every night I wake after seeing Io hang yet again. She sways across my mind, 
I miss her warmth in bed beside me, even though they give me an H.C. immersion mask for distraction. Gradually, I'm weaned from the pain medication. My muscles still aren't used to the density of my bones, so my existence becomes a melodic ache. They begin to feed me real food. Mickey sits on the edge of my cot, stroking my hair well into the nights. I don't care that his fingers feel like spider legs. I don't care that he thinks I am some piece of art. His art. He gives me something called a hamburger. I love it. Red meats and thick creams and breads and fruits and vegetables make my diet. I have never eaten so well. You need the calories, Mickey coos. You have been so strong for me. Eat well. You deserve this food. How am I doing? I ask. Oh, the hard parts are over, my darling. You are a brilliant boy, you know. They have shown me the tapes from the other procedures where other carvers tried this. Oh, how clumsy the other carvers were. How weak the other subjects. But you are strong and I am brilliant. He taps my chest. Your heart is like that of a stallion's. I've never glimpsed one like it before. You were bitten by a pit viper when you were young, I assume. I was. Yes. I thought so. Your heart had to adjust to counteract the effects of the poison. My uncle sucked most of the poison out when I was bitten, I say. No. Mickey laughs. That's a myth. The poison cannot be sucked out. It still runs through your veins, forcing your heart to be strong if you want to continue to live. You are something special. Just like me. Then, I will not die in here. I manage. Mickey laughs. No, no. We are beyond that now. There will be pain, but we are past the threat of mortality. Soon we will have made man into God, red into gold. Even your wife would not recognize you. That is all I've ever feared. When they take my eyes and give me ones of gold, I feel dead inside. It's a simple matter of reconnecting the optic nerve to the donor's eyes, Mickey says. A simple thing he's done a dozen times for cosmetic purposes. The hard part was the frontal lobe surgery, he says. I disagree. There is the pain, yes, but with the new eyes, 
I see things I once could not. Elements are clearer, sharper, and more painful to bear. I hate this process. All it is is a confirmation of the superiority of the golds. It takes all this to make me their physical equal. No wonder we serve them. It's not mine. None of this is mine. My skin is too soft, too lustrous, too faultless. I don't know my body without scars. I don't know the back of my own hands. Eo would not know me. Mickey takes my hair next. Everything has changed. It is weeks of physical therapy. Walking slowly around the room with Evie, the winged girl, I am left to my own thoughts. Neither one of us cares much to speak. She has her demons, and I have mine. So we are quiet and calm, except when Mickey comes to coo about what pretty children we would make together. One day, Mickey even brings an antique zither for me, with a soundboard of wood instead of plastic. It is the kindest thing he's ever done. I do not sing, but I play the solemn songs of Lycos, the traditional ones of my clan that no one beyond the mine will ever have heard. He and Evie sit with me sometimes, and though I think Mickey a wretched sort of creature, I feel as though he understands the music. It's beauty. It's importance. And afterward, he says nothing. I like him then, too. At peace. Well, you're a bit sterner than I first measured. Harmony says to me one morning, as I wake. Where have you been? I ask, opening my eyes. Finding donors. She flinches as she sees my irises. The world does not stop because you are here, she says. We had work to do. Mickey says you can walk. I am growing stronger. Not strong enough, she surmises, looking me over. You look like a baby giraffe. I'll fix that. Harmony takes me beneath Mickey's club to a grungy gymnasium lit by sulfurous bulbs. I like the feel of the cold stone on my bare feet. My balance has returned, and it's a good thing because Harmony does not offer me her arm. Instead, she waves me to the center of the dark gymnasium. We bought these for you, Harmony says. She points to two devices in the center of the dark space. The contraptions are silver and remind me of the suits knights wore in past centuries. The armor hangs suspended between two metal wires. They are concentration machines. I slide my body into the machine. Dry gel hugs my feet, my legs, 
my torso and arms and neck, till only my head is free. The machine is built to resist my movements, yet it responds even to the tiniest stimuli. The idea of building muscle is to exercise it, which is nothing more than using the muscle intensely enough to create microscopic tears in the tissue fibre. This is the pain one feels in the days after an intense workout. Torn tissue, not lactic acid. When the muscle repairs the tears, it builds on itself. This is the process the concentration machine is built to facilitate. It is the devil's own invention. Harmony slides the device's faceplate over my eyes. My body is still in the gym, but I see myself moving across the rugged landscape of Mars. I'm running, pumping my legs against the concentration machine's resistance, which increases according to Harmony's mood or the location of the simulation. Sometimes I venture to the jungles of Earth, where I race panthers through the underbrush or I take to the pocked surface of Luna before it was populated. But always I return home to Mars to run across its red soil and jump over its violent ravines. Harmony sometimes accompanies me in the other machine, so I have someone to race. She pushes me hard, and sometimes I wonder if she's trying to break me. I don't let her. If you're not vomiting during a workout, you're not trying she says. The days are excruciating. My body is a misery of aches from the arches of my feet to the back of my neck. Mickey's pinks massage me every day. There is no better pleasure in the world, but three days after beginning my training with Harmony, I wake up vomiting in my bed. I shiver and shake and hear cursing, there's a science to this, ya wicked little witch, Mickey is shouting. He will be a work of art, but none of you pour water on the paint before it's set. Do not ruin him. He must be perfect, Harmony says. Dancer, if he is weak in any way, the other children will butcher him like a fresh-made drill boy. You are butchering him, Mickey whines. You are ruining him. His body cannot handle the muscle breakdown. He has not objected to the treatment, Harmony reminds him. Because he does not know he can object, Mickey says. Dancer, she has no understanding of the biomechanics involved in this. Do not let her ruin my boy. He is not your boy, Harmony sneers. Mickey's voice becomes softer. Dancer. Darrow is like a stallion, one of the old stallions of earth. Beautiful beasts that will run as hard as you push them. They will run and run and run until they don't, until their hearts explode. There is silence for a moment. Then Dancer's voice. Ares once told me that it is the hottest fire that forms the sternest steel. Keep pushing the boy. I resent two of my teachers after overhearing their words. Mickey for thinking me weak, Dancer for thinking me his tool. Only Harmony doesn't anger me. Her voice, her eyes, seethe with an anger I feel in my own soul. 
She may have Dancer now, but she lost someone. The unscarred part of her face tells me that. She's no schemer, like Dancer, or his master, Ares. She's like me, brimming with a rage that makes all else so inconsequential. That night I cry. Over the next days, they feed me drugs to expedite the protein synthesis and muscle regeneration. After my muscle tissue has recovered from the initial trauma, they train me harder than before. Even Mickey, though his eyes are underlined with dark rings and his thin face is sallow, he does not object. He has grown distant these last weeks, no longer telling me stories, as though he fears what he has created, now that I'm taking fuller shape. Harmony and I speak very little to one another, but there is a subtle shift in our relationship, some sort of primal understanding that we are the same sort of creature. But as my body grows stronger, Harmony can no longer keep up, even though she's a hardened woman of the minds. That is only after two weeks. The distance between our capabilities continues to grow. After another month, she is like a child to me. Even then, I do not plateau. My body begins to change. I thicken. My muscles become strong and corded in the concentration machine, which I now supplement with weight workouts in high grav. Gradually, strength builds. My shoulders grow broader, rounded. I see tendons emerge in my forearms. A tense mass of hard muscles bind my torso like armour. Even my hands, which were always stronger than the rest of me, grow more powerful in the concentration machine. With a simple squeeze, I can pulverize rock. Mickey jumped up and down when he saw that. No one shakes my hand any longer. I sleep in high grav, so that when I move about on Mars, I feel fast, quick, more agile than ever before. My fast twitch fibers form. My hands move like lightning, and when they hit the gymnasium's human-shaped punching bag, it leaps like it's been struck by a scorcher. I can punch through it now. My body is becoming that of a gold, one of the prime stock, not a pixie, not a bronze. This is the body of the race that conquered the solar system. My hands are freaks. They're smooth, tanned, and dexterous, as any golds should be but there is a power in them out of proportion with the rest of me. If I am a blade, they are my edge. My body is not all that changes. Before I sleep, I drink a tonic laden with processing enhancers and speed listen to The Colors, The Iliad, Ulysses, Metamorphosis, The Theban Plays, The Draconic Labels, Anabasis, and restricted works like The Count of Monte Cristo. Lord of the Flies, Lady Casterly's Penance, 1984, and The Great Gatsby. I wake knowing 3,000 years of literature and legal code and history. My last day at Mickey's comes two months after my last surgery. Harmony smiles with me after our workout as she drops me off in my room. Music thuds in the background. Mickey's dancers are going full tilt tonight.
I'll get you your clothing, Darrow. Dancer and I want to have dinner with you to celebrate. Evie will clean you up. She leaves me alone with Evie. Today, as always, her face is as quiet as the snow I've seen on the HC. I watch her in the mirror as she cuts my hair. The room is dark, but for the light over the mirror. It shines from above, so she looks like an angel. Innocent and pure. But she is not innocent. Not pure. She's a pink. They breed them for pleasure, for the curves of their breasts and hips, for the tautness of their stomachs and the plump folds of their lips. Yet, she is a girl, and her spark has not yet gone out. I remember the last time I failed to protect one like her. And me? It's hard to look at myself in the mirror. I'm what I know the devil to be. I am arrogance and cruelty, the sort of man who killed my wife. I am gold, and I am as cold as it. My eyes shine like ingots. My skin is soft and rich. My bones are stronger. I feel the density in my lean torso. When Evie is done cutting the golden hair, she stands back and stares at me. I can feel her fear, and I suffer it in myself. I am no longer a human. Physically, I've become something more. You're beautiful, Evie says quietly, touching my golden sigils. They're much smaller than her feather wings. The circle is set in the center of each hand's backside. Wings swoop back along the flesh, curving like scythes up the sides of my wrist bones. I look at Evie's white wings and know how ugly she must think them to be on her back, how she must hate them. I want to say something kind to her. I want to make her smile, if she can. I would tell her that she is beautiful, but she's lived a life of men saying that for some gain or another. She wouldn't believe a boy like me. And I don't believe her words to me. Eo was beautiful. I still remember the flush of blood in her cheeks as she danced. She had all the raw colours of life, the crude beauty of nature. I am the human concept of beauty. Gold made soft and supple into man's form. Evie kisses the top of my head before darting away and leaving me alone to watch the HC in the mirror's reflection. I did not notice her slip a feather from her wings into my breast pocket. I'm tired of watching the HC. I know their history now. And I'm learning more every day, but I'm tired of being inside, tired of listening to Mickey's club thump its music and smelling the minty leaves he smokes. Tired of seeing the girls he brings into his family, only to sell away when someone bids high enough. Tired of seeing all the full eyes go hollow. This is not like us. There is no love, no family or trust. 
This place is sick. My boy, you look fit to captain a fleet of torchships, Mickey says from the door. He slides in, smelling like his burners. His spindly fingers take Evie's feather from my breast pocket and roll it back and forth over his knuckles. He taps the feather to each of my golden sigils. Wings are my favorite. Aren't they yours? They go to mankind's better aspirations. He comes up behind me as I sit staring into the mirror. His hands go to my shoulders and he speaks down at my head, resting his chin upon it as though I am his property. It's easy to see he thinks I am. My left hand goes to the sigil on my right, lingering there. I told you you were brilliant. Now it's your time to fly. You give the girls wings, but you don't let them fly, do you? I ask. It's impossible for them to fly. They are simpler things than you. And I can't afford to buy a license to have grav boots, so they dance for me, Mickey explains. But you, you'll fly, won't you, my brilliant boy? I stare at him but say nothing. His lips slice into a smile because I unnerve him. I always have. You're frightened of me, I tell him. He laughs. Am I? Oh, am I now, my boy? Yes. You're used to knowing what's what. You think like the rest of them. I nod to the HC's reflection. Things are set in stone. Things are well ordered. Red's at the bottom, everyone else standing on our backs. Now you're looking at me, and you're realizing that we don't bloody damn like it down there. Red is rising, Mickey. Oh, you've got far to go. I reach up and grab his wrist so that he cannot move. He stares at me in the mirror's reflection, struggling against my hold. Nothing is stronger than a hell diver's grip. I smile into the mirror, locking my golden eyes with his violet ones. He smells like fear, primal terror, like a mouse cornered by a lion. Be kind to Evie, Mickey. Don't make her dance. Give her a plush life, or I'll come back to pull your hands off your body. Chapter 13 Bad Things Mateo is a tall wisp of a pink with long limbs and a lean, beautiful face. He is a slave, or was a slave for carnal pleasures. Yet he walks like a water lord. Beauty in his step, manners and grace in the wave of his hand. He has a penchant for wearing gloves and sniffing at even the smallest bit of dirt. Body maintenance has been his life's purpose, so he doesn't find it strange when he helps me apply a hair follicle killer to my arms, legs, torso, and privates. But I do. When we're done, we're both cursing, me from the sting, him from the punch I threw at his shoulder. I accidentally dislocated it just by punching it. I still don't know my own strength. And they do make their pinks fragile. 
If he is the rose, I am the thorns. Bald as a toddler, you frenetic little baby. Matteo sighs as properly as one can say such a thing. Just as the newest lunar fashion requires. Now, with a bit of eyebrow sculpting, oh, how your brows are like fungus-nibbling caterpillars, and nose hair eradication, cuticle readjustment, teeth whitening on those slick new chompers, which, if I may say, are yellow as mustard dappled with dandelions. Tell me, have you ever brushed your new teeth? And blackhead removal, which will be like probing for helium-3, toner adjustment and melatonin injections, and you'll be prim and rose properish. I snorted the foolishness of it all. I already look like a gold. You look like a bronze, a fool's gold. One of the low-bred bastards who look more khaki than gold. You must be perfect. You're a bloody damn hard lark, Mattel. He smacked me. Mind yourself. A gold would rather die than use that slithering mind slang. Gory damn, or gory, and slag instead of squab. Every time you say bloody or bloody damn, I will smack not your gob, but your mouth. And if you say squab or gob, I will kick you in the scrotum, which I do know my way around. As I will do, if you do not get rid of that horrible accent. You sound like you were born in a gory damn dumpster. He frowns and sets his hands on his narrow hips. And then we will have to teach you manners. And culture, culture, goodman. I have manners. By the maker, we are so, so going to have to make you forswear that brogue as well as the cursing. He pokes me as he lists out my flaws. Might try adopting some manners of your own, butt boy, I growl. He pulls off one of my gloves and slaps me across the face and takes a bottle in hand and holds it to my throat. I laugh. You'll have to get your Helldiver reflexes back soon to go with that gawky new body. I eye the bottle. Going to poke me to death? It is a polyene sword, Goodman. A razor, in other words. One moment it is soft as hair, but with an organic impulse it turns harder than diamond. It is the only thing that will cut through a pulse shield. One moment a whip, the next moment a perfect sword. It is the weapon of a gentleman, a gold. For any other colour to carry it is death. It's a bottle, you daft. He jams me in the throat so that I gag. And it was your manners that forced me to draw my razor and challenge you, thereby precipitously ending your impudent life. You may have fought with fists for honour in that hovel you called home. You were a bug then, an ant. An oriot fights with a blade at the slightest provocation. They have honour the likes of which you know nothing about. Your honour was personal. Theirs is personal, familial, and planetary. That is all. They fight for higher stakes, and they do not forgive when the bloodletting is done, least of all the peerless scarred. Manners, Goodman. Manners will protect you until you can protect yourself from my shampoo bottle. Matteo, I say, rubbing my throat. 
Yes, he sighs. What is shampoo? Another stint in Mickey's carving room might have been preferable to Matteo's tutelage. At least Mickey was afraid of me. The next morning, Dancer tries to rename me. You'll be the son of a relatively unknown family from the far asteroid clusters. Soon the family will be dead in a shipping accident. You will be the lone survivor, and the only heir to their debts and poor status. His name, your name, will be Caius Ao Andromedus. Slag that, I reply. I will be Darrow or I will be nothing. He scratches his head. Darrow is an odd name. You have made me give up the hair father gave me, the eyes mother left me, the colour I was born to, so I will keep the name they granted me and you can make it work. I liked it better when you didn't act like a gold. Dancer grumbles. Now, the key to dining like an Orient is to eat slowly, Matteo says, as we sit together at a table in the penthouse where Dancer first showed me the world. You'll find yourself subjected to many Trimalchian feasts. On such occasions, there will be seven courses. Appetizer, soup, fish, meat, salad, dessert, and libations. He gestures to a small tray laden with silverware and explains the various methods for eating with each. Then he tells me, if you must urinate or defecate during the meal, you hold it in. Controlling one's bodily functions is expected of an aureate. So these namby-pamby gold brows aren't allowed to shit? And when they do, I wonder, does it come out gold? Matteo slaps my cheek with his glove. If you're so eager to see red again, let your tongue slip in their presence, Goodman, and they'll be happy to remind you what colour all men bleed. Manners! and control. You have neither. He shakes his head. Now, tell me what this fork is used for. I want to tell him it's used for picking his arse. But I sigh and give him the correct answer. Fish. But only if the bones are still in the dish. And how much of this fish are you to eat? All of it, I guess. No! He cries. Were you even listening? His small hands clutch his hair and he takes a deep breath. Must, I remind you, there are bronzes, there are golds, and there are pixies. He leaves the rest for me to finish. Pixies have no self-control, I remember aloud. They take in all the treats of power but to piss all to merit them. They are born and they chase pleasure. Righto? Prime. Not righto. Now, what is expected of a gold? Of a peerless scarred? Perfection. Which means? My voice is cold as I mimic a gold's accent. It means control, Goodman. Self-control. I am permitted to indulge in vices so long as I never permit them to usurp control. If there is a key to understanding aureates, it is found in understanding control in all its forms. 
eat the fish, leave twenty percent to indicate its deliciousness did not overpower my resolve to make slaves of my taste buds. So you were listening after all. Dancer finds me the next day, as I practice my Oriot accent in the penthouse's hollow mirror. I can see a three-dimensional depiction of my head in front of me. The teeth move strangely, catching my tongue as I try to roll my words. I am still becoming used to my body, even months after the last of the surgeries. My teeth are larger than I initially thought them. It also doesn't help that the gold brows speak as though they've had golden shovels stuck up their bloody damn stink holes, so I find it easier to speak like one if I see that I am one. The arrogance comes easier. Soften your oars, Dancer tells me. He sits attentively as I read from a datapad. Pretend as though there is an H in front of each one. His burner reminds me of home, and I remember how Arch-Governor Augustus seemed in Lycos. I remember the man's serenity, his patient condescension, his smirk. Elongate the elves. Is that all the strength you have? I say into the mirror. Perfect! Dancer praises with a humorous shiver. He claps his good hand on his knee. Soon I'll be dreaming like I'm a bloody damn gold-brow too, I say in disgust. You shouldn't say bloody damn. Say gory or gory damn instead. I glare at him. If I saw myself on the street, I would hate me. I would want to take a sling blade and carve me from pucker to stinker and then burn the remains. Eo would puke to look at me. You're young still. Dancer laughs. God, I sometimes forget how young. He takes a flask out of his boot and downs some before tossing it to me. I laugh. Last time I drank, Uncle Nerol drugged me. I take a drink. Maybe you've forgotten what the mines are like. I'm not young. Dancer frowns. I didn't mean to insult Darrow. It's just... You understand what you're to do. You understand why you're to do it. But you still lose perspective and judge yourself. Right now, you probably get sick looking at your golden self, right-o? Right-o there. I drink deep from the flask. But you're only playing a part, Darrow. He twitches his finger and a blade slips from the ring on his finger. My reflexes are back and quick enough that I might have shoved it up into his throat if I thought he meant me harm, but I let him swipe the blade across my index finger. Blood wells out. Red blood. Just in case you need reminding what you really are. Smells like home, I say, sucking on the finger. Mum used to make blood soup out of the pit vipers. Not half bad, to the truth of it. You dip flax bread in it and sprinkle it in okra blossom. How'd you know? I ask. My mum did the same. Dancer laughs. We'd have it at dance tide, or before the laurel tide when they'd announce the winner. Always squab and gamma. Here's the gamma, I laugh, and finish another swig. 
Dancer watches me. The smile eventually slips from his face, and his eyes grow cold. Mateo's to teach you to dance tomorrow. Thought you'd be the one doing that, I say. He thumps his bad leg. Been a while since I've done that. Best dancer in Oikos. I could move like a deep tunnel draft. All our best dancers were hell divers. I was one for several years, you know. I figured. Did you now? I gesture to his scars. Only a hell diver would be bit so many times without drill boys around to help pull the vipers off. Been bitten too. Got a bigger heart for it, at least. He nods, and his eyes go distant. Fell into a nest when fixing to repair a nodule on the claw drill. They were up in one of the ducts, and I didn't see them. They were the dangerous kind. I see where he's going with this. They were babies, I say. He nods. They have less venom, much less than their parents, so they weren't burrowers bent on laying eggs inside of me. But when they bit, they used all the evil in them. Fortunately, we had anti-venom with us, traded some gammas for it. In Lycos, we had no anti-venom. He leans toward me. We're tossing you into a nest of baby vipers, Darrow. Mark that. Admissions testing is three months from now. I will be tutoring you in conjunction with your lessons from Matteo. But if you do not quit judging yourself, if you continue to hate your guys, then you will fail the test. Or worse, you'll pass it and then slip up and be found out while at the Institute. And everything will be squabbed. I shift in my seat. For once, there's another fear in me. Not of becoming something Ea would not recognise, but a more primal fear. A mortal fear of my enemies. What will they be like? I already see their sneers, their contempt. Doesn't matter if they find me out. I clap Dancer's knee. They've taken what they can from me already. That is why I am a weapon you can use. Wrong, Dancer snaps. You're of use because you're more than a weapon. When your wife died, she didn't just give you a vendetta. She gave you her dream. You're its keeper, its maker. So don't be spitting anger and hate. You're not fighting against them, no matter what Harmony says. You're fighting for Eo's dream, for your family that is still alive, your people. Is that Aerie's opinion? I mean, is it yours? I'm not Aerie's, Dancer repeats. I don't believe him. I've seen the way his men look at him, how even Harmony pays him deference. Look into yourself, Darrow, and you'll realise that you are a good man who will have to do bad things. My hands are unscarred and feel strange while I clench them till the knuckles turn that familiar shade of white. 
See, that's what I don't get. If I'm a good man, then why do I want to do bad things? Chapter 14 Andromedus Matteo cannot teach me to dance. He shows me what each of the five form dances of the Orient looks like, and we are through. More emphasis is put on your partner in gold dances than the dances my uncle taught me, but the movements are similar. I perform all five with greater skill than he can manage. To show off, I blindfold myself and perform each dance again, in succession, without music, by memory. Uncle Nero taught me to dance, and with a thousand nights of filling time with nothing but dance and song, I am masterful in recording the motions of my body, even this new body. It can do things my old one could not. The muscle fibres contract differently, the tendons stretch farther, the nerves fire faster. There's a sweet burn in the muscles as I flow through the movements. One dance, the Palemides, has a nostalgic feel. Matteo has me hold a baton as I move about in swirling steps, baton arm outstretched as though fighting with a razor. Even as my body moves, I hear the echoes of the past. I feel the vibrations of the mine, the scent of my clan. I have seen this dance before, and I perform it better than all the others. It is a dance my body is made for, one so very similar to the illegal reaping dance. When I finish, Matteo is angry. Is this some sort of game? He snarls. What do you mean? He glares at me and taps his foot. You have never been beyond the mines? You know that answer, I reply. You have never fought with a sword or shield? Yes, I have. I've also captained star cruisers and dined with praetors. I laugh and ask what this is about. This is no game, Darrow. Did I say it was? I'm confused. What did I do to provoke him? I make a mistake in laughing to relieve the tension. You laugh? Boy, this is the society with which you tangle. And you laugh? They are not some distant idea. They are cold reality. If they find out who you are, they will not hang you. His face looks lost as he says it, as though he knows only too well. I know this. He ignores me. The obsidians will catch you and give you to the whites, and they will take you to their dark cells, and they will torture you. They will pull out your eyes and cut away anything that makes you a man. They have more sophisticated methods, but I wager information won't be their only aim. They have chemicals for that if they want. Soon after you tell them everything, they will kill me, Harmony, Dancer, and they will kill your family with flesh peelers and stomp on the heads of your nieces and nephews. These are the things they don't put on the H.C. These are the consequences when the rulers of planets are your enemies. Planets, boy! 
I feel a chill creep into my bones. I know these things. Why does he keep hammering me with them? I'm already frightened. I don't want to be, but I am. My task is swallowing me whole. So I ask you again, are you who Dancer says you are? I pause. Ah. I assumed that trust ran deep with the sons of Ares, that they were of one mind. Here is a crack, a division. Matteo was Dancer's ally, but not a friend. Something in my dancing made him think twice. Then I realize it. He didn't see Mickey carve me. He is taking this all on faith that I was once a red, and how difficult that must be. Something in my dancing made him think I was born to this. Something to do with that last dance. The one they call the Palemides. I am Darrow, son of Dale, Lambda's hell diver of Lycos. I've never been anyone else, Matteo. He crosses his arms. If you are lying to me, I do not lie to low colours. Later that evening, I researched the dances I performed. Palemides is Greek for child of war. It is the dance that reminded me so much of Uncle Nerol's dances. It is the gold's dance of war, the one they teach young children to prepare them for the motions of martial warfare and the use of the razor. I watch a hollow of golds in battle, and my heart falls into my stomach. They fight like a summer song, not like the thunderous, monstrous obsidians, but like birds banking into a fresh wind. They fight in pairs, swerving, dancing, killing, ripping through a field of obsidian and grey as though they were at play with scythes, and all the bodies that fell to them were like stalks of grain that sprayed blood instead of sallow chaff. Their golden armour shines. Their razors flash. They are gods, not men. And I mean to destroy them. I sleep poorly in my bed of silk that night. Long after kissing Eos Hymanthus blossom, I fall asleep and dream of my father and what it would have been like to have known him into manhood, to have learned to dance from him instead of from his drunken brother. I clutch the scarlet headband in my hand as I wake, holding it as dearly as I clutch my wedding band, all those things that remind me of home. Yet they are not enough. I am afraid. Dancer finds me at my morning breakfast. You'll be happy to know... Our hackers have spent two weeks hacking into the Board of Quality Control's cloud to change Caius Ao Andromedus's name to Darrow Ao Andromedus. Good. That's all you have to say. Do you know how much... Never mind. He shakes his head and gives a chuckle. Darrow. It's so... off-colour. There will be raised eyebrows. I shrug to conceal my fear. So I'll butcher their gory damn test and they'll care less than a lick.
spoken like a gold. The next day, Matteo takes me by ship to the stables of Ishtar, not far from Yorkton. It's a place by the sea, where green fields stretch over rolling hills. I've never been in so wide a place. I've never seen the land curve away from me. Never seen a true horizon, or animals so terrifying as the beasts Matteo arranged for our lesson. They stomp and stamp and snort, flicking their tails and bearing their monstrous yellow teeth. Horses. I've always been scared of horses, despite Eo's story of Andromeda. They're monsters, I whispered to Matteo. Nevertheless, he whispers back, it is the gentleman's way. You must ride well, lest you find yourself embarrassed in some formal situation. I look at the other gulls riding past. There are only three at the stables today, each accompanied by a servant like Matteo, pinks and browns. A situation like this one? I hiss at him. Fine. Fine. I point to a massive black stallion with hooves that paw the ground. I'll take that beast. Matteo smiles. This one is more your speed. Matteo gives me a pony. A big pony, but a pony. There is no social interaction here. The other riders trot past and tip their heads to say good day, but that is all. So their smiles are enough for me to know how ridiculous I look. I do not take to riding well. And I take to it even more poorly when my pony bolts as Matteo and I navigate a path into a copse of trees. Out the other side of the copse, I jump off the creature and land deftly in the grass. Someone laughs in the distance. A girl with long hair. She rides the stallion I pointed to earlier. Maybe you ought to stick to the city, Pixie, she shouts at me, then kicks her horse away. I rise from my knee and watch her ride into the distance. Her hair spills out behind her, more golden than the setting sun. Chapter 15 The Testing My test comes after two months of training my mind with Dancer. I do not memorize. I do not even really learn with him. Instead, his training is designed to help my mind adapt to paradigm shifts. For instance, if a fish has 3,453 scales on its left side and 3,453 on its right side, which side of the fish has the most scales? The outside. They call it extrapolational thinking. It was how I knew I should eat the scythe card when I first met Dancer. I'm very good at it. I find it ironic that Dancer and his friends can create a fake history for me, a fake family, a fake life, but they cannot fake my admittance test. So, three months after my training begins, I take the test in a bright room next to a noisy mouse of a goldbrow girl who incessantly taps her stylus on a jade bracelet. She may be part of the test for all I know. When she's not looking, I snatch the stylus from her fingers and hide it down my sleeve. I am a hell diver of Lycos.
So yes, I can steal a stupid girl's stylus without her knowing anything about it. She gawks around, as if magic has been done. Then she begins to whine. They don't give her another stylus, so she runs out in tears. Afterward, the penny proctor looks at his data pad and rewinds a video from a nano camera. He looks at me and smiles. Such traits are apparently admirable. A golden razor blade of a girl disagrees and sneers. Cutter, in my ear, as she slices past me in the hall outside. Matteo told me not to speak to anyone because I am not yet ready to socialise, so I barely bite back a very red reply. Her words linger. Cutter. Cutthroat. Machiavellian. Ruthless. They all describe what she thinks of me. Funny thing is, most girls would see the term as an accolade. A musical voice addresses me. I think she actually just paid you a compliment. So don't mind her. She's pretty as a peach, but she's all rotten inside. I took a bite once, if you catch my flow. Tasty, then putrid. Fantastic grab in there, by the by. I was about to rip that ninny's eyes from her skull myself. Damnable tapping. The shining voice comes from a young man torn from Greek verse. Arrogance and beauty drip off him. Impeccable breathing. I've never seen a smile so wide and white, skin so smooth and lustrous. He's all I despise. He claps me on the shoulder and grasps my hand in one of the several ways of semi-formal introduction. I squeeze slightly. He has a firm grip too, but when he tries to establish dominance, I squeeze his hand till he jerks it back, a flash of worry in his eyes. By God, your hand is like a vice. He chuckles. He calls himself Cassius very quickly, and I'm lucky he gives me little time to speak because his brow wrinkles when I do. My accent is still not perfect. Tarot, he repeats. Well... That's quite the off-colour name. Ah. He looks at his data pad, pulling up my personal history. Well, you come from no one at all. A far-planet hayseed. No wonder Antonia snared you away. But listen, I'll forgive you for it if you tell me how you fared on the test. Oh, you'll forgive me. His brows knit together. I'm trying to be kind here. We Bologna's aren't reformers, but we know that good men can come from low origins. Work with me, mate. Because of the way he looks, I feel a need to provoke him. Well, I dare say I expected the test to be more difficult. I might have missed the one about the candle, but besides that... Cassius watches me with a forgiving grin. His lively eyes dance over my face as I wonder if his mother coils his hair with golden irons in the morning. With hands like yours, you must be a terror with the razor, he says, leadingly. I'm fair. I lie. Matteo won't let me touch the thing. Modesty, 
Were you raised by white cows, man? Never mind. I'm off to Aegea after the physical tests. Join me. I hear the carvers have done some splendid work with the new ladies at Temptation, and they just had grav floors installed at Trist. We can float about without grav boots. What say you, man? Does that interest you? He taps one of his wings and winks. Plenty of peaches there. None of them rotten. Unfortunately, I cannot. Oh! He jumps, as if just remembering I'm a far planet hayseed. Don't worry about it, my goodman. I'll pay and all that. I politely decline, but he's already moving on. He taps my data pad before he leaves. The hollow screen cast over the inside of my left arm flickers. The dimensions of his face and information about our conversation are left behind. The address for the clubs he spoke of, the encyclopedic reference for Aegea, and his family's information. Cassius Aubelona, it reads. Son of Praetor Tiberius Aubelona, Imperator of the Society's Sixth Fleet, and perhaps the only man on Mars to rival Arch-Governor Augustus in power. Apparently, families hate one another. Seems like they have a nasty habit of killing each other off. Baby pit vipers, indeed. I thought I would be frightened of these people. I thought they would be little godlings. But aside from Cassius and Antonia, many are unimpressive. There are only seventy in my testing room, some look like Cassius, but not all are beautiful. Not all are tall and imperious. And very few strike me as men and women. For all their physical stature, they are children with exaggerated senses of self-worth. They don't know hardship. Babies. Pixies and bronzies, mostly. They test my physical properties next. I sit naked in an armchair in a white room as the copper testers of the quality control board watch me through nanocams. Hope you're getting a good look, I say. A brown worker comes in and applies a pinch to my nose. His eyes are blank. No fight in this one. No contempt for me. His skin is pallid and his movements awkward and clumsy. I am instructed to hold my breath as long as my lungs will allow. Ten minutes. Afterward, the brown removes the clamp and leaves. Next, I am to take a breath and exhale. I do, and realise there is suddenly no oxygen in the chamber. When I start to tilt in my seat, the oxygen returns. They freeze the room and measure how long it takes for me to shiver uncontrollably. Then they heat it to see when my heart begins to struggle. They amplify the grav in the room till my heart can't push sufficient blood and oxygen to my brain. Then they see how much motion I can take till I vomit. I'm used to riding a 90-metre drill, so they have to give up. They measure the flow of oxygen to my muscles, the beats of my heart, the density and length of my muscle fibres, the tensile ratings of my bones. It's like a walk in the park after my hell with harmony. They have me throw balls, then line me up against the wall and ask me to stop small balls that they shoot at me with a circular machine. 
My Helldiver hands are faster than their machine, so they bring in a green techie to adjust the thing till it's shooting veritable rockets. Eventually, I'm hit with a ball in the forehead. I black out briefly. They measure that, too. An eye, ear, nose and mouth test later, and I'm done. I feel vaguely distant from myself after the test. Like they measured my body and my brain, but not me. I've had no personal interactions except that one with Cassius. I stumble into the locker rooms, sore and confused. There's a couple others changing, so I take my clothes and move along to a more discreet section of the long rows of plastic lockers. Then I hear a strange whistling. A tune, I know. One that echoes through my dreams. The one Eo died to. I follow the sound, and come upon a girl changing in the corner of the locker room. Her back is to me, muscles lean she dons her shirt. I make a noise. She turns suddenly, and for an awkward moment I stand there, blushing. Goals are not supposed to care about nudity, but I can't help my reaction. She's beautiful. Heart-shaped face, full lips, eyes that laugh at you. They laugh like they did as she rode away on the horse. It's the same girl who called me a pixie when I rode the pony. One of her eyebrows arches upward. I don't know what to say, so, in a panic, I turn and walk fast as I can out of the locker rooms. A gold wouldn't have done that. But as I sit with Matteo on the shuttle, as it ferries us back home, I remember the girl's face. She blushed, too. It is a short flight, not long enough. I watch Mars through the duroglass floor. Though the planet is terraformed, vegetation is sparse along our flight path. The planet's surface is streaked with ribbons of green in its valleys and around her equator. The vegetation looks like green scars that cut across her pocked surface. Water fills her impact craters, creating grand lakes. And the Borealis Basin, which stretches across the northern hemisphere, brims with fresh water and teems with bizarre marine life. Great plains where dust devils gather cloaks of topsoil and tear through croplands. Storms and ice rule the poles where the obsidians train and live. The weather there is said to be brutal and cold, though temperate climes are prevalent throughout much of Mars's surface now. There are one thousand cities on Mars, each ruled by a governor, the arch-governor presiding over all. Each city is set in the centre of a hundred mining colonies. The governors manage these colonies, with the individual mine magistrates like Paginus overseeing the day-to-day. -day. With so many mines and so many cities, it was chance, I suppose, that brought the arch-governor to my home with his camera crew. Chance and my position as a helldiver. They wanted to make an example out of me. Eo was an afterthought and she would not have sung if the arch-governor had not been there. Life's ironies are not charming. What will the Institute be like if I get in? I ask Matteo as I peer out the window. 
full of class, as I imagine. How should I know? Is there no intel? No. No? I ask. Well, some, I suppose, Matteo admits. Three sorts of people graduate. The peerless scarred, the graduates, and the shamed. The peerless can ascend in society. The graduates can as well, but their prospects are relatively limited, and they still must earn their scars. And the shamed are sent to the distant, hard colonies like Pluto to oversee the first years of terraforming. How does one become a peerless? I imagine there is some sort of ranking system. Perhaps a competition. I don't know. But the girls are a species built upon conquest. It would make sense if that were to be part of your competition. How vague, I sigh. You're as helpful as a legless dog sometimes. The game, Goodman, in gold society, is patronage. Your actions in the Institute will serve as an extended audition for that patronage. You need an apprenticeship. You need a powerful benefactor. He grins. So, if you want to help our cause, you will do as bloody damn well as you can. Imagine if you became an apprentice to a preter. In ten years' time, you could be a preter yourself. You could have a fleet. Imagine what you could do with a fleet, my goodman. Just imagine. Matteo never speaks about such flights of fancy, so the excitement in his eyes is contagious. It makes me imagine. Chapter 16 the Institute. My test results come when I am practicing my cultural recognition and accent modulation with Matteo in our high-rise penthouse. We have a view of the city, the setting sun behind. I'm midway through a clever retort about the Yorkton Supernova Faux War Sports Club when my datapad beeps with a priority message sent to my datapad stream. I almost spill my coffee. My datapad has been slaved by another, I say. It's the Board of Quality Control. Matteo shoots up from his chair. We have perhaps four minutes. He runs into the suite's library, where Harmony is reading on an ergo couch. She jumps up and is down and out of the suite in less than three breaths. I make sure that the hollow pictures of me with my fake family are arranged in my bedroom and throughout the penthouse. Four hired servants, browns and a pink, Go about domestic tasks in the penthouse. They wear the Pegasus livery of my fake family. One of the Browns goes to the kitchen. The other, a pink woman, massages my shoulders. Matteo shines my shoes in my room. Of course, there are machines to do these things, but an Oriot would never use a machine for something a person could do. There's no power in that. The town craft appears like a distant dragonfly. It grows as it buzzes closer and hovers outside my penthouse window. Its boarding door slides open and a man in a copper suit gives a bow of formality. I let my datapad open the duroglass window and the man floats in. Three whites are with him. Each has a white sigil upon their hands, members of the academians and a copper bureaucrat. 
Do I have the pleasure of addressing one Darrow Au Andromedus, son of the recently deceased Linus Au Andromedus and Lexus Au Andromedus? You have the honour. The bureaucrat looks me up and down, in a very deferential but impatient manner. I am Bondalus Sutankrus of the Institute's Board of Quality Control. There are some questions we must beg to ask of you. We sit across from one another, at my oak kitchen table. There, they hook my finger to a machine, and one of the whites dons a pair of glasses that will analyse my pupils and other physiological reactions. They'll be able to tell if I am lying. We will start with a control question to assess your normal reaction when telling truths. Are you of the family Andromedus? Yes. Are you of the Oriot genus? Yes. I lie through my teeth, ruining their control questions. Did you cheat in your admissions test two months prior? No. Did you use nerve nucleic to stimulate high comprehension and analytical functions during the test itself? No. Did you use a network widget to aggregate or synthesize outside resources in real time? No. I sigh impatiently. There was a jammer in the room. Ergo, it would have been impossible. I'm glad you've done your research and are not wasting my time, copper. His smile is bureaucratic. Did you have prior knowledge of the questions? No. I deem an angry response proper at this point. And what is this about? I'm not accustomed to being called a liar by someone of your ilk. It is procedure with all elite scorers, Lord Oriot. I beg your understanding. The bureaucrat drones. Any upward outlier far removed from the standard deviation is subject to inquiry. Did you slave your widget to that of another individual during the test? No. As I said, there was a jammer. Thank you for keeping up, Pennyhead. They take a sample of my blood and scan my brain. The results are instantaneous, but the bureaucrat will not share them. Protocol. He reminds me. You will have your results in two weeks. We receive them in four. I pass the quality control examination. I did not cheat. Then comes my exam score, two months after I took the damn thing, and I realise why they thought I did cheat. I missed one question. Just one. Out of hundreds. When I share the results with Dancer, Harmony and Matteo, they simply stare at me. Dancer falls into a chair and begins to laugh. It's an hysterical sort. Bloody hell, he swears. We've done it. He did it, Matteo corrects. It takes Dancer a minute before he has wits enough to fetch a bottle of champagne. But I still feel his eyes watching me, as though... I am something different. Something strange. It's like they suddenly don't understand what it is they've created. I touch the Hymanthus blossom in my pocket and feel the wedding band around my neck. They didn't create me. She did. It's when a valet arrives to escort me to the Institute 
that I say my goodbyes to Dancer inside the penthouse. He holds tight to my hand as we shake and gives me the look my father gave me before he was hanged. It's one of reassurance. But behind that is worry and doubt. Did he prepare me for the world? Did he do his duty? My father was twenty-five when he looked at me like that. Dancer is forty-one. It makes no difference. I chuckle. Uncle Nerol never gave me such a look, not even when he let me cut Eo down. Probably because he'd taken enough of my right hooks to know the answer. But if I think about my teachers, my fathers, Uncle Nerol shaped me the most. He taught me to dance. He taught me how to be a man. Perhaps because he knew this would be my future. And though he tried to stop me from being a helldiver, it was his lessons that kept me alive. I've learned new lessons now. Let's hope they do the trick. Dancer gives me the knife ring he used to slice my finger months before. He's reshaped it to look like an L. They'll think it the chevron the Spartans bore on their shields, he says. L for Lacedaemonia. But it is for Lycos, for Lambda. Harmony surprises me by taking my right hand, kissing where once my red sigil was emblazoned. She's got tears in one eye, the cold, unscarred eye. The other cannot cry. Evie will be coming to live with us, she tells me. She smiles before I can ask why. It looks strange on her face. You think you're the only one who notices things? We'll give her a better life than Mickey would. Matteo and I share a smile and a bow. We exchange proper honorifics as he extends his hand. It doesn't grasp mine. Instead, it snatches the flower from my pocket. I reach after it, but he's still the only man I've ever met who is faster than me. You cannot take this with you, Goodman. The wedding band on your hand is queer enough. The flower is too much. Give me a petal, then, I say. I thought you would ask for that. He pulls out a necklace. It is the sigil of Andromedus. My sigil, I remember. It is iron. He drops it in my hand. Whisper her name. I do, and the pegasus unfurls like a hemanthus bud. He sets a petal in the center. It closes again. This is your heart. Guard it with iron. Thank you, Matteo, I say, tears in my eyes. I pick him up and hug him, despite his protests. If I live more than a week, I'll have you to thank, my goodman. He blushes when I set him down. Manage your temper, he reminds me, his small voice darkening. Manners, manners. Then burn the bloody damn house to the ground. I clutch the Pegasus in my hand as the shuttle crosses over the Martian countryside. Fingers of green stretch over the earth I've lived to dig. 
I wonder who the hell diver of Lambda is now. Lauren is too young. Barlow is too old. Kieran? He's too responsible. He's got children to love, and he's seen enough of our family die. There's no fire in his belly. Liana's got enough, but women aren't allowed to dig. It's probably Dane, Eel's brother. Wild, but not bright. The typical helldiver. He'll die fast. The thought makes me nauseous. It's not just the thought. I'm nervous. I realize it slowly as I look around the shuttle's interior. Six other youths sit quietly. One, a slender boy with an open gaze and pretty smile, catches my eye. He's the sort who still laughs at butterflies. Julian, he declares properly and takes my forearm. We have no data to offer each other through our data pads. They took them when we boarded the shuttle. So instead, I offer him the seat across from me. Taro, a very interesting name. Have you ever been to Aegea? I ask Julian. Course, he says, smiling. He always smiles. What? You mean you haven't? It's strange. I thought I knew so many goals, but hardly any of them managed to get past the entrance exams. It's a brave new world of faces, I fear. Anyway, I envy you the fact you haven't been to Aegea. It's a strange place. Beautiful, no doubt, but life there is fast and cheap. So they say. But not for us. He chuckles. I suppose not. Not unless you play at politics. I don't much like playing. I notice his reaction, so I laugh my seriousness off with a wink. Not unless there's a wager, man. You hear? I hear. What's your game? Blood chess? Grav cross? Oh, blood chess is all right. But foe war takes the prize. I say with a golden grin. Especially if you're a Nortan fan. He agrees. Oh. Nortan. I don't know if we'll get along, I say, wincing. I jab myself with a thumb. Yorkton. Yorkton? I don't know if we'll ever get along, he laughs. And though I smile, he doesn't know how cold I am inside. The conversation, the jibes, the smiles are all a pattern of sociality. Mateo's done me well. But to Julian's credit, he doesn't seem a monster. He should be a monster. My brother must already have arrived at the Institute. He was already in a G at our family's estate, causing trouble, no doubt. Julian shakes his head proudly. Best man I know. He'll be the Primus, just you watch. Our father's pride and joy. And that's saying something with how many family members I have. Not a flicker of jealousy in his voice. Just love. Primus, I ask. Oh, Institute talk. It means leader of his house. The houses. I know these. There are twelve, loosely based on underlying personality traits. Each is named for one of the gods of the Roman pantheon. 
The schoolhouses are networking tools and social clubs outside of school. Do well and they'll find you a powerful family to serve. The families are the true powers in the society. They have their own armies and fleets and contribute to the sovereign's forces. Loyalty begins with them. There is little love for the denizens of one's own planet. If anything, they are the competition. You sobs done beating each other off yet? An impish kid sneers from the corner of the shuttle. He's so drab, he is khaki instead of gold. His lips are thin, and his face like a cruel hawk, just as it spies a mouse. A bronzy. Are we bothering you? My sarcasm has a polite nip. Does two dogs humping bother me? Likely, yes, if they're noisy. Julian stands. Apologize, cur. Go slag yourself, the small kid says. In half a second, Julian has drawn a white glove from nowhere. That to wipe my arse, you golden pricklick. What? You little heathen, Julian says in shock. Who raised you? Wolves, after your mother's cooch spat me out. You beast! Julian throws the glove at the small kid. I'm watching, thinking this is the height of comedy. The kid seems pulled straight from the Lycos crop. Beta, maybe. He's like an ugly, tiny, irritable Lauren. Julian doesn't know what to do, so he makes a challenge. A challenge, Goodman. A duel. You're that offended. The ugly kid snorts at the princeling. Fine. I'll stitch your family pride together after the passage, pricklick. He blows his nose into the glove. Why not now, coward? Julian calls. His slender chest is puffed out just as his father must have taught him. No one insults his family. Are you stupid? Do you see razors about? Idiot. Go away. We'll duel after the passage. Passage? Julian finally asks what I'm thinking. The scrawny kid grins wickedly. Even his teeth are khaki. It's the last test, idiot. And the best secret this side of the rings around Octavia O'Loon's cooch. Then how do you know about it? I ask. Inside track, the kid says. And I don't know about it. I know of it, you giant pisshead. His name is Severo, and I like his angle. But the talk of a passage worries me. There is so little I know, I realise, as I listen in as Julian strikes up a conversation with the last member of our shuttle. They talk about their test scores. There is a severe disparity between their low scores and mine. I notice Severo snort as they say theirs aloud. How did applicants with such low scores get in? I've got an ill feeling in my gut. And what did Severo score? We come to the Valis Marineris in darkness. It is a great scar of light across Mars's black surface, going as far as eyes can see. At the centre of it, the capital city of my planet rises in the night 
like a garden of jewel swords. Nightclubs flicker on rooftops, dance floors made of condensed air. Scantily dressed girls and foolish boys rise and fall as grav mixers play with physics. Noise bubbles separate city blocks. We cut through them and hear worlds of different sounds. The Institute is beyond Aegea's night districts and is built into the side of the eight-kilometre-high walls of the Vallis Marineris. The walls rise like tidal waves of green stone, cradling civilization with flora. The Institute itself is made of white stone, a place of columns and sculpture, Roman to its core. I have not been here before, but I have seen the columns, seen the destination of our voyage. Bitterness wells in me, like bile rising from stomach to throat, as I think of his face, think of his words, his eyes as they scanned the crowd. I watched on the HC as the Arch-Governor gave his speech time and again to the classes before my own. Soon I'll hear it from his lips myself. Soon I'll suffer the rage, feel the fire lick over my heart as I see him in person once again. We land on a drop pad and are shepherded into an open-air marble square looking over the vast valley. The night air is crisp. Aegea sprawls behind, and the gates of the Institute stretch before us. I stand with over a thousand gold brows, all glancing about with the cocksureness of their race. Many clump together, friends from beyond the white walls of the school. I did not think their classes so large. A tall golden man, flanked by obsidians and a coterie of gold advisors, rises on a pair of grav boots before the gate. My heart goes cold as I recognize his face and hear his voice and see the glimmer in his ingot eyes. Welcome, children of Orient, Arch-Governor Nero Augustus says in a voice as smooth as Eos' skin. It is preternaturally loud. I assume you understand the gravity of your presence here. Of the thousand cities of Mars, of all the great families, you are the chosen few. You are the peak of the human pyramid. Today, you will begin your campaign to join the best caste of our race. Your fellows stand like you in the Institutes of Venus, of the eastern and western hemispheres of Earth, of Luna, of the gas giant moons, of Europa, of the Astrodian Greek cluster and the Astrodian Trojan cluster, of Mercury, of Callisto, of the joint venture Enceladus and Ceres, and of the far pioneers of Hildas. It seems only a day ago that I knew I was a pioneer of Mars. Only a day ago that I suffered so that humanity, desperate to leave a dying earth, could spread to the red planet. Oh, how well my rulers lied. Behind Augustus, in the stars, there's movement. But it is not the stars that move. Nor is it asteroids or comets. It is the sixth and fifth fleets, the armada of Mars. My breath catches in my chest. The Sixth Fleet is commanded by Cassius's father, while the smaller Fifth Fleet 
is under the Archgovernor's direct control. Most of the ships are owned by families who owe allegiance to either Augustus or Bologna. Augustus shows us why we, they, rule. My flesh tingles. I am so small. A billion tons of durosteel and nanometal move through the heavens, and I have never been beyond Mars's atmosphere. They are like specks of silver in an ocean of ink, and I am so much less. But those specks could ravage Mars. They could destroy a moon. Those specks rule the ink. An imperator commands each fleet, a praetor commands squadrons within that fleet. What I could do with that power. Augustus is haughty as he gives his speech. I swallow the bile in my throat. Because of the impossible distance of my enemies, my anger was once a cold, quiet sort. Now it burns in me. Society has three stages. Savagery, ascendance, decadence. The great rise because of savagery. They rule in ascendance. They fall because of their own decadence. He tells us how the Persians were felled, how the Romans collapsed because their rulers forgot how their parents gained them an empire. He prattles about Muslim dynasties and European effeminacy and Chinese regionalism and American self-loathing and self-neutering. All the ancient names. Our savagery began when our capital, Luna, rebelled against the tyranny of Earth and freed herself from the shackles of democracy, from the noble lie, the idea that men are brothers and are created equal. Augustus weaves lies of his own with that golden tongue of his. He tells of the golden's suffering. The masses sat on the wagon and expected the great to pull, he reminds. They sat whipping the great until we could no longer take it. I remember a different whipping. Men are not created equal. We all know this. There are averages. There are outliers. There are the ugly. There are the beautiful. This would not be if we were all equal. A red can no more command a starship than a green can serve as a doctor. There's more laughter across the square, as he tells us to look at pathetic Athens, the birthplace of the cancer they call democracy. Look how it fell to Sparta. The noble lie made Athens weak. It made their citizens turn on their best general, Alcibiades, because of jealousy. Even the nations of Earth grew jealous of one another. The United States of America exacted this idea of equality through force. And, when the nations united, the Americans were surprised to find that they were disliked. The masses are jealous. How wonderful a dream it would be if all men were created equal. But we are not. It is against the noble lie that we fight. But as I said before, as I say to you now, 
there is another evil against which we war. It is a more pernicious evil. It is a subversive, slow evil. It is not a wildfire. It is a cancer. And that cancer is decadence. Our society has passed from savagery to ascendance, but like our spiritual ancestors, the Romans, we too can fall into decadence. He speaks of the pixies. You are the best of humanity, but you have been coddled. You have been treated like children. Were you born to a different color, you would have calluses. You would have scars. You would know pain. He smiles as if he knows pain. I hate this man. You think you know pain. You think the society is an inevitable force of history. You think her the end of history. But many have thought that before. Many ruling classes have believed theirs to be the last, the pinnacle. They grew soft, fat. They forgot that calluses, wounds, scars, hardship, preserve all those fine pleasure clubs you young boys love to frequent, and all those fine silks and diamonds and unicorns you girls ask for on birthdays. Many aureates have not sacrificed. That is why they do not wear this. He shows a long scar on his right cheek. Octavia Aulun has the same scar. The scar of a peer. We are not the masters of the solar system because we are born. We are the masters because we, the peerless scarred, the iron golds, made it that way. He touches the scar on his cheek. I'd give him another if I were closer. The children around me suck down this man's garbage like oxygen. Right now, the colors who mine this planet are harder than you. They are born with calluses, born with scars and hatred. They are tough as nanosteel. Fortunately, they are also very stupid. For instance, this Persephone you have no doubt heard of is nothing more than a dim girl who thought singing a song was worth a hanging. I bite a bloody hole in my cheek. My skin shivers from rage as I find out that my wife is part of this bastard speech. The girl did not even know the video would be leaked. Yet it is her willingness to suffer hardship that gave her power. Martyrs, you see are like bees. Their only power comes in death. How many of you would sacrifice yourself to not kill, but merely hurt your enemy? Not one of you, I wager. I taste the blood in my mouth. I have the knife ring Dancer gave me, but I breathe the fury down. I am no martyr. I am not vengeance. I am Eo's dream, still, Doing nothing while our murderer gloats feels like a betrayal. In time you will receive your scars from my sword, Augustus closes. But first, 
You must earn them. Chapter Seventeen, The Draft. Son of Linus and Lexus, our Andromedus, both of the House Apollo. Would you prefer to mark yourself as requesting House Apollo preferentiality? A tedious Oriot administrator asks me. Goldbrow's first loyalty is to color, then family, then planet, then house. Most houses are dominated by one or two powerful families. On Mars, the family Augustus, the family Bologna, and the family Arcos influence all others. No, I reply. He shuffles over his data pad. Very well. How do you believe you performed on the slang smarts test? That is the extrapolational test, he clarifies. I think my results speak for themselves. You are not paying attention, Darrow. I shall mark that against you. I am asking for you to speak for your results. I think I took a gory piss on your test, sir. Ah. He smiles. Well, you did. You did. House Minerva for brains might be right for you. Perhaps Pluto for the deviousness. Apollo for the pride. Yes. Hmm. Well, I have a test for you. Please complete it to the best of your ability. Interviews will commence when you have finished. The test is quick, and it is in the form of an immersion game. There's a goblet on a hill that I need to acquire. Many obstacles stand in my way. I pass them as rationally as possible, trying to hide my anger when a little elf steals a key I acquire. But every step of the way there's some damn setback, some inconvenience. And it's always unforeseen, it's always something beyond the bounds of extrapolation. In the end, I reached the goblet, but only after killing an annoying wizard and cruelly enslaving the race of elves by means of said wizard's magic wand. I could have left the elves be, but they annoyed me. Soon the interviewers come in intervals. I learn they are called proctors. Each one of them is a peerless scarred. They are chosen by the arch-governor to teach and represent the students of the house within the institute. All said, the proctors are impressive. There's a huge, scarred man with hair like a lion and a lightning bolt on his collar for Jupiter, a matronly woman with gentle golden eyes and a quick-witted man with winged feet on his collar. He can't sit still and his baby face seems immensely fascinated by my hands. He makes me play a game with him in which he puts out both hands flat and facing up and I put mine atop, facing down. He tries slapping my hands, but never quite manages. He leaves after clapping his hands together in joy. Another strange encounter comes when a beautiful man with coiled hair interviews me. A bow marks his collar. Apollo. He asks me how attractive I believe myself to be, and is displeased when I undershoot his estimate. Still, I think he likes me, 
because he asks me what I would like to be one day. An imperator of a fleet, I say. You could do great things with a fleet, but a lofty notion, he sighs, accenting every word with a feline purr. Perhaps too lofty for your family. Maybe if you had a benefactor of better familial origin. Yes, maybe then. He looks at his data pad. But unlikely due to your birth. Hmm. Best of luck. I sit alone for an hour or more till a sullen man comes to join me. His unfortunate face is pinched like a hatchet, but he has the scar and a razor hilt hangs on his hip. His name is Fitchner. A wad of gum fills his mouth. The uniform he wears is black with gold, and it nearly conceals the slight belly paunch that sticks outward despite the faint smell of metabolizers. Like many of the others, he wears badges about his personage. A golden wolf with two heads decorates his collar, and a strange hand marks his cuff. They give me the mad dogs, he says. They give me the killers of our race, the ones full of piss and napalm and vinegar. He sniffs the air. You smell full of shit. I say nothing. He leans against the door and frowns as though it offended him in some way. Then back to me, sniffing improperly. Problem is, we of House Mars always burn out. Kids rule the Institute at first. Then they find out that napalm lasts about... He snaps his fingers. I have no reply. He sighs and props down in a chair. After a while of watching me, he stands and punches me in the face. If you punch me back, you will be sent home, pixie. I kick him in the shin. He limps away laughing like a drunk Uncle Nero. I'm not sent home. Instead, I find myself escorted with one hundred others into a large room with float chairs and a large wall dominated by ivory gridwork. The gridwork forms a checkerboard square on the wall, ten rows high, ten rows across. I'm taken on a lift to the middle row, some fifty feet off the ground. Ninety-nine other students are ushered in till each box is filled. This is the prime crop, the best of the students. I look out from my box, peering up above me. A girl's feet dangle out of the box above my head. Numbers and letters appear in front of my box, my statistics. Supposedly, I'm very rash, and have upper outlier characteristics in intuition and loyalty and, most noticeably, rage. There are twelve groups in the audience. Each group sits close together in float chairs around vertical golden standards. I see an archer, a lightning bolt, an owl, a wolf with two heads, an upside-down crown, and a trident, amongst others. One of the proctors accompanies each group, they alone do not have their faces covered. The others wear ceremonial masks, featureless and golden and slightly like the animals of their houses. 
If only I had known this was going to happen, I might have brought a nuke. These are the drafters, the men and women of highest prestige. Praetors and imperators and tribunes and adjudicators and governors sit there watching me, trying to choose the new students for their house, trying to find young men and women they can test and offer apprenticeships. With one bomb, I could have destroyed the best and the brightest of their golden rule. Maybe that's the rashness speaking. The draft begins when a titan of a Genalt boy is chosen first to the house of the lightning bolt, House Jupiter. Then go more girls and boys of unnatural beauty and physical prowess. I can only guess they are geniuses as well. The fifth pick comes. The baby-faced interviewer with the winged feet floats up to me on golden boots. Several of the drafters of House Mercury float along with him. They speak quietly amongst themselves, before asking me questions. Who are your parents? What are their family's accomplishments? I tell them about my modest, false family. One of them seems to think highly of a relative of mine who has long since passed away, but despite the proctor's objections, they pass me over for another student from a family with the ownership of ninety mines and a stake on one of Mars's southern continents. The Mercury Proctor curses and shoots me a quick smile. Hope you're available next round, he says. Next goes a delicate girl with a mocking smile. I can barely pay attention, and, at times, it is difficult to see who else is being selected. We're arrayed in an odd way. With the tenth pick, the proctor who struck me in the interviews floats my way. There is disagreement among the drafters. I have two ardent advocates. One is as tall as Augustus, but her hair flows down to her spine in three golden braids. The second is broader, not very tall. He's old. Can tell by the scars and wrinkles on his thick hands. Hands that bear the signet ring of an Olympic knight. I know him immediately, even without seeing his face. Lorne Al Arcos, the Rage Knight, the third greatest man on Mars, who chose to serve the society by safeguarding the society's compact instead of reaching for crowns in politics. When he points to me, Fitchner grins. I am chosen tenth. Tenth out of one thousand. Chapter 18 Classmates I feel a sinking in my stomach as I walk with the chattering mass into the dining hall. It is overgrand, white marble floors, columns, a hollow sky displaying birds in flies at sunset. The Institute is not what I expected. According to Augustus, the classes are to be hard on these little godlings. I snort down a laugh. Let a lot of them spend a year in a mine. There are twelve tables, each with one hundred place settings. Our names float above the chairs in golden letters. Mine floats to the right of a table's head. It is a place of distinction. The first draft. 
A single bar floats to the right of my name. A minus one is to the left. The first to get five bars becomes primus of his house. Each bar is bounty for an act of merit. Apparently, my high score on the test was the first bit of merit. Wonderful. A cutter in the lead for primus. A familiar voice says, The girl from the exam. I read her name. Antonia Au Severus. She has cruel good looks, high cheekbones, a smirking smile, scorn in her eyes. Her hair is long, full and golden as Midas's touch. She was born to be hated and to hate. A minus five floats beside her name. It is the second closest score to mine at the table. Cassius, the boy I met at testing, sits diagonally across from me. A minus six shimmers by his broad smile. He runs a hand back through his curls. Another boy sits directly across from me. Minus one and a golden bar float by his name. While Cassius lounges, this other boy, Priam, sits as straight as a blade. His face is celestial, his eyes alert, his hair coiffed. He's tall as me, but broad in the shoulders. I don't think I've ever seen a more perfect human being. A bloody damn statue. He wasn't in the draft, I discover. He is what they call a premier. They cannot be drafted. His parents chose his house. Then I discover why. His scandalous mother, a banner woman of the house Bologna, owns our planet's two moons. Fate brings us together again, Cassius chuckles to me. And Antonia, my love, it seems our fathers conspired to place us side by side. Antonia replies with a sneer. Remind me to beam him a thank you. Tony, no need for nastiness. He wags a finger. Now toss me a smile like a good doll. She flips him the crooks with her fingers. Rather toss you out a window, Cassie. Rawr! Cassius blows her a kiss. She ignores it. So, Priam, I suppose you and I will have to play gentle with these fools, eh? Oh, they look like swell sorts to me, Priam replies primly. I fancy we'll do very well as a group. They talk in high lingo. If the dregs of the draft don't weigh us down, my good man. He gestures to the end of the table and starts naming them. Screwface, for obvious reasons. Clown, because of that ridiculous puffy hair. Weed, because, well, he's thin. Oi, you, your thistle, because your nose looks hooked as one. And that itty-bitty one right there next to the bronzy-looking fellow, that's Little Pebble. I think they will rather surprise you, Priam says in defense of the far end of the table. They may not be as tall or as athletic or even as intelligent as you or me, if intelligence really can be measured by that test, but I do not think it charity to say that they will be the spine of our group. Salt of the earth, if you will. Good sorts. I see the small kid from the shuttle, Severo, at the very foot of the table. The salt of the earth is not making friends. And neither am I.
Cassius glances my minus one. I see him concede that Priam might have scored better than he, but Cassius makes a point in saying he's never heard of my parents. So, dear Darrow, how did you cheat? He asks. Antonia glances over from her conversation with Arya, a small girl made of curling hair and dimples. Oh, come now, man, I laugh. They sent quality control after me. How could I have cheated? Impossible. Did you cheat? Your score is high. I speak the mid-lingo. It's more comfortable than the high-lingo fart-dust Priam jabbers on in. Me? Cheat? No, just didn't try enough, apparently. Cassius replies. If I had my wits, I'd have spent less time with the girls and more on studying, like you. He's trying to tell me if he tried he could have done just as well, but he's too busy to put in as much effort. If I wanted him as a friend, I'd let him get away with it. You studied? I ask. I feel a sudden urge to embarrass him. I didn't study at all. A chill goes through the air. I shouldn't have said it. My stomach plummets. Manners. Cassius's face sours and Antonius smirks. I've insulted him. Priam frowns. If I want a career in the fleet, then I will likely need Cassius Albolona's father's patronage. Son of an imperator. Matteo drilled this into me. How easy it is to forget. The fleet is where the power is. Fleet, or government, or army. And I don't like government, not to mention that this sort of insult is how duels begin. Fear trickles down my spine as I realise how thin a line there is to tread. Cassius knows how to duel. I, for all my new skills, do not. He would rip me to pieces, and he looks like he wants to do just that. I joke. I tilt my head to Cassius. Come on, man. How could I score so high and not have studied till my eyes were bleeding? Wish I'd spent more time fooling off like you. We're in the same spot now, after all. Fat lot that studying did for me. Priam nods his approval at the peace offering. I bet it was a slog, Cassius crows, tipping his head to acknowledge my peculiar breed of apology. I expected the play to go over his head, thought his pride would blind him to my sudden apology. The gold may be proud, but he isn't stupid. None of them are. Have to remember that. After that, I do Matteo proud. I flirt with a girl named Quinn, befriend and joke with Cassius and Priam, who has probably never sworn in his life. Throw my hand out to a tall brute named Titus, whose neck is as thick as my thigh. He squeezes too hard, on purpose. He's surprised when I nearly break his hand, but damn is his grip strong. The boy is even taller than Cassius and I, and he's got a voice like a titan. But he grins when he realises that my grip, if nothing else, is stronger than his. Something strange about his voice, though. Something decidedly disdainful. There's also a feather of a boy named Roke, who looks and speaks like a poet. His smiles are slow, 
few, but genuine. Rare. Cassius! Julian calls. Cassius stands and throws an arm around his thinner, prettier twin. I didn't piece it together before, but they are brothers. Twins. Not identical. Julian did say his brother was already in Aegea. Darrow here is not what he seems. Julian tells the table with a very grave face. He has a knack for theatrics. You don't mean... Cassius puts a hand to his mouth. My finger grazes my steak knife. Yes. Julian nods solemnly. No. Cassius shakes his head. He's not a Yorkton supporter. Julian, tell me it isn't so. Darrow. Darrow, how could you be? They never win a game. Priam, are you hearing this? I throw my hands up in apology. A curse of birth, I suppose. I am a product of my upbringing. I cheer for the underdog. I manage not to sneer the words. He confessed it to me on the shuttle. Julian is proud to know me. Proud his brother knows he knows me. He looks for Cassius's approval. Cassius isn't oblivious to this either. He gently doles out a compliment and Julian leaves the high drafts and returns to his mid-draft seat halfway down the table with a content smile and squared shoulders. I didn't think Cassius would be the kind sort. Of those I meet, only Antonia openly dislikes me. She doesn't watch me like the others at the table. From her, I feel only a distant breed of contempt. One moment she's laughing, flirting with Roke, and then she feels my gaze and becomes ice. The feeling is mutual. My dormitory is from a dream. Gold trim lines a window that looks out into the valley. A bed is laden with silks and quilts and satins. I lie in it when a pink masseur comes in and stays for an hour, kneading my muscles. Later, Three lithe pinks file through to tend to my needs. I send them to Cassius's room instead. To calm the temptation, I take a cold shower and immerse myself in a hollow experience of a digger in the mining colony Corinth. The hell diver in the hollow experience is less talented than I was, but the rattling, the simulated heat, the darkness and the vipers, they comfort me so much that I wrap my old scarlet rag around my head. More food comes. Augustus was all talk, gob full of exaggerations. This is their version of hardship. I feel guilty as I fall asleep with a full stomach, clutching the locket with Eo's flour inside. My family will go to bed hungry tonight. I whisper her name. I take the wedding band from my pocket and kiss it. Feel the ache. They stole her. But she left them. She left me. She left me tears and pain and longing. She left me to give me anger, and I cannot help but hate her for a moment, even though beyond that moment there is only love. Eo, I whisper.
and the locket closes. Chapter 19 The Passage I vomit as I wake. A second fist strikes my full stomach, then a third. I'm empty and gasping for air. Drowning in my sick, coughing, hacking, I try to scramble away. A man's hand grabs me by the hair and throws me into the wall. God, he's bloody strong. And he's got extra fingers. I reach for my knife ring, but they've already dragged me into the hall. I've never been so manhandled. Even my new body can't recover from their strikes. There's four of them in black. Crows. The killers. They've discovered me. They know what I am. It's over. All over. Their faces are expressionless skulls. Masks. I pull the knife I took from dinner from my waist, and I'm about to stab one of them in the groin. Then I see the flash of gold on their wrists, and they hit me till I drop the knife. It's a test. Their strikes against a higher colour are sanctioned by the issuer of the bracelets. They haven't found me out at all. A test. That is what this is. It is a test. They could have used stunners. There's a purpose to the beating. It's something most goals have never experienced, so I wait. I curl up and let them beat me. When I don't resist, they think they've done their job. They sort of do. I'm ragged shit by the time they're satisfied. I'm dragged through the hallway by men nearly three metres tall. A bag is shoved over my head. They're staying away from technology to scare me. I wonder how many of these kids have felt physical force like this. How many have been so dehumanised? The bag smells like death and piss as they drag me along. I start laughing. It's like my bloody damn fry suit. Then a fist hits my chest and I crumple, gasping. The hood also has a sound device installed. I'm not breathing hard, but my breaths come back louder than they should. There are over a thousand students. Dozens at a time must suffer this same fate. Yet I hear nothing. They don't want me to hear the others. I'm supposed to think I'm alone, that my colour means nothing. Surprisingly, I find myself offended that they dare strike me. Don't they know I'm a bloody damn gold? Then I snort back a laugh. Effective tricks. I'm lifted up and thrown hard onto a floor. I feel a vibration, the smell of exhaust. Soon we're in the air. Something in the bag covering my head disorients me. I can't tell which direction we're flying, how high we've risen. The sound of my own raspy breath has become terrible. I think the bag also filters out oxygen because I'm hyperventilating. Still, it's not worse than a fry suit. Later. An hour? Two? We land. They drag me by my heels. My head bumps on stone, jarring me. It's not till much later that they take the bag off my head in a barren stone room lit by a single light. Another person is already here. The crows strip away my clothing, rip away the precious Pegasus pendant. They leave. 
Cold in here, Julian. I chuckle as I stand, unclenching my left hand from the dirty red Helldiver's sweatband. My voice echoes. We're both naked. I fake a limp with my right leg. I know what this is. Darrow? Is that you? Julian asks. Are you well? I'm prime. They busted up my right leg, though. I lie. He stands, too, pushing himself up with his left hand. That's his dominant one. He looks tall and feeble in the light, like bent hay. I caught more kicks and punches than him, though. Loads more. My ribs might be cracked. What do you think this is? He asks. The passage, obviously. But they lied. They said it would be tomorrow. The thick wooden door squeals on rusted hinges, and Proctor Fitchner saunters in, popping a bubblegum. Proctor! Sir, you lied to us! Julian protests. He pushes his pretty hair back out of his eyes. Fitchner's movement is sluggish, but his eyes are like a cat's. Lying takes too much effort, he grunts idly. Well, how dare you treat us like this? Julian snaps. You must know who my father is, and my mother is a legate. I can have you up on charges for assault in a moment's notice. And you hurt Darrow's leg. It's 1am, dipshit. It's tomorrow. Fitchner pops another bubblegum. There are also two of you. Alas, only one spot is available in your class. He tosses a golden ring, emblazoned with the Wolf of Mars and a star shield of the Institute, onto the dirty stone ground. I could make it ambiguous, but you look like rusty-headed lads. Only one comes out alive. He leaves the way he came. The door squeals, and then slams shut. Julian flinches at the sound. I do not. We both stare at the ring, and I have a sick feeling in my gut that I'm the only one in the room who knows what just happened. What do they think they're doing? Julian asks me. Do they expect us to kill each other? I finish. Yes, that's what they expect. Despite the knot in my throat, I ball my fists, Eo's wedding band tight on my finger. I intend to wear that ring, Julian. Will you let me have it? I am bigger than he, not quite as tall, but that doesn't matter. He doesn't stand a chance. I have to have it, Darrow. He murmurs. He looks up. I am of the family Bologna. I can't go home without it. Do you know who we are? You can go home without shame. I can't. I need it more than you. We're not going home, Julian. One person comes out alive. You heard him. They wouldn't do that. He tries. No. Please, please, Darrow, just go home. 
You don't need it like I do. You don't. Cassius, he would be so ashamed if I didn't make it. I wouldn't be able to look at him. Every member of my family is scarred. My father is an imperator. An imperator! If his son did not even make it through the passage, what would his soldiers think? He would still love you. Mine would. Julian shakes his head. He takes a breath and stands tall. I am Julian O. Bologna, of the family Bologna, my goodman. I don't want to do this. I can't explain how badly I don't want to hurt Julian. But when has what I wanted ever mattered? My people need this. Eo sacrificed happiness and her life. I can sacrifice my wants. I can sacrifice this slender princeling. I can even sacrifice my soul. I make the first move toward Julian. Darrow, he murmurs. Darrow was kind in Lycos. I am not. I hate myself for it. I think I'm crying because my vision is unclear. The rules and manners and morals of society are pulled away. All it takes is a stone room and two people needing the same scarce thing. Yet the shift isn't instantaneous. Even when I punch Julian in the face and his blood smears my knuckles, it doesn't seem a fight. The room is quiet. Awkward. I feel rude punching him, like I'm acting. The stone is cold on my feet. My skin prickles. Breath echoes. They want me to kill him because he didn't do well on their tests. This is a mismatch. I am Darwin's scythe. Nature scraping away the chaff. I don't know how to kill. I've never killed a man. I have no blade, no thumper, no scorcher. It seems impossible that I could make this boy of meat and muscle bleed dry just with my hands. I want to laugh, and Julian does. I am a naked child, slapping at another naked child in a cold room. His hesitancy is obvious. His feet move like he's trying to remember a dance. But when his elbows come to eye level, I panic. I don't know how he is fighting. He strikes half-heartedly at me in a foreign, artistic way. He's tentative, slow, but his timid fist gets my nose. Rage overtakes me. My face goes numb. My heart thunders. It's in my throat. My veins prickle. I break his nose with a straight. God, my hands are strong. He wails and ducks into me, grappling my arm into an odd angle. It pops. I use my forehead. It takes him just at the bridge of his nose. I grab the back of his neck and hit him again with my forehead. He can't break away. I do it again. Something cracks. Blood and spit lather my hair. His teeth cut my scalp. 
I drop back like I'm dancing, reverse off my left foot, weave forward and hit him with all my weight behind my right fist in his chest. My helldiver knuckles shatter his reinforced sternum. There's a great wheezing gasp and a crackling noise like snapping twigs. He tips backward onto the ground. I'm dazed from striking him with my forehead. Seeing red, seeing double, I stumble toward him. Tears stream down my cheeks. He's twitching. When I grab his golden hair, I find him already limp, like a wet, golden feather. Blood pulses from his nose. He is quiet. He no longer moves. No longer smiles. I mutter my wife's name as I fall to cradle his head. His face has become like a blood blossom. Part 3 Gold This is your sling blade, son. It'll scrape the earth's veins for you. It'll kill pit vipers. Keep it sharp, and if you get stuck in the drills, it'll save your life for the price of a limb. So said my uncle. Chapter 20 The House of Mars There's a stillness in my soul as I look at the broken boy. Even Cassius would not recognize Julian now. A cavity is carved into my heart. My hands tremble as the blood dribbles off them onto the cold stone. Rivers along the golden sigils upon my hands. I am a hell diver, but the sobs come even as the tears are gone. His blood trickles from my knee down my hairless shin. It's red, not golden. My knees feel the stone and my forehead touches it as I sob till exhaustion fills my chest. When I look up, he is still dead. This wasn't right. I thought the society only played games with its slaves. Wrong. Julian didn't score like I did on the tests. He wasn't as physically capable as I. So he was a sacrificial lamb. One hundred students per house, and the bottom fifty are only here to be killed by the top fifty. This is just a bloody damn test. For me. Even the family Bologna, powerful as they are, could not protect their less capable son. And that is the point. I hate myself. I know they made me do this, yet it still feels like a choice, like when I pulled Eo's legs and felt the snap of her small spine. My choice. But what other choice was there with her? With Julian? They do this to make us wear the guilt. There's nowhere to wipe the blood, only stone and two naked bodies. This is not who I am, who I want to be. I want to be a father, a husband, 
a dancer. Let me dig in the earth. Let me sing the songs of my people and leap and spin and run along the walls. I would never sing the forbidden song. I would work. I would bow. Let me wash dirt from my hands instead of blood. I want only to live with my family. We were happy enough. Freedom costs too much. But Eo disagreed. Damn her. I wait, but no one comes to see the mess I've made. The door is unlocked. I slip the golden ring over my finger after I close Julian's eyes, and I walk naked into the cold hall. It is empty. A soft light guides me up never-ending stairs. Water drips from the subterranean tunnel's ceiling. I use it to try to clean my body, but all I do is lather the blood into my skin, thinning it. I cannot escape it. What I've done, no matter how far I follow the tunnel. I am alone with my sin. This is why they rule. The peerless scarred know that dark deeds are carried through life. They cannot be outrun. They must be worn if one is to rule. This is their first lesson. Or was it that the weak do not deserve life? I hate them. But I hear them. Win. Bear the guilt. Reign. They want me pitiless. They want my memory short. But I was raised differently. All my people sing of are memories, and so I will remember this death. It will burden me as it does not burden my fellow students. I must not let that change. I must not become like them. I'll remember that every sin, every death, every sacrifice is for freedom. Yet now I'm afraid. Can I bear the next lesson? Can I pretend to be as cold as Augustus? I now know why he did not flinch in hanging my wife. And I'm beginning to understand why golds rule. They can do what I cannot. Though I am alone, I know I will soon find others. They want me to soak in the guilt for now. They want me lonely, mournful, so that when I meet the others, the winners, I will be relieved. The murders will bind us, and I'll find the company of the winners a salve to my guilt. I do not love my fellow students, but I will think I do. I will want their comfort, their reassurances that I am not evil. And they will want the same. This is meant to make us a family, one with cruel secrets. I am right. My tunnel leads me to the others. I see Roke, the poet, first. He bleeds from the back of his head. Blood is slick on his right elbow. I didn't think him capable of killing. Whose blood? His eyes are red from crying. We find Antonia next. 
Like us, she is naked. She moves like a golden ship, drifting along, quiet and aloof. Her feet leave bloody footprints where she walks. I dread finding Cassius. I hope he is dead, because I'm afraid of him. He reminds me of Dancer, handsome, laughing, yet a dragon just beneath the surface. But that's not why I'm afraid. I'm afraid because he has a reason to hate me, to want to kill me. No one in my life has had just cause before. No one has ever hated me. He will, if he finds out. Then I realize it. How could the house ever be knit tightly with such secrets? It can't. Cassius will know someone here killed his brother. Others will have lost friends, and so the house will devour itself. The society did this on purpose. They want chaos. It will be our second test. Tribal strife. The three of us find the other survivors in a cavernous stone dining hall, dominated by a long wooden table. Torches light the room. Night's mist slithers through open windows. It is like something from the old tales, the times they call medieval. Toward the far end of the long room is a plinth. A giant stone towers there. Embedded in its center is a golden primus hand. Golden and black tapestries flank the stone. A wolf howls upon the tapestries, as though calling out a warning. It is the primus hand that will tear this house apart. Each one of these little princes and princesses will think themselves deserved of the honor of leading the house, yet only one can. I move like a ghost with the other students, drifting around the stone halls of what seems to be a giant castle. There is a room in which we are to clean ourselves. A trough runs icy water along the cold floor. Now blood runs with the water to the right and disappears into the stone. I feel like some sort of spectre in a land of fog and rock. Black and gold fatigues are laid out for us in a relatively barren armory. Each student finds the fatigue bundle tagged with his or her name. A golden symbol of a howling wolf marks the high collars and sleeves of our clothing. I take my clothing with me and dress alone in some storage room. There, I fall into the corner and sit, silent. This place is so cold and quiet, so far from home. Roke finds me. He's striking in his uniform, lean like a strand of golden summer wheat, with high cheekbones and warm eyes, but his face is pale. He sits on his haunches across from me for several minutes before he reaches over to clasp my hands. I draw back, but he holds on till I look at him. If you are thrown into the deep and do not swim, you will drown, he says, and raises his thin eyebrows. So, keep swimming, right? I force a chuckle. A poet's logic. He shrugs. Doesn't count for much. So I'll give you facts, brother man, 
This is the system. The lower colors have their children by use of catalysts. Fast births, sometimes only five months of gestation before labor is induced. Except for the obsidians, only we wait nine months to be born. Our mothers receive no catalysts, no sedatives, no nucleics. Have you asked yourself why? So the product can be pure. And so that nature is given a chance to kill us. The Board of Quality Control is firmly convinced that 13.6213% of all gold children should die before one year of age. Sometimes they make reality fit this number. He splays out his thin hands. Why? Because they believe civilization weakens natural selection. They do nature's work so that we do not become a soft race. The passage, it seems, is a continuation of that policy. Only we were the tools they used. My victim was, bless his soul, a fool. He was from a family of no worth, and he had no wits, no intelligence, no ambition. He frowns at the words before sighing. He had nothing the board values. There is a reason he was to die. Was there a reason Julian was to die? Roke knows what he does because his mother is on the board. He loathes his mother, and only then do I realize I should like him. Not only that, I take refuge in his words. He disagrees with the rules, but he follows them. It is possible. I can do the same until I have power enough to change them. We should join the others, I say, standing. In the dining hall, our names float above the chairs in golden letters. Our test scores are gone. Our names have also appeared beneath the primer's hand in the black stone. They float, golden, upward toward the golden hand. I'm closest, though there's still much distance to cover. Some of the students cry together in small groups by the long wooden table. Others sit against the wall, heads in hands. A limping girl looks for her friend. Antonia glares over at the table where small Severo sits eating. Of course, he's the only one with an appetite. Frankly, I'm surprised he survived. He is tiny and was our ninety-ninth and last draft pick. By Roke's proposed rules, he should be dead. Titus, the giant, is alive and bruised. Those knuckles of his look like a dirty butcher's block. He stands arrogantly apart from the rest, grinning like this is all splendid fun. Roke speaks quietly with the limping girl, Leah. She falls down crying and throws her ring. She looks like a deer, eyes wide and glistening. He sits with her and holds her hand. There's a peacefulness to him that is unique in the room. Wonder how peaceful he seemed when strangling some other kid to death. I roll my ring on and off my finger.
someone smacked my head lightly from behind. Oi, brother man! Cassius, I nod. Cheers to your victory. I was worried you were all brains. Cassius laughs. His golden curls are not even tousled. He throws an arm around me and surveys the room with a wrinkled nose. He feigns this nonchalance. I can tell he's worried. Ah, is there anything more ugly than self-pity? All this crying? He smirks and points at a girl with a busted nose. And she just became aggressively unpleasant. Not that she was ever much to sniff at, eh? Eh? I forget to speak. Shell-shocked, man. They get your windpipe. Just not much for joking about right now, I say. Took some knocks to the head. Shoulder is a bit slagged, too. This isn't my usual scene. Shoulder can be fixed straight off. Let's get it back in the socket. He casually grips my dislocated shoulder and jerks it into its socket before I can protest. I gasp in pain. He chuckles. Prime. Prime. He slaps me on the same shoulder. Help me out, won't you? He extends his left hand. His dislocated fingers look like lightning bolts. I pull them straight. He laughs with the pain, not knowing his brother's blood is under my fingernails. I'm trying not to hyperventilate. Spotted Julian yet, man? He finally asks. He speaks in mid-lingo, now that Priam is nowhere to be seen. Not a sight. Meh. The kid is probably trying to be gentle with his fight. Father taught us the silent art, cravat. Julian is a prodigy at it. He thinks I'm better. Cassius frowns. Thinks I'm better at everything, which is understandable. Just got to get him going. Speaking of it, who'd you slag? My inside's not. I make up a lie. And it's a good one, vague and boring. He only wants to talk about himself now anyway. After all, this is what Cassius was bred for. There are roughly fifteen kids who have that same quiet gleam in their eye, not evil, just excited. And those are the ones to watch, because they're the born killers. Looking around, it's easy to see that Roke was right. There weren't many tough fights. This was forced natural selection. Bottom of the heap getting slaughtered by the top. Hardly anyone is severely injured except a couple of small low drafts. Natural selection sometimes has its surprises. Cassius's fight was easy, he says. He did it right and fair and quick. Crushed the windpipe with a blade jab ten seconds into squaring up. Caught his fingers oddly, though. Prime. I've made a corpse of the best killer's brother. Dread creeps into me to make a home. Cassius grows quieter when Fitchner saunters in and orders us to the table. One by one, the fifty seats fill, and bit by bit, his face darkens as each chance for Julian to join the table disappears. When the last seat fills, 
he does not move. It is a cold anger that radiates, not hot as I thought it would be. Antonia sits across from us, opposite me, and watches him. Her mouth works, but she says nothing. You don't comfort his sort. And I didn't think her the kind to try. Julian isn't the only one missing. Aria, all curls and dimples, is lying limp on a cold floor somewhere. And Priam is gone. Perfect Priam the Premier, heir of Mars's moons. I heard he was the first sword in the solar system for his birth year. A duelist without peer. I guess he wasn't too lethal with his fist. I look around the tired faces. Who the hell killed him? The board messed that one up, and I wager his mother will cause hell, because he certainly wasn't meant to die. We're wasting the best of us, Cassius murmurs measuredly. Hello, you little shit-eaters! Fitchner yawns and kicks his feet up onto the table. Now, it might have dawned on you that the passage may as well be called The Culling. Fitchner scratches his groin with his razor's hilt. His manners are worse than mine. And you may think it a waste of good goals, but you're an idiot if you think fifty children make a dent in our numbers. There are more than one million goals on Mars, more than one hundred million in the solar system. Not all get to be peerless scarred, though, eh? Now, if you think this was vile, consider that the Spartans would kill more than ten percent of all children born to them. Nature would kill another thirty. We are gory humanitarians in comparison. Of the six hundred students that are left, most were in the top one percent of applicants. Of the six hundred that are dead, most were in the bottom one percent of applicants. There was no waste. He chuckles and looks around the table with a surprising amount of pride. Except for that idiot, Priam. Yeah, there's a lesson for you lot. He was a brilliant boy. Beautiful, strong, fast, a genius who studied day and night with a dozen tutors. But he was pampered. And someone, I won't say who, because that'd undermine the fun of this whole curriculum, but someone knocked him down onto the stone and then stomped on his trachea till he died. He put his hands behind his head. Now, this is your new family. House Mars, one of twelve houses. No, you are not special because you live on Mars and are in House Mars. Those in House Venus on Venus are not special. They merely fit the house. You get the flow. After the Institute, you're looking for apprenticeships, hopefully with the families Bologna, Augustus, or Arcos if you want to do me proud. Prior graduates from House Mars may help you find these apprenticeships, may offer you apprenticeships of their own, or maybe you'll be so successful that you don't need anyone's help.
but let us make it crystal. Right now, you are babies. Stupid little babies. Your parents handed you everything. Others wiped your little asses, Cooked your food. Fought your wars. Tucked your little shiny noses in at night. Rusters dig before they get a chance to screw. They build your cities and find your fuel and pick up your shit. Pinks learn the art of getting someone's jollies off before they even need to shave. Obsidians have the worst gory life you could imagine, nothing but frost and steel and pain. They were bred for their work, trained early for it. All you little princelings and princesses have had to do was look like little versions of Mommy and Daddy and learn your manners and play piano and equestrian and sport. But now you belong to the Institute, to House Mars, to the Prefecture of Mars, to your colour, to the society, blah, blah. Fitchner's smirk is lazy. His veiny hand rests on his paunch. Tonight, you finally did something yourselves. You beat a baby just like you. But that's worth about as much as a pink horse fart. Our little society balances on the tip of a needle. The other colours would rip your gory damn hearts out, given the chance. And then there's the silvers, the coppers, the blues. You think they'd be loyal to a bunch of babies? You think the obsidians will follow little turds like you? Those baby stranglers would make you their little cuddle slaves if they saw weakness. So, you must show none. So, what? The Institute is supposed to make us tough. Huge Titus grunts. No, you colossal oaf. It's supposed to make you smart, cruel, wise, hard. It's supposed to age you fifty years and ten months and show you what your ancestors did to give you this empire. May I continue? He blows a gum bubble. Now, House Mars. His thin hand scratches his belly. Yeah, we've got a proud house that could maybe even match some of the elder families. We've got politicos, praetors, and judicia. The current arch-governors of Mercury and Europa, a tribune, dozens of praetors, two justices, an imperator of a fleet. Even Lorne Ao Arcos of the family Arcos, third most powerful family on Mars for those not keeping track, maintains his bonds with us. All of those high-ups are looking for new talent. They picked you from the other candidates to fill the roster. Impress these important men and women, and you'll have an apprenticeship after this. Win, and you'll have your pick of apprenticeships within the house, or an elder family. Maybe even Arcos himself will want you. If that happens, you'll be on the fast track to position, fame, and power. I lean forward. But when? I ask. What is there to win? He smiles. At this moment, you are in a remote, terraformed valley in the southernmost part of Valis Marineris. In this valley, there are twelve houses 
in twelve castles. After orientation tomorrow, you will go to war with your fellow students to dominate the valley by any means at your disposal. Consider it a case study in gaining and ruling an empire. There are murmurs of excitement. It is a game, and here I thought I would have to study something in a classroom. And what if you are Primus of the Winning House? Antonia asks. She twirls a finger through her golden curls. Then welcome to glory, darling. Welcome to fame and power. So, I must be Primus. We eat a plain dinner. When Fitzner leaves, Cassius stirs, his voice becoming cold and filled with dark humour. Let us all play a game, my friends. We will each say whom we killed. I will start. Nexus Ausalintus. I knew him when we were children, as I know some of you. I broke his trachea with my fingers. No one speaks. Come now. Family should not keep secrets. Still, no one answers. Severo is the first to leave, making his derision for Cassius's game clear. First to eat, first to sleep. I want to follow. Instead, I make small talk with peaceful Roke and massive Titus after Cassius gives up on his game and retires as well. Titus is impossible to like. He's not funny, but everything is a joke to him. It's like he's sneering at me, at everyone, even though he is smiling. I want to hit him, but he doesn't give me a reason. Everything he says is perfectly innocuous. Yet I hate him. It's like he doesn't think me a human. Instead, I'm just a chess piece, and he's waiting to move me around. No, shove me around. He somehow forgot to be seventeen or eighteen like the rest. He is a man. Taller than two metres, easy, maybe nearing two and a half metres. Lithe Roke, on the other hand, reminds me so much of my brother Kieran. If Kieran could kill. His smiles are kind, his words patient and wistful and wise, just as they had been earlier. Leah, the girl who looks like a limping baby deer, follows him everywhere. He's patient with her, in a way I couldn't be. Late in the night, I look for the places where the students died. I cannot find them. The stairs no longer exist. The castle has swallowed them. I find rest in a long dormitory filled with thin mattresses. Wolves howl from the shifting mists that cloak the highlands beyond our castle. I find sleep quickly. Chapter 21 Our Dominion Fitzner wakes us from the long dormitories in the dark of morning. Grumbling, we roll out of double bunk beds and set out from the keep to the castle square, where we stretch, then set off at a run. We lope easily in the point three seven grave. Clouds drop soft showers. The canyon walls, fifty kilometres west and forty kilometres east of our little valley, 
tower six kilometers high. Between them is an ecosystem of mountains, forests, rivers and plains. Our battlefield. Ours is a highland territory. There rise mossy hills and craggy peaks that dip into U-shaped grassy glens. Mist blankets all, even the thick forests that lie like homespun quilts over the foothills. Our castle stands on a hill just north of a river in the middle of a bowl-like glen, half grass, half woods. Greater hills cup the glen in a semicircle to the north and south. I should like it here. Eo would have. But without her I feel as lonely as our castle looks on its high, removed hill. I reach for the locket, for our Himanthus. Neither is with me. I feel empty in this paradise. Three walls of our hill castle stand atop eighty metres stone cliffs. The castle itself is huge. Its walls rise thirty metres. The gatehouse swells out from the walls as a fortress with turrets. Inside the walls, our square keep is part of the northwestern wall and rises fifty metres. A gentle slope leads up from the glen's floor to the castle's western gate opposite the keep. We run down this slope along a lonely dirt road. Mist embraces us. I relish the cold air. It purifies me after hours of fitful sleep. The mist burns away as the summer day dawns. Deerling, thinner and faster than the creatures of earth, graze in the fir woods. Birds circle above. A single raven promises eerie things. Sheep litter the field, and goats wander the high rocky hills we run up in a line of fifty and one. Others of my house may see animals of earth, or curious creatures the carvers decided to make for fun, but I see only food and clothing. The sacred animals of Mars make their home in our territory. Woodpeckers hammer oak and fir. At night, wolves howl across the highlands and stalk during the day through the woodlands. There are snakes near the river. Vultures in the quiet gulches. Killers running beside me. What friends I have. If only Lauren or Kieran or Matteo were here to watch my back. Someone I could trust. I'm a sheep wearing wolves' clothing and a pack of wolves. As Fitchner runs us up the rocky heights, Leah, the girl with the limp, falls. He lazily nudges at her with his foot till we carry her on our shoulders. Roke and I bear the load. Titus smirks, and only Cassius helps when Roke tires. Then Pollux, a lean, craggy-voiced boy with buzzed hair, takes over for me. He sounds like he's been smoking burners since he was two. We trudge through a summer valley of forests and fields. Bugs nip at us there. The gold brows drip with sweat, but I do not. This is an icy bath compared to the rigours of my old fry suit. All about me are trim and fit. But Cassius, Severo, Antonia, Quinn, the bloody damn fastest girl, or thing I've ever seen on two feet. Titus, 
three of his new friends and I could leave the rest behind. Only Fitchner with his grav boots could outpace us. He bounds along like a deerling, then he chases one down and his razor whips out. It encircles the deerling's throat and he contracts the blade to kill the animal. Supper, he says, grinning. Drag it. You could have killed it closer to the castle, several mutters. Fitzner scratches his head and looks around. Did anyone else hear a squat, ugly little goblin go, well, whatever sound goblins make? Drag it. Severo grabs the deer's leg. Dickwit. We reach the summit of a rocky height, five kilometres southwest of our castle. A stone tower dominates the peak. From the top, we survey the battlefield. Somewhere out there, our enemies do the same. The theatre of war stretches to the south farther than we can see. A snowy mountain range fills the western horizon. To the southeast, a primordial wood knots the landscape. Dividing the two is a lush plain split by a massive southbound river, the Argos, and its tributaries. Farther south, past the plains and rivers, the ground dips away into marshes. I cannot see beyond. A great floating mountain hovers two kilometres up in the bluish sky. It is Olympus, Fitchner explains, an artificial mountain where the proctors watch each year's class. Its peak shimmers with a fairy tale castle. Leah shuffles closer to stand beside me. How does it float? she asks sweetly. I haven't the faintest clue. I look north. Two rivers in a forested valley split our northern territory, which is at the edge of a vast wilderness. They form a V pointing southwest to the lowlands, where they eventually form one tributary to the Argos. Surrounding the valley are the highlands, dramatic hills and dwarf mountains scarred with gulches where mist still clings. This is Phobos Tower, Fitchner says. The tower lies in the far southwest of our territory. He drinks from a canteen while we go thirsty and points northwest where the two rivers meet in the valley to form their V. A massive tower crowns a distant dwarf mountain range just beyond the junction. And that is Dimos. He traces an imaginary line to show us the bounds of House Mars's territory. The eastern river is called the Furor. The western, which runs just south of our castle, is the Metos. A single bridge spans the Metos. An enemy would have to cross it to enter between the V into the valley and strike northeast across easy wooded ground to reach our castle. This is a slagging joke, isn't it? Severo asks Fitchner. Whatever do you mean, goblin? Fitchner pops a gum bubble. Our legs are as wide as a pink horse. All these mountains and hills, and anyone can just walk right in the front door. It's a perfect flat passage from the lowlands right to our gate, just one stinking river to cross. Pointing out the obvious, eh? You know, I really do not like you, you foul little goblin. 
Fitchner stares at Severa for a purposeful moment, and then shrugs. Anyway, I'll be on Olympus. What does that mean, Proctor? Cassius asks sourly. He doesn't like the look of things either. Though his eyes are red from weeping through the night for his dead brother, it hasn't dulled his impressiveness. I mean, it's your problem, little prince, not mine. No one's going to fix anything for you. I am your proctor, not your mommy. You're in school, remember? So if your legs are open, well, make a chastity belt to protect the soft spot. There's general grumbling. Could be worse, I say. I point past Antonia's head toward the southern plains where an enemy fortress spans a great river. We could be exposed like those poor bastards. Those poor bastards have crops and orchards, Fitchner muses. You have. He looks over the ledge to find the deer he killed. Well, Goblin here left the deer behind, so you have nothing. The wolves will eat what you do not. Unless we eat the wolves, Severa mutters, drawing strange looks from the rest of our house. So, we have to get our own food. Antonia points to the lowlands. What are they doing? A black dropship slides down from the clouds. It settles in the centre of the grassy plain between us and the distant enemy river fortress of Ceres. Three obsidians and a dozen tin pots stand guard as browns hustle out to set hams, steaks, biscuits, wine, milk, honey and cheeses onto a disposable table eight kilometres from Phobos Tower. A trap, obviously, Severo snorts. Thank you, Goblin, Cassius sighs, but I haven't had breakfast. Circles ring his reckless eyes. He glances over at me through the crowd of our fellows and offers a smile. Up for a race, Darrow. I start with surprise, then I smile. On your mark. And he's off. I've done dumber things to feed my family. I did dumber things when someone I loved died. Cassius is owed the company as he races down the steep hillside. Forty-eight kids watch us scamper to fill our bellies. None follow. Bring me a slice of honeyed ham, Fitchner shouts. Antonia calls us idiots. The dropship floats away as we leave the highlands behind for gentler terrain. Eight kilometres in .376 grav, Earth standard, is a cinch. We scramble down rocky hillsides, then hit the lowland plains at full tilt through ankle-high grass. Cassius beats me to the tables by a body length. He's fast. We each take a pint of the ice water on the table. I drink mine faster. He laughs. Looks like the house Ceres mark on their flagpole. The harvest goddess. Cassius points over across the green plains to the fortress. A few trees dot the several kilometres between us and the castle. Pennants flap from their ramparts. He pops a grape into his mouth. We should take a closer look before chowing down, 
a little scouting. Agreed. But something isn't right here, I say quietly. Cassius laughs at the open plain. Nonsense. We'd see trouble if it was coming, and I don't think any one of them is going to be faster than us two. We can strut up to their gates and take a shit if we so like. I do have something brewing. I touch my stomach. Yet still, something is wrong. And not just in my belly. It's six kilometers of open ground between the river fortress and us. The river gurgles in the distance to the right. Forest to the far left. Plains in front. Mountains beyond the river. Wind rustles the long grass, and a sparrow coasts in with the breeze. It swoops low to the ground before flinching up and away. I laugh loudly and lean against the table. They are in the grass, I whisper. A trap. We can steal sacks from them and carry more of this back, he says loudly. Run? Pixie. He grins, though neither of us is sure if we are allowed to start the fighting during orientation day. Whatever. On three, we kick apart the disposable table's legs till we each have a meter of duroplastic as a weapon. I scream like a madman and sprint toward the spot where the sparrow fled, Cassius at my side. Five house Ceres gulls rise from the grass. They're startled by our mad rush. Cassius catches the first in the face with a proper fencer's lunge. I'm less graceful. My shoulder is stiff and sore. I scream and break my weapon across one of their knees. He goes down howling. Duck someone's swing, Cassius deflects it. We dance as two. There's three of them left. One squares up with me. He doesn't have a knife or a bat. No, he has something I'm far more interested in. A question mark of a sword. A sling blade for reaping grain. He faces me with his back hand on his hip and the crooked blade out like a razor. If it were a razor, I'd be dead. But it's not. I make him miss, block one of Cassius's attacker's blows, lurch forward at my attacker. I'm much quicker than he, and my grip is like duro steel to his, so I take his sling blade and his knife before I punch him down. When he sees how I twirl the sling blade in my hand, the last uninjured boy knows it's time to surrender. Cassius jumps high in the point three seven six grav and executes an unnecessary twirling sideways kick to the boy's face. Reminds me of the dancers and leapers of Lycos. Cravat, the silent dance, eerily similar to the boast dancing of young reds. Nothing is silent about the boy's curses. I feel no pity for these students. They all murdered someone the night before, just like me. There are no innocents in this game. The only thing that worries me is seeing how Cassius dispatched his victims. He is grace and finesse. I am rage and momentum. He could kill me in a second if he knew my secret. What a lark, he croons. You were gory terrifying. You just took his weapon. Gory fast. Glad we weren't paired earlier. Prime stuff. What are you to say for yourselves, you sneaking fools? 
The captured gulls just swear at us. I stand over them and cock my head. Is this the first time you've lost at something? No answer. I frown. Well, that must be embarrassing. Cassius's face shines. For a moment he's forgotten his brother's death. I haven't. I feel darkness. Hollow. Evil when the adrenaline fades. Is this what Eo wanted? For me to play games? Fitzner arrives in the air above us, clapping his hands. His grav boots glimmer golden. He's got his ham slice between his teeth. Reinforcements come, he laughs. Titus and a half dozen of the faster boys and girls run toward us from the highlands. Opposite, a golden shape rises from the distant river fortress and flies toward us. A beautiful woman with short cropped hair settles next to Fitchner in the air. The proctor of the house Ceres. She carries a bottle of wine and two glasses. Mars, a picnic, she calls, referring to him by his house's deity. So, who arranged for this drama, Ceres? Fitzner asks. Oh, Apollo, I suppose. He's lonely up in his mountain estates. Here, this is Zinfandel from his vines. Much better than last year's varietal. Delicious, Fitzner proclaims. But your boys were squatting in the grass, almost as if they expected the picnic to spontaneously manifest. Suspicious, no? Details, Proctor Ceres laughs. Pedantic details. Well, here's a detail. It seems two of mine are worth five of yours this year, my dear. These pretty boys, Ceres snickers. I thought the vain ones went to Apollo and Venus. Oh, well, yours certainly fight like housewives and farmers. Well placed they were. Don't judge them yet, you cad. They are mid-draft picks. My high drafts are elsewhere, earning their first calluses. Learning the ovens? Huzzah! Fitzner declares, ironically. Bakers do make the best rulers, so I've heard. She nudges him. Oh, you devil! No wonder you interviewed for the Rage Night Post, such a scoundrel. They clink their glasses together as we watch from the ground. How I love Orientation Day, Ceres titters. Mercury just let a hundred thousand rats loose in Jupiter's citadel, but Jupiter was ready because Diana tattled and arranged the delivery of a thousand cats. Jupiter's boys won't go hungry like last year. Cats will be as fat as Barkus. Diana's a harlot, Fitchner declares. Be kind. I was. I sent her a great phallic cake filled with live woodpeckers. You didn't. I did. You beast. Ceres caresses his arm. And I note the free loving demeanor these people have. I wonder if other proctors are lovers as well. Her fortress will be riddled with holes. Oh, the sound must be horrible. Well played, Mars. They say Mercury is the trickster, but your japes always have a certain... Flair. Flair, eh? Well, I'm sure I could rustle up some tricks for you on Olympus. Huzzah! 
she coos suggestively. They toast again, floating above their sweating and bloody students. I can't help but laugh. These people are mad. Bloody damn crazy in their empty golden heads. How are they, my rulers? Oi, Fitch, if you don't mind. What are we supposed to do with these farmers? Cassius calls up. He pokes one of our injured captives on the nose. What are the rules? Eat them, Fitchner cries. And Darrow, put down that gory side. You look like a grain reaper. I don't drop it. It is close to the shape of my sling blade from home, not as sharp because it isn't meant to kill, but the balance is no different. You know, you could let my children go and give them back the reaping scythe, Ceres suggests to us. Give me a kiss and you have a deal, Cassius calls up. The Imperator's boy, she asks Fitchner. He nods. Come ask for one when you're scarred, little prince. She looks over her shoulder. Until then, I would advise you and the Reaper to run. We hear the hooves before we see the painted horses galloping at us across the plain. They come from the opened gates of House Ceres's castle. The girls on the horses' backs carry nets. They gave you horses. Horses, Fitchner complains. That is so unfair. We run and barely make it to the woods. I didn't like my first encounter with horses. They still scared the piss out of me, all snorting and stomping. Cassius and I gasp for breath. My shoulder aches. Two of Titus's reinforcements are captured as they find themselves stranded in open ground. Bold Titus knocks a horse over and is laughing as he's about to lay waste to one of the girls with his boot. Ceres zaps him with a stun fist and makes peace with Fitchner. The stun fist causes Titus to piss himself. Only Severo is careless enough to laugh. Cassius says something about bad manners, but he snickers quietly. Titus notices. Are we allowed to kill them or not? Titus growls that night at dinner. We eat the leftovers from Bacchus's feast. Or am I going to get stunned every time? Well, the point isn't to kill them, Fitchner says. So no, let's not go around massacring your classmates, you mad ape. But we did before, Titus protests. What is wrong with you? Fitchner asks. The passage was where the culling is done. It's no longer survival of the fittest, you mad, stupid, colossal sack of muscle. What would be the point if we now had the fittest just murder each other till only a few are left? There are new tests to pass now. Ruthlessness, Antonia crosses her arms. So now it's not acceptable? Is that what you're saying? Oh, it better be acceptable. Titus grins broadly. He's been boasting all night about knocking over the horse, as if it'd make everyone forget the piss that stained his pants. Some have. He's already gathered a pack of hounds. Only Cassius and I seem to have an ounce of his respect, but even we're smirked at. So is Fitchner. 
Fitner sets down his honeyed ham. Let us clarify, children, so this water buffalo doesn't go around stomping on skulls. Ruthlessness is acceptable, dear Antonia. If someone dies by accident, that is understandable. Accidents happen to the best of us. But you will not murder each other with scorchers. You will not hang people from your ramparts unless they're already dead. Medbots are on standby, in case any medical attention is direly needed. They are fast enough to save lives, most of the time. Remember, though, the point is not to kill. We don't care if you're as ruthless as Vlad Dracula. He's still lost. The point is to win. That's what we want. And that simple test of cruelty is already passed. We want you to show us your brilliance. Like Alexander, like Caesar, Napoleon, and Mary Water. We want you to manage an army, distribute justice, arrange for provisions of food and armor. Any fool can stick a blade into another's belly. The school's role is to find the leaders of men, not the killers of men. So the point, you silly little children, is not to kill, but to conquer. And how do you conquer in a game where there are eleven enemy tribes? Take them out one at a time, Titus answers knowingly. No, ogre. Dumbass, Severo snickers to himself. Titus's pack quietly watches the smallest boy in the Institute. No threats are snarled, no faces twitch, just a silent promise. It's hard to remember that they are all geniuses. They look too pretty, too athletic, too cruel to be geniuses. Anyone besides Ogre have a guess? Fitchner asks. No one answers. You make one tribe out of twelve, I finally say, by taking slaves. Just like the society. Build on the backs of others. It isn't cruel. It is practical. Fitzner claps mockingly. Prime, Reaper. Prime. Looks like someone is bucking for Primus. Everyone shifts in agitation at that last bit. Fitzner pulls a long box from under the table. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is what you use to make slaves. He pulls out our standard. Protect this. Protect your castle. And conquer all the others. Chapter 22 The Tribes Fitchner is gone in the morning. In his chair lies the standard. It is a one-foot length of iron tipped with our howling wolf. A serpent coils beneath the wolf's feet the star-tipped pyramid of the society beneath that. A five-foot oak pole connects to the iron end. If the castle is our home, the standard is our honor. With it, we are able to turn enemies into our slaves by pressing it to their foreheads. There, a wolf sigil will appear until another standard is pressed to the forehead.
Slaves must obey our express commands, or forever be shamed. I sit across from the standard in the morning dark, eating Apollo's leftovers. A wolf calls out in the mist. Its howl comes through the keep's high window. Tall Antonia is the first to join me. She glides in like a lonely tower or a beautiful golden spider. I haven't decided which way her personality runs. We exchange glances, but no greetings. She wants Primus. Cassius and raspy Pollux saunter in next. Pollux grumbles about having to go to bed without pinks to tuck him in. A positively hideous standard, don't you think? Antonia complains. They could at least have given it a splash of colour. I think it should be draped with red for rage and blood. It's not too heavy. Cassius hefts the standard by its pole. Reckoned it'd be gold. He admires the golden primus hand within the block of black stone. He wants it too. And they gave us a map. Swell. A new stone map dominates one of the walls. The detail near our castle is remarkable, the rest less so. The fog of war. Cassius claps me on the back and joins in eating. He doesn't know I heard him weep again in the night. We shared a new bunk in a barracks in the keep's high tower. Many others still sleep in the main tower. Titus and his friends have taken the low tower, even though they don't have enough bodies to fill it. Most of the house is woken by the time Severo drags in a dead wolf by its legs. It's already gutted and skinned. Goblin has brought victuals, Cassius applauds daintily. Hmm, we will need firewood. Does anyone know how to make a fire? Severo does. Cassius grins. Of course you do, Goblin. Found the sheep too easy to kill, I ask. Where'd you get the weapon? Born with them. His fingernails are bloody. Antonia wrinkles her nose. Where in the hell were you raised? Several presents his middle finger to her, the crooks. Ah! Antonia sniffs. Hell, then. So, as I'm sure you've all noticed, it will be some time before anyone has enough bars of merit to become primus. Cassius declares, when we've all gathered around the table. Naturally, I was thinking that we need a leader before Primus is chosen. He stands and scoots away from Severo so that his fingers rest on the edge of the standard. In order for us to function, we must have immediate and coordinated decisions. And which of you two fools do you think it should be? Antonia asks dryly. Her large eyes glance from him to me. She turns to regard the others, Voice sweet like thick syrup. At this point, what makes any of us better suited to lead than anyone else? They got us dinner. And breakfast, Leah says meekly from beside Roke. She gestures to the leftover picnic victuals. While running right into a trap, Roke reminds everyone. 
Antonia nods sagely. Yes, yes, a wise point. Rashness can hurt us. But they did fight free, Rogue finishes, earning a glare from Antonia. With table legs against real weapons, Titus rumbles his approval with a qualification, but then they fled and left the food behind. So it was Fitchner who gave us the food. They would have given it to the enemy, delivering food like Browns. Yeah, that's a twist on what happened, Cassius says. Titus shrugs. I only saw you running like a little pixie. Cassius goes cold. Watch your manners, Goodman. Titus holds up his hands. Merely observing. Why so angry, little prince? You watch your manners, Goodman, or we'll have to trade our words for blades. Cassius wheels his looted pitchfork and points it at Titus. You heed, Titus Auladros. Titus holds gaze with him, then glances over at me, grouping me with Cassius. Suddenly, Cassius and I form a tribe in everyone's eyes. The paradigm shifts that quickly. Politics. I take my time twirling my looted knife between my fingers. The whole table watches the knife, Severo especially. My red right hand has collected a million metric tons of helium-3 with its dexterity, my left half a million. The dexterity of an average low red would startle these golds. I dazzle them. The knife is like a hummingbird's wings in my nimble fingers. I look calm, but my mind is racing. We have all killed. Those were the stakes. What are they now? Titus has already made it clear that he wants to kill. I could stop him now, I wager, drive my knife into his neck, but the thought almost makes me drop my blade. I feel Eo's death in my hands. I hear the wet thump of Julian dying. I can't bear the blood, especially when it doesn't seem necessary. I can back this huge puppy down. I level my eyes coldly at Titus. His smile is slow, the disdain barely noticeable. He's calling me out. I have to fight him, or something, if he doesn't look away. That's what wolves do, I think. My knife spins and spins, and suddenly Titus is laughing. He looks away. My heart slows. I've won. I hate politics, especially in a room full of alphas. Of course I hear you, Cassius. You're standing ten feet away. Titus chuckles. Titus doesn't think he's strong enough to challenge Cassius and me openly, even with his pack. He saw what we did to the Ceres boys. But just like that, the lines are drawn. I stand suddenly, confirming that I am with Cassius. It strips Titus of any momentum. Is there anyone who wouldn't want either of us to lead? I ask. I wouldn't want Antonia to lead. She's a bitch, Severo says. Antonia shrugs her agreement but cocks her head. 
Cassie, why are you in such a rush to find us a leader? She asks. If we do not have one leader, then we will fracture and do as we each think is best. Cassia says. That's how we lose. Instead of what you think is best, she says with a soft smile and a nod. I see. Don't give me that condescension, Antonia. Priam even agreed we needed one leader. Who is Priam? Titus laughs. He's trying to get attention back on himself once more. Every gold kid on the planet knew Priam. Now Titus tries to make it clear who killed him, and the others take note. Momentum regained. Except, I know Titus didn't kill Priam. They wouldn't put someone like him in with Priam. They would have put a weakling in there. So Titus is a liar, as well as a bully. Ah, I see. Because you plotted with Priam, you know what needs to be done, Cassius. You know better than all of us. Antonia waves at the table. You're telling us we're helpless without your guidance. She's trapped him. And me too. Listen, boys. I know you're eager to lead, she continues. I get that. We are all leaders by nature. Each person in this room is a born genius, a born captain. But that is why the Primus Merit System exists. When someone has earned five fingers of merit and is ready to be Primus, then we will have a leader. Until then, I say we hold out. If Cassius or Darrell earns it, then so be it. I'll do whatever they command. Obedient as a pink, simple as a red. She gestures to the others. Until then, I think one of you should also have a chance to earn it. After all, it may decide your career. She's clever. And she's sunk us. Every brat in the room was no doubt wishing they'd been more assertive from the get-go, wishing they could have another chance to make people notice them. Now Antonia gives it to them. This'll be chaos, and she may end up as Primus. Definitely a spider. Look, Leah says from Rogue's side. A horn bellows beyond the castle. The standard chooses that moment to shimmer. Snake and wolf shed iron for gleaming gold. Not only that, but the stone map on the wall comes alive. Our wolf banner ripples over a miniature of our castle. Ceres's banner does the same. No other castles mark the map, but the banners of the undiscovered houses flap off in the map's key. No doubt they'll find a home as soon as we scout the surrounding territory. The game has begun. And now everyone wants to be Primus. I see why democracy is illegal. First comes yelling, frustration, indecision, disagreement, ideas, scout, fortify, gather food, lay traps, blitz, raid, defence, offence. Pollock spits. Titus knocks him out cold. Antonia leaves. Severo says something snide to Titus and drags his wolf off to God knows where, never having lit a fire. 
It's like my Lambda drill team whenever a head talk would take an hour sick. That's how I learned I could drill. Barlow snuck off to take a smoke, and I hopped on the rig and did as I thought was best. I do the same now, as the children bicker. Cassius, Roke, and Leah, who follows Roke everywhere, come with me, though Cassius likely thinks we follow him. We agree that the others will not know what to do, and so will inevitably do nothing today. They will guard the castle, or seek out wood for a fire, or cluster around the standard for fear of it walking off. I don't know what to do. I don't know if our enemies are slinking through the hills toward us. I don't know if they are making alliance against Mars. I don't know how the damn game is even played. But for some reason, I assume that not all of the other houses will fall to discord like this. We of Mars seem more prone to disagreement. I ask Cassius what he thinks we should do. Once, I challenged this prancing oaf to a duel for disrespecting my family, an Augustus fop. He was very methodical, tightened his gloves, tied back his pretty hair, swished his razor as he did before every gory practice bat he's ever had at the Aegea Marshall Club. And... And I hooked him and stabbed him through the kneecap while he was still swishing his razor in preparation. He catches Leah's disapproval. What? The duel had begun. I'm foxy, but I'm not a beast. I just win. I feel like you all think that, I say. We all, I mean. They don't notice my slip-up. His point stands. Our house can't attack an enemy in our state, but an enemy could attack us as we run about preparing and ruin all my hopes of rising within the society. So, information. We need to know if our enemies are in a glen half a kilometre to the north or if they are fifteen kilometres south. Are we at a corner of the playing field or in the centre? Are there enemies in the highlands, north of the highlands? Cassius and I agree. We must scout. We split up. Cassius and I head to Phobos, and then move counterclockwise. Leah and Rogue strike to Dimos and scout clockwise. We're to meet at dusk. We don't see a soul from the top of Phobos. The lowlands are empty of horses and Ceres' fighters, and the highland range to the south is full of locks and goats. Southeast, atop a high dwarf mountain, we glimpse part of the Great Woods to the south and southeast. An army of giants could be hiding there for all we know, and we can't investigate. It would take half a day to cover the distance to even make it close to the tree line. Some ten kilometres from our castle, we find a weather-worn stone fort upon a low hill guarding a pass. Inside is a rustic survival box of iodine, food, a compass, rope, six duro bags, a toothbrush, sulphur matches, and simple bandages. We store the items in a clear duro bag. So, supplies have been hidden about the valley. Something tells me there are more important items hidden in the countryside than little survivor kits. Weapons, transportation, armour, technology. They can't mean for us to make war with sticks and stones and metal tools. 
and if they don't want us to kill each other, stun weapons must soon replace our metal ones. We earn nasty sunburns that first day. The mist chills them as we return. Titus and his pack, six now, have just returned from a fruitless incursion to the plains. They've killed two goats but don't have a fire to cook with since Severo slipped off somewhere. I don't tell them about my matches. Cassius and I agree that Titus, if he wants to be the big man, should at least be able to conquer fire. Severo, wherever he is, must agree as well. Titus's boys hit metal on stone trying to create sparks, but the stones of the castle don't spark. Clever proctors. Titus's pack makes the dregs, the low drafts, fetch wood despite the fact that they have no fires. They all go hungry that night. Only Roke and Leah don't. They get some of our survival bars. I like the pair, even if they are golds, and I excuse befriending them by telling myself that I do it only to build my own tribe. Cassius seems to think that fast mid-draft girl, Quinn, will be useful, but he can make himself think that about most pretty girls. The tribes grow, and the first lesson is already underway. Antonia finds friends with a squat, sour, curly-headed fellow named Scipio, and she manages to send groups armed with shovels and axes found in the castle to garrison Dimos and Phobos. The girl may be a spoiled witch, but at least she isn't stupid. Then Titus's pack steals their axes as they sleep, and I revise my opinion. Cassius and I scout together. On the third day, we see smoke rising in the distance, maybe some twenty kilometres to the east. It is like a beacon in the dusk. Enemy scouting parties would be out like us. If it were closer, or we had horses, we could investigate. Or if we had more men, we might set out overnight and plan a raid for slaves. The distance and our lack of coherence makes all the difference. Between us and the smoke are ravines and gulches that could hide war bands. Then there's many kilometres of plains to walk exposed. We won't make the trek. Not when some houses have horses. I don't tell Cassius this, but I am afraid. The highlands feel safe, but just out there in the landscape beyond are roving bands of psychotic godlings, godlings I do not want to run across quite yet. The thought of meeting other houses is made all the more terrible by the idea that even home is not safe. It's like Octavia Aulun always says, no man can pursue any endeavour in the face of tribal warfare. We can't afford to leave Titus alone for too long. He's already stolen berries Leah and Quinn collected. And this morning he tried to use the standard on Quinn to see if it could make slaves for his raiding parties out of the house's own members. It couldn't. We have to bind the house together somehow, Cassius tells me as we scout the northern highlands. The Institute is with us for the rest of our lives. If we lose, we may never gain position. Ever. And if we're enslaved during the course of the game, I ask. He looks worriedly over at me. What worse loss could there be? as if I needed more motivation. Your father won his year, I wager. He was Primus, I ask, 
To be an imperator, he'd have to have won his year. Right. Always knew he won his year, though I had no slagging idea what that meant till we got here. We both agree that in order to bind our house back together, Titus must go. But it is futile to fight him outright. That chance passed after the first day. His tribe has grown too large. I say we kill him in his sleep, Cassius suggests. You and I could do it. His words chill me. We make no decision, yet the proposition serves to remind me that he and I are different creatures. Or are we really? His wrath is a cruel, cold thing. Yet I never see the anger again, not even around Titus. He's all smiles and laughter and challenging members of Titus's pack to races and wrestling when they aren't going out on raids. Just as I am around my enemies. Yet, while I'm regarded warily by most, Cassius is loved by all except Titus's pack. He's even started sneaking off with Quinn. I like her. She killed a deer with a trap, then told a story about how she killed the thing with her teeth, even showed us evidence, hair between her teeth and gums along with bite marks on the deer. We thought we had a prettier Severo on our hands, till she laughed too hard to go on with the tall tale. Cassius helped her get the deer hair out of her teeth. I like a committed liar. Conditions worsen in the first few days. People remain hungry because we've yet to build a fire in the castle, and hygiene is quickly forgotten when two of our girls are snatched up by Ceres's horsemen as they bathe in the river just beneath our gate. The gulls are confused when even their fine pores begin clogging and they gain pimples. Looks like a bee sting, Roke laughs to Cassius and me, or a radial distant sun. I pretend to be fascinated by it, as though I didn't have them all my red life. Cassius leans forward to inspect it. Brother man, that is just... Then Roke pops the pimple right into Cassius's face, causing him to reel back and gag from disgust. Quinn falls over, giggling. I do wonder sometimes, Roke begins, after Cassius has recovered, as to the purpose of all this. How can this be the most efficient method of testing our merit, of making us into beings who can rule the society? And do you ever come to a conclusion? Cassius asks warily. He keeps his distance now. Poets never do, I say. Roke chuckles. Unlike most poets, I sometimes manage, and I have our answer to this. Spit it out, Cassius urges, as though I wasn't going to without instruction from our resident prima donna, Roke sighs. They have us here because this valley was humanity before gold ruled. Fractured, disunited, even in our very own tribe. They want us to go through the process that our forefathers went through. Step by step, this game will evolve to teach us new lessons. Hierarchies within the game will develop. We'll have reds, golds, coppers. Pinks? Cassius asks, hopefully. 
Makes sense, I say. Oh, that would be ripe strange, Cassius laughs, twisting his wolf ring on his finger. Mothers and fathers would be throwing fits if that went on. Probably why Titus leers at the girls. He likely wants a toy. Speaking of toys, where did he send Vixus? I laugh. Vixus, likely the most dangerous of Titus's followers, and the others, departed nearly two hours ago on Titus's orders to use Phobos Tower's height advantage to scout the plains in preparation for a raid on House Ceres. It'd be best to have Vixus on our side if we make a play, I say. He's Titus's right hand. Roke continues on a different train of thought. I don't know about pinks, Roke says. The idea of a gold being a pink offends him. But the rest is simple. This is a microcosm of the solar system. Seems to me like capture the flag with swords, if you recall that game, I reply. I never played the sport, but my studying with Matteo brought me up to speed on the games these children played in their parents' gardens. Mm-hmm, Cassius nods. He shoves a mock serious finger in Rogue's chest. Agreed. So you can take your quick talk and put it where the sun dare not shine, Rogue. We two great minds have decided. It's a game of capture the flag. I see, Roke laughs. Not all men can understand metaphor and subtlety like me. But do not fear, muscular friends. I will be here to guide you through the mind-bending things. For instance, I can tell you that our first test will be to piece the house back together again before an enemy comes a-knocking. Hell, I mutter, looking out over the edge of the parapet. Something in your bum? Cassius asks. Looks like the game just started. I point downward. Across the glen, just where the forest meets the grass plain, Vixus drags a girl by her hair, the first slave of House Mars. And far from being revolted, I'm jealous. Jealous that I did not capture her. Titus's minion did. And that means that Titus now wields credibility. Chapter 23 Fracture Though we all still sleep under the same roof, it took only four days for the house to dissolve into four tribes. Antonia, apparently the scion of a family that owns a sizable asteroid belt, gets the mid-drafters, the talkers, the whiners, the brains, the dependents, the wimps, the snobs, and the politicos. Titus draws mostly high drafts or mid-drafts, the physical specimens, the violent, the fast, the intrepid, the prototypically intelligent, the ambitious, the opportunists, the obvious selection for House Mars. The prodigy pianist, Quiet Cassandra, is his. So is Raspy Pollux and the psychotic Vixus who shivers with pleasure at the mere idea of putting metal into flesh. If Cassius and I had been more political... We might have managed to steal the high drafts from Titus. Hell, we might have had everyone ready to follow if we just told them they had to obey. After all, Cassius and I were the strongest for a brief moment. But then we gave Titus time to intimidate, and Antonia time to manipulate. 
damned Antonia, I say. Cassius laughs and shakes his golden head as we bound east along the highlands in search of more hidden caches of supplies. My long legs can cover a kilometre in just over a minute. Oh, you come to expect these things from a... If our families hadn't spent holidays together when we were little things, I might have called her out as a Democrat on the first day. But she's hardly that. More like Caesar, or... What do they call them? Presidents? A tyrant in necessity's clothing. She's a turd in the swillbow, I say. What the gory slag does that mean? Cassius laughs. Uncle Nero could have told him. Sorry? Oh, heard it in Yorkton once from a high red. Means she's a fly on the wine. A high red? Cassius snorts. One of my nannies was a high red. I know. Odd. Should have been a brown. But the woman would tell me stories as I tried to go to sleep. That's nice, I say. I thought her an uppity bugger. Tried to tell Mother to make her shut up and leave me alone, because all she wanted to do was talk about veils and dreary romances that always ended in some sort of sadness. Depressing creature. What does your mother do when you complained? Mother? Ha! She clapped me on the head and said, there's always something to learn from anybody, even a high red. She and father like to pretend they're progressives. Confuses me. He shakes his head. But Yorkton? Julian couldn't believe you were from Yorkton. The darkness returns in me. Even thinking of Eo doesn't dispel it. Even thinking of my noble mission and all the license it gives me doesn't banish the guilt. I am the only one who shouldn't feel guilty for the passage, yet, besides Roke, I think I'm the only one who does. I look at my hands and remember Julian's blood. Cassius points up suddenly to the sky southwest of us. What the gory hell! Dozens of blinking medbots pouring from floating Olympus's castle. We hear their distant whine. Proctors flicker after them like flaming arrows toward the distant southern mountains. Whatever has happened, one thing is certain. Chaos reigns in the south. Although my tribe continues to sleep in the castle, we've moved from the high tower to the gatehouse so we don't have to rub shoulders with Titus's lot. To keep safe, we leave our cooking a secret. We meet our tribe for supper by a lock in the northern highlands, they're not all hydrafts. We have some, Cassius and Rogue, but then no one above seventeenth pick. We've some mid-drafts, Quinn and Leah, but the rest are the dregs, the low-drafts, Clown, Screwface, Weed, Pebble and Thistle. This bothers Cassius even though the dregs of the Institute are still certifiably superhuman compared with the rest of the colours. They are athletic, they are resilient, they never ask you to repeat yourself unless you're making a point, and they accept my orders, even anticipating what next I'll ask them to do. I credit their less privileged upbringings. Most are smarter than I, but I have that unique thing they call slang smarts, proven by my high score in the extrapolation intelligence test. Not that it matters. I have sulfur matches, 
and that makes me the god Prometheus. Neither Antonia nor Titus have fire, as far as I know, so I'm the only one who can fill bellies. I make each of my tribe kill goats or sheep. No one is allowed to freeload, even though Screwface tries his best. They don't notice my hands trembling when I cut my first goat's throat with a knife. There's so much trust in the beast's eyes, followed by confusion as it dies, still thinking me its friend. The blood is warm, like Julian's. The neck muscle tough. I have to saw with the dull knife, just as Leah does when she kills her first sheep, squealing as she does it. I make her skin it too, with Thistle's help. And when she cannot, I take her hands into my own and guide her along, giving her my strength. Daddy going to have to cut up your meat for you too, Thistle taunts. Shut it, Rogue says. She can fight her own battles, Rogue. Leah, Thistle asked you a question. Leah blinks over at me, wide eyes confused. Ask her another, Thistle. What's going to happen when we get in a tight spot with Titus? Will you squeal then too? Child. Thistle knows what I want her to do. I asked her to do it thirty minutes ago before I brought the goat to Leah. I motion my head at Leah to Thistle. You gonna cry? Thistle asks. Wipe your eyes and... Leah snarls and jumps at her. The two roll around, punching each other in the face. It's not long before Thistle's got Leah in a chokehold. Roke stirs beside me. Quinn pulls him back down. Leah's face goes purple, her hands slap at Thistle's. Then she passes out. I give Thistle a nod of thanks. The dark-faced girl gives a slow nod. Leah's shoulders are squarer the next morning. She even musters enough courage to hold Roke's hand. She also claimed to be a better cook than the rest of us. She isn't. Roke tries his hand, but he's hardly any better. Eating their grub is like taking down stringy, dry sponges. Even Quinn, with all her stories, can't muster up a recipe. We cook goat and deer meat over our camp kitchen six kilometres from the castle, and we do it at night in the gulches so the light and smoke cannot be seen. We do not kill the sheep, instead we collect and deposit them in a northern fort for safekeeping. I could bring more over to my tribe with the food, but the food is as big a danger as it is a boon. What Titus and his killers would do if he found that we had fire, food, clean water. I am returning to the castle with Roke from a scouting trip to the south, when we hear noises coming from a small grove of trees. Creeping closer, we hear grunts and hacking sounds. Expecting to see a wolf pack ravaging a goat, we peer through the brush and find four of Titus's soldiers squatting around a deer corpse. Their faces are bloody, eyes dark and ravenous, as they tear strips out of the dead deer with their knives. Five days without fire. Five days of bad berries, and they've already turned into savages. We have to give them matches, Roke tells me afterward. The stones here don't spark with flint. No. If we give them matches, then Titus will have even more power. 
does it matter at this point? They are going to get sick if they keep eating raw meat. They already are sick. So, they shit their pants, I grunt. There are worse things. Tell me, Darrow, would it be worse to have Titus in power and have Mars strong, or for Darrow to be in power with Mars weak? Better for whom? I ask petulantly. He only shakes his head. Let them rot their gory bellies, is Cassius's opinion. They made their beds, now let them shit in them. My army agrees. I am fond of my army, the dregs, the low drafts. They aren't as entitled or well-bred as the high drafts. Most remember to thank me when I give them food. At first they didn't. They don't prance off after Titus on midnight axe raids simply because it gets their jollies off. No, they follow us because Cassius is as charismatic as the sun and, in his light, the shadow I cast looks like it knows what it's doing. It doesn't. It, like me, was born in a mine. Still, it does seem like I have some strategy. I have us make maps of our territory on digislates we found in a waterlogged cellar at the bottom of a ravine. But we still have no weapons other than my sling blade and several knives and sharpened sticks, so whatever strategy we have is based on acquiring information. Funny thing is, only one tribe has a silver shit's idea of what is going on, and it's not ours, it's not Antonia's, and it sure as hell isn't Titus's. It's Severo's and I'm nearly certain he's the only member in that tribe, unless he's adopted wolves by now. It's hard to say if he has or hasn't. Our house doesn't have family dinners. Though occasionally we'll see him running along the hillsides at night in his wolfskin, looking, as Cassius put it best, like some sort of hairy demon child on hallucinogens. And once Roke even heard something, not a wolf, howling in the shrouded highlands. Some days, Severo walks around, all normalish, insulting everything that moves, except for Quinn. He makes an exception for her, delivering meats and edible mushrooms instead of insults. I think he's sweet on her, even though she's sweet on Cassius. We ask her to tell us stories about him, but she won't. She's loyal, and maybe that's why she reminds me of home. She's always telling good stories, most of them certainly gilded lies. A life spark is in her, just like the one that was in my wife. She's the last of us to call Goblin Severo. She's also the only one who knows where he lives. Even with all our scouting, we can't find a trace of where he sleeps. For all I know, he's out taking scalps beyond the highlands. I know Titus has sent scouts to stalk him, but I don't think they are successful. They can't even follow me. I know that rubs Titus raw. I think he is wanking off in the bushes, Cassius chuckles, just waiting for us all to kill each other. It's when Leah comes limping back to the castle that Roke seeks Cassius and me out. They beat her, he says, not bad, but they kicked her in the stomach and took her day's labor. Who? Cassius bristles. Who's the slagger? Doesn't matter. What matters is they are hungry, 
So stop playing at an eye for an eye. This can't go on, Roke says. Titus's boys are starving. What do you expect they'd do? Hell, the big brute is hunting Goblin because he needs fire and food. If we just give that to him, we can unite the house, maintain civility. Maybe even Antonia will bring her tribe to reason. Antonia? Reason? Cassius asks, guffawing. Even if that happens, Titus will still be the most powerful, I say. And that's not the cure for anything. Ah, yes, that's something you can't abide. Someone else having power. Fine, then. Roke tugs at his long hair. Talk to Vixus or Pollux. Take away his captains if you must. But heal the house, Darrow. Otherwise we'll lose when another house comes knocking. On the sixth day, I take his advice. Knowing Titus is out raiding, I risk seeing Vixus in the keep. Unfortunately, Titus returns earlier than expected. You're looking lively and spry, he says to me, before I can find Vixus in the keep's stone holes. He blocks my path with his large body, shoulders nearly spanning the width of the hall. I feel another in the hallway behind me. Vixus and two others. My stomach sinks a little. It was stupid to do this. Where are you going, if I may ask? I wanted to compare our scouting maps to the main map in the command room. I lie, knowing I have a digislate in my pocket. Oh, you wanted to compare scouting maps to the main map. For the good of Mars, noble Darrow. What other good is there? I ask. We are all on the same side. No. Oh, we are on the same side, he says. Titus booms an insincere laugh. Vixus, if we are on the same side... Don't you think it would be best if we shared his little maps with one another? It would be for the very best, Vixus agrees. Mushrooms, maps, all the same. So, he assaulted little Leah. His eyes are dead, like raven eyes. Yes, so I'll take a look for you, Darrow. Titus snatches the scouting maps from me. There's nothing I can do to stop him. You're welcome to them, I say. So long as you know there are enemy fires to the far east and likely enemies in the great woods to the south. Raid all you like. Just don't get caught with your pants down. Titus sniffs the air. He wasn't listening to me. Since we are sharing, Darrow... He sniffs again, closer to my neck. Perhaps you'll share with us why you smell like wood smoke. I stiffen, not knowing what to do. Look at him squirm. Look at him weave a lie. Titus's voice is all disgust. I can smell your deceit. Smell the lies dripping from you like sweat. Like a woman in heat. Pollock says sardonically. He shrugs apologetically at me. Disgusting. 
Vixus sneers. He's a vile thing, a wretched womanish thing. I don't know why I thought I'd be able to turn him on Titus. You're a little parasite, Titus continues, nibbling away at morale because you will not come to heal, waiting for my noble boys and girls to starve. They're closing in on me from behind, from the sides. Titus is huge. Pollux and Vixes are cruel, nearly as big as I. You're a wretched creature, a worm in our spine. I shrug, casually, trying to let them think I'm not worried. We can fix this, I say. Oh? Titus asks. The solution is simple, big man. I counsel. Bring your boys and girls home. Stop raiding Ceres every day before some other house comes in and slaughters you all. Then we'll talk about fire, about food. You think you can tell us what to do, Darrow? That's the thrust of it? Vixus asks. Think you're better because you scored higher on the stupid little test, because the proctors chose you first? He does, Titus chuckles. He thinks he deserves Primus. Vixus's hawkish face leans close to mine, lips sneering each word. Handsome in repose, his lips peel back cruelly now, and his breath stinks as he looks me over, measuring me and trying to make me think he's not impressed. He snorts a contemptuous laugh. I see him shifting his head to spit in my face. I let him. The glob of phlegm hits, and drips slowly down my cheek toward my lips. Titus watches with a wolfish smile. His eyes glimmer. Vixus looks to him for encouragement. Pollux comes closer. You're a pampered little prick, Vixus says. His nose nearly brushes mine. So that's what I'm gonna take from you, Goodman. Your little prick. Or you could let me leave, I say. You seem to be blocking the door. Ho-ho! He laughs, looking at his master. He's trying to show he's not afraid, Titus. Trying to avoid a fight. He looks at me with those golden, dead eyes. I've broken uppity boys like you and the dueling clubs a thousand times. You have? I ask, incredulously broken them like twigs, and then taken their girls for sport. What embarrassments I've made of them in front of their fathers, what weeping messes I make of boys like you. Oh, Vixus, I say with a sigh, keeping the tremble of anger and fear out of my voice. Vixus, 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 there are no boys like me. I look back at Titus, to make sure our eyes are joined, when I casually, as if I were dancing, loop my helldiver hand around and slam it into the side of Vixus's neck at the jugular with the force of a sledgehammer strike. It ruins him. Yet I hit him with an elbow, a knee, my other hand, as he falls. Had his legs been anchored better, the first strike might have snapped his neck in half. Instead, he cartwheels sideways in the low gravity, going horizontal and shuddering from my raining blows as he hits the ground. 
His eyes go blank. Fear rises in my belly. My body is so strong. Titus and the others are too startled by the sudden violence to stop me as I spin past their outstretched hands and run down the halls. I did not kill him. I did not kill him. Chapter 24 Titus's War I did not kill Vixus, but I killed the chance of uniting the house. I sprint down the keep's winding stairwells, shouts behind me. I pass Titus's lounging students. They're sharing bits of raw fish they managed to spear from the river. They could trip me if they knew what I've done. Two girls watch me go by and, hearing their leader's shouts, are too late in moving. I'm past their hands, past the keep's lower gatehouse, and into the main square of the castle. Cassius! I call up at the gatehouse to the castle where my men sleep. Cassius! He peeks his head out the window and sees my face. Oh, shit! Roke! He shouts. It's happened! Raise the dregs! Three of Titus's boys and one of his girls chase after me across the courtyard. They're slower than I, but another is coming from their post on the wall to cut me off. Cassandra. Her short hair jingles with bits of metal she's woven in. Effortlessly, she hops down the eight metres from the parapet, an axe in hand, and races to intersect my path before I reach the stairs. Her golden wolf ring glimmers in the ebbing light. She's a beautiful sight. Then my entire tribe pours out of the gatehouse. They bring their makeshift packs, their knives, and the beating sticks we carved from felled branches taken from our woods. But they do not set toward me. They are bright, so they crank open the huge double gates that separate the castle from the long sloping path leading down to the glen. Mist seeps through the open gate, and they disappear into the murk. Only Quinn is left behind. Quinn, the fastest of Mars. She bounds along the cobblestone like a gazelle, coming to my aid. Her beating stick twirls in the air. Cassandra doesn't see her. A long, golden ponytail flops in the chill night air as Quinn winds up, a smile on her face, and blindsides Cassandra from the flank, hitting her full force in the knee with her beating stick. The crack of the wood on strong gold bone is loud. So is Cassandra's scream. Her leg doesn't break, but she flips onto the cobblestone. Quinn does not slow her stride. She swoops in beside me, and together we leave Titus's pack behind. We catch up with the others in the bowl of the glen. Setting across the rugged hills, we aim toward our northern fort in the deep mist-shrouded highlands. Vapor clings to our hair, dripping off in pearls. We reach the fort well past midnight. It is a cavernous, barren tower that leans over a ravine like a drunken wizard. Lichen covers the thick, grey stone. Mist swaddles its parapets, and we make our first meal of the birds in the eaves of the single tower. Some escape. I hear their wings in the dark night. Our civil war has begun. Unfortunately, Titus is not a stupid enemy. He does not come for us as we thought he would. 
I had hoped he would come try and lay siege to our north fort, that his army would see our fires inside the stone walls and smell the meat as it sizzled in fat. The sheep we gathered earlier would have lasted us weeks, months, if we had water. We could have feasted every night. They would have broken then. They would have left Titus behind. But Titus knows of my weapon, fire, so he avoids us so that his boys and girls cannot see what luxuries we have. He does not let his tribe alone long enough to think. Frenzy, war, numb the sense in man. So they raid house Ceres from the sixth day on, and he creates trophies for acts of bravery and violence, giving boys and girls marks in blood on their cheeks that they bear proudly. We slink along, watching their war parties from the brush and the tall grasses of the plains. Sometimes we gain a vantage on the southern highland peaks near Phobos. From there we witness the siege of House Ceres. Around House Ceres the smoke rises in a sullen crown. Apple trees are hewn down, horses stolen, Titus's raiders even lasso a torch from one of the Ceres ramparts in an attempt to bring fire to Mars's castle. Ceres' horsemen ride them down with pails of water before they reach home. Titus shrieks in rage when this happens, and the Ceres' horses fly by, dashing the flame with water before circling home. With his best soldier, Vixus, he upends one of the horses with a tree branch fashioned like a pike. The rider spills from the saddle, and Pollux's honour. They take two more slaves that day, and Titus takes the horse for himself. It is on our eighth day that the Institute and I watch the siege with Cassius and Roke from the highlands. Today, Titus rides the captured horse beneath the wall of House Ceres with a lasso, daring their archers to shoot their arrows at him and his horse. One poor girl leans her head out to get a better angle with her bow. She draws the arrow back to her ear, aims, and just before she is about to loose the arrow, Titus hurls his lasso upward. It flails through the air. She jerks back. Not fast enough. The lasso loops her neck, and Titus kicks his horse away from the wall, tightening the lasso. Her friends scramble to grab her. They hold tight, but are forced to let go before her neck snaps. Her friends' screams echo across the plains as she's jerked violently down from the top of the wall and dragged by Titus back to his cheering followers. There, Cassandra kicks the girl to her knees and enslaves her with our standard. The flames from the burning crops lick up into the twilight, where several proctors hover with flagons of wine and a tray of some rare delicacy. A violent heart set harshest flame, Roke murmurs from his knee. He's bold, I say deferentially. And he likes this. His eyes sparkled when I struck Vixus in the throat. Cassius nods along. Too much. He is lethal. Cassius agrees. But he means something different. I look over at him. There's a raw edge to his voice. And he's a liar. He is, I ask. He didn't kill Priam. Roke becomes quiet. 
Smaller than us, he seems a child as he remains on a knee. His long hair is held in a ponytail. Dirt crusts his nails, which scrabble in tying his shoes as he looks up. He didn't kill Priam, Cassius repeats. The wind moans over the hills behind us. Night comes slow today. Cassius's cheeks sink into shadow. Still, he's handsome. They wouldn't have put Priam with a monster like Titus. Priam's a leader, not a warlord. They'd put Priam with someone easy, like one of our dregs. I know where Cassius is going with this. It's in the way he watches Titus. The coldness in his eyes reminds me of a pit viper's gaze as it follows its prey. My insides turn sour as I do it, but I lead Cassius in the direction he seems to want to go, inviting him to bite. Roke tilts his head at me, noticing something strange in my interaction with Cassius. And they would give Titus someone else, I say. Someone else, Cassius repeats, nodding. Julian, he is thinking. He doesn't say it. Neither do I. Better to let it fester in his mind. Let my friend think our enemy killed his brother. This is a way out. Blood begets blood begets blood begets blood. Roke's words into the wind, which carries west toward the long plain and toward the flames that dance in the low horizon. Beyond, the mountains hunker, cold and dark. Snow already gathers on their peaks. It's a sight to steal one's breath, yet Roke's eyes never leave my face. I find it a small pleasure that Titus's slaves are not very effective allies for him. Far from being indoctrinated as thoroughly as a red might be, these newly made slaves are stubborn creatures. They follow orders or risk being labelled shamed after graduation, but they purposefully never do more or less than he demands. It is their act of rebellion. They fight where he tells them to fight, whom he tells them to fight, even when they should retreat. They gather the berries he shows them, even if they know they are poisonous, and pile stones till the pile falls over. But if there is an open gate leading to the enemy's fortress, and Titus doesn't tell them to go into it, they'll stand there and pick their butts. Despite the addition of slaves and the raising of Ceres's crops and orchards, Titus's force, which is quite sound at violence, is pitiful when they attempt to do anything else. His men empty their bowels in shallow latrines, or behind trees, or in the river, in an attempt to poison the students of House Ceres. One of his girls even falls in after emptying her bowels into the water. She flails around in her own waist. It's a scene of comedy, but laughter has become seldom, except from the students of Ceres. They sit behind their high walls and catch fish from the river and eat breads from their ovens and honey from their apiaries. In response to the laughter, Titus drags one of the male slaves up in front of the gate. The slave is a tall one, with a long nose and a mischievous smile meant for the ladies. He thinks this is all a game till Titus cuts off one of his ears. Then he cries for his mother like a young child, 
He will never command warships. The proctors, even House Ceres's, do not stop the violence. They watch from the sky in twos and threes, floating about as medbots wind down from Olympus to cauterize a wound or treat severe head trauma. On the twentieth morning of the Institute, the defenders throw a basket of bread loaves down as Titus's men attempt to batter in the tall gate with a felled tree. The besiegers end up fighting each other for the food, only to find that the bread was baked around razor blades. The screams last till the afternoon. Titus's reply comes just before night falls. With five newly minted slaves, including the male with the missing ear, he approaches the gate till he's near a mile off. He parades in front of the slaves, holding four long sticks in his hand. These he gives to each of the slaves, except the girl he pulls down from the ramparts with a lasso. With a low bow to the Ceres gate, he waves a hand and orders the slaves to commence beating the girl. Like Titus, she is tall and powerful, so it is difficult to pity her. At first. The slaves hit the girl gingerly with the initial swings. Then Titus reminds them of the shame that will forever mark their names if they do not obey. They swing harder. They aim for the girl's golden head. They hit her and hit her till her shouts have long faded and blood mats her blonde hair. When Titus grows bored, he drags the wounded girl back to his camp by her hair. She slides limply over the earth. We watch from our place in the highlands, and it takes Leah and Quinn both to stop Cassius from sprinting down into the plains. The girl will live, I tell him. The sticks are all show. Roke spits bitterly into the grass and reaches for Leah's hand. It's odd seeing her give him strength. The next morning we discover that Titus's reply did not stop with the beating. After we retired to our castle, Titus snuck back in the dead of night to hide the girl directly in front of the Ceres gate underneath a thick blanket of grass, gagged and tied. Then he had one of his female followers shriek during the night to pretend she was the slave at the camp. She screamed of rape and violations. Maybe the captured Ceres girl thought she was safe under the grass. Maybe she thought the proctors would save her and she would go home to mother and father, home to her equestrian lessons, home to her puppies and her books. But in the early dark of morning, she is trampled as riders, enraged by the fake screams, gallop from the Ceres fortress to rescue her from Titus's makeshift camp. They only learn of their folly when they hear the medbots descending behind them to carry her broken body up to Olympus. She never returns. Still, the proctors do not interfere. I'm not sure why they even exist. I miss home. Lycos, of course, but also the place where I was safe with Dancer, Matteo, and Harmony. Soon there are no more slaves to take. House Ceres does not come out after dark anymore, and their high walls are guarded. The trees outside the wall have all been cut down, but there are crops and more orchards inside their long walls. Bread still bakes, 
and the river still flows within their ramparts. Titus can do nothing but savage their land and steal what remains of their apples. Most have been sown with needles and stingers from wasps. Titus has failed, and so, as do those of any tyrant after a failed war, his eyes turn inward. Chapter 25 Tribal War Thirty days into the Institute, and have not seen evidence of another enemy house, except for the smoke signs of distant fires. House Ceres' soldiers roam the eastern fringes of our land. They ride with impunity now that Titus's tribe has retreated into our castle. Castle? No, it has become a hovel. I come upon it with Roke in the early morning. Fog still clings to the four spires, and light struggles to penetrate the dreary sky of our highland climate. Sounds from inside the stone walls echo into the quiet morning like coins rattling about in a tin can. Titus's voice. He's cursing at his tribesmen to get up. Apparently, few do. Someone tells him to go slag himself, and it's little wonder. The bunk beds are the only real amenity the castle has, no doubt put there to encourage slothfulness. My tribe has no such amenities. We sleep on stone, curls next to one another, around our crackling fires. Oh, what I'd give for a bed again. Cassius and I slink along the slanted dirt road that leads to the gatehouse. We can hardly even see it, the fog is so thick. More sounds from inside. It seems like the slaves are up. I hear coughs, grumbling, and a few shouts. A long creak and the clatter of chains means the gate is opening. Cassius pulls me off to the side of the road, tucking us into the mist as the slaves shuffle past. Their faces are pallid in the low light. Hollows make homes in their sunken cheeks, and their hair has been dirtied. Mud-caked skin around their sigils. He passes near enough to me that I smell his body odour. I stiffen suddenly, worried he will again smell the smoke on me. But he doesn't. Beside me, Cassius is quiet, yet I feel his anger. We sneak back down the path and watch the slaves toil from the relative safety of the woods. They are not oriots as they scrub shit and scavenge for berries in the sharp thistle bushes. One or two are missing ears. Vixus, recovered from my attack except for a huge purple bruise on his neck, walks around slapping at them with a long stick. If the test is to unite a fractious house, I am failing. As early morning fades, and appetites change with the arrival of warm sunshine, Cassius and I hear a sound that makes our skin prickle. Screams. Screams from the high tower of Mars. They are a particular sort, a kind to darken the spirits. When I was a boy in Lycos, my mother was serving me soup at our stone family table the night of the laurel tide. It was a year after my father died. Kieran and Liana sat with me, neither yet older than ten. A single light unit flickered on and off above the table, so Mum was shrouded in darkness, 
except for her arm from the elbow down. Then came the scream, muffled by distance and the twists of our cavern township. I still see how the broth quivered in the ladle, how my mother's hand shook when she heard it. Screams, not of pain, but of horror. What he's doing to the girls, Cassius hisses to me as we slink away from the castle as night descends. He's a beast. This is war, I say, though the words sound hollow, even in my own ears. It's school, he reminds me. What if Titus did this to our girls, to Leah, to Quinn? I say nothing. We would kill him, Cassius answers for me. We would kill him, cut his prick off and shove it in his mouth. And I know he's also thinking of what Titus must have done to Julian. Despite Cassius's mutterings, I take his arm and pull him away from the castle. The gates are locked against the night. There is nothing we can do. I feel helpless again. Helpless as when ugly Dan took Eo from me. But I am different now. My hands turn to fists. And I am more than I was then. On our way back to our north fort, I see a glimmer in the air. Golden grav boots shimmer as Fitchner descends. He's chewing gum and holds his heart when he sees our evil glances. Whatever did I do, young friends, to earn such glares? He's treating the girls like animals, Cassius seethes. Veins in his neck stand out. They are golds, and he is treating them like dogs, like pinks. If he is treating them like pinks, then it is because they merited no better in this little world than pinks do in our big world. You're joking. Cassius can't understand. They are golds, not pinks. He's a monster. Then prove you're a man and stop him, Fitchner says. As long as he's not murdering them one by one, it's not our concern. All wounds heal, even these. That's a lie, I tell him. I'll never be healed of ill. That pain will last forever. Some things do not fade. Some things can never be made right. Yet we do nothing because he has more fighters, Cassius spits. An idea sweeps over me. We can fix that. Cassius turns to me. He hears the deadness in my voice just as I see it in his eyes when he speaks of Titus. That's a peculiar thing we share. We are made of fire and ice, though I am not sure which of us is ice and which is fire. Nevertheless, extremes rule us more than we'd like. That is why we are of Mars. You have a plan, Cassius says. I nod coldly. Fitchner watches us too, and he grins. About gory down time. The plan starts with a concession only someone once a husband could make. Cassius cannot stop laughing when I tell him the details. Even Quinn snorts a laugh the next morning. Then she's off, 
running like a deer to Dymos Tower to bring my formal apology to Antonia. She's to meet me with Antonia's response at one of our supply caches near the Furor River, north of the castle. Cassius guards our new fort with the remainder of our tribe, in case Titus tries to attack while Roke and I go to the supply cache during the day. Quinn does not come. Dusk does. Despite the dark, we trace the path she would have taken from Dymus Tower. We go till we reach the tower itself, which sits in the low hills surrounded by thick woods. Five of Titus's men lounge around its base. Roke grabs me and pulls me down into the woods brush. He points to a tree fifty metres distant where Vixus sits hidden in wait on a high branch. Did they catch Quinn? No, she's too fast to be caught. Did someone betray us? We return to our fort by early morning. I'm sure I've been more tired, but I can't remember when. Blisters ruin my feet despite the fitted shoes, and my neck peels from long days in the sun. Something is wrong. Leah meets me by the fort's gate. She hugs Roke and looks up at me like I'm her father or something. She is not her usual timid self. Her bird-like body shakes, not from fear, but anger. You have to kill that piece of filth, Darrow. You have to cut his slagging balls off. Titus. What happened? I look around. Leah, where is Cassius? She tells me. Titus captured Quinn as she was on her way back from the tower. They beat her. Then Titus sent one of her ears here. It was meant for me. They thought Quinn was my girl, and Titus thinks he knows my temper. They got the reaction they wanted, just not from me. Cassius was on watch, and as the others slept, he snuck away to the castle to challenge Titus. Somehow, the brilliant young man was arrogant enough to think hundreds of years of aureate honour and tradition would survive the sickness that has consumed Titus's tribe in only a few weeks. The Imperator's son was wrong, and he is also unused to having his heritage be of such little consequence. In the real world, he would have been safe. In this small one, he is not. But he's alive, I say. Yeah, I'm alive, you pixie. Cassius stumbles, shirtless, out of the fort. Cassius! Roke gasps. His face pales suddenly. Cassius's left eye is swollen shut. Lips are split. Ribs purple as grapes. His other eye is bloody. Three dislocated fingers shoot out like tree roots, and his shoulder is odd. The others stare at him with such sadness. Cassius was the Imperator's boy, their shining knight, and now his body is a ruin, and the looks upon their faces, the pallid cast to their skin, tell me that they have never before seen someone beautiful mutilated. I have. He smells like piss. He tries to play it off as some lark. They beat the slag out of me when I challenged him, hit me with a shovel on the side of the head then stood around and had themselves a circle piss. Then they tied me up in that stinko keep, 
but Pollock set me free like a good lad, and he's agreed to open the gate if we need it done. I didn't think you were so stupid, I say. Of course he is. He wants to be one of the Sovereign's knights, Roke mutters. And all they do is duel. He shakes his long hair. Dirt crusts the leather band that holds it in a ponytail. You should have waited for us. What's done is done, I say. We go ahead with the plan. Fine, Cassius snorts. But when the time comes, Titus is mine. <laughs>